You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Warrior. Thief. Gladiator. Conqueror. Conan. They said you would come. Man of great strength. to make it give us what we desire. the projection booth i'm your host mike white rob st mary is currently on assignment in aquilonia my co-host josh hadley won't cry so i will cry for him you cannot masturbate me master also with us is our friend el goro from talk without rhythm mike i've never podcasted before i have no tongue for it and it's up to us to tell you the saga of how Robert E. Howard's creation, Conan, who came from the South and would someday be a hit movie before being crushed by bad decisions and cheesy sequels and remakes. Yes, we're talking about Conan the Barbarian this week, the 1982 film from director John Milius that formerly introduced... Arnold Schwarzenegger to America. Yes, yes, before we get emails, we know that Arnold was in plenty of films before Conan, but this was the role he was born to play. It's an introduction to the Conan story, pitting the Sumerian against Thulsa Doom, a sorcerer played by James Earl Jones, in order to get revenge, earn some treasure, save a girl, and really save the world. So let us tell you of the days of high adventure, but before we do that... Just to let you know, we're going to get into some spoiler territory here. If you haven't seen Conan the Barbarian, I really don't know what's the matter with you. Uh, you need to get out there, buy the DVD, if only for the commentary track alone. Uh, we'll definitely be talking about that a little bit later on the show. Josh, when was the first time you saw Conan, and what did you think, sir? I loved it when I first saw it. Now, this came out in theaters when I was seven. So I distinctly remember my parents going to the movies to see it. And I, when they came back, you guys probably remember the days when 
big movies like this, they would give you programs at the oh, theater. Yeah. They came back with the Conan program with that beautiful painting on it and whatnot. I remember we had that for years. I don't know whatever happened to that old program. And my dad told me all about this. I didn't see it till it came to HBO because it actually hit HBO before it hit VHS. So I saw this for the first time on HBO and I fell in love with it. Boobs, blood, beasts, gore, this movie, my eight-year-old brain at that point because it came out a year later on cable, I adored Conan adored and then of course started reading the comic books and whatnot and became a conan fan until 1984 well since i'm a little bit younger than you guys i came to this film slightly differently my first exposure to it was actually through a digest size black and white comic book adaptation of the movie that marvel put out that my stepfather gifted to me when i was about eight years old or so and then shortly thereafter i raided my uh, actual father's very large collection of bootleg v VHSs that he had, which formed the foundation for my cinematic knowledge. And, oh, it was a transformative experience. So many of those movies were transformative, particularly when I found his Seika tapes. For me, I know that I've talked about this on the show before, that I had very little uh, parental supervision when I was a kid. But for some reason, my folks kind of told me not to watch Conan the Barbarian, so I didn't for the longest time. I know I must have seen little bits and pieces here and there as the years went on, but it really wasn't until... I was in my mid-20s before I finally sat down and watched the entire Conan the Barbarian from beginning to end, and it just lit a fire under my ass. It was like, oh my god, this is amazing. This is great stuff. And just to see... The, the young Arnold Schwarzenegger, the spookily young James Earl Jones, I mean, to, to realize, you know, by this time I had seen all, you know, so many Bergman films, I'd, I almost said the, all the Bergman films, but to see Max von Sydow in this, and I really only knew him from Bergman, and then also from, you know, Ming the Merciless, of course, but... And just don't forget so Sandalbergen looking so hot. Oh, yeah. Everybody just on top of their game. And then to like realize, like, wow, this movie starred a, a dancer, a surfer, and a bodybuilder in the three main roles. It's pretty gutsy for this movie that ended up being a kind of a worldwide sensation. And by the time I had seen this movie the first time all the way through, of course, that whole sword and sorcery thing had come and gone, and it was so big for so long of all of these Conan ripoff films afterwards. And I guess you could kind of consider almost the sequels to Conan as uh, ripoffs of it. I will say, though, that I did see, uh, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later on, I did see Red Sonia in the theater. That's the only <laughs> one of these that I saw theatrically. Nice. I got a question for you then, Mike. What what was the first Sword and Sorcery movie you saw? Sword and the Sorcerer or Beastmaster or an Ator flick? If you saw Conan later, I want to know what you saw before that might have spoiled you a little. I don't know why my parents wouldn't let me see Conan the Barbarian, but I saw the shit out of the Sword and the Sorcerer. I even saw that thing in the theater, man. So I was all about that movie. That three-bladed sword and, oh, so cool. So I was all about Sword and the Sorcerer by our good friend Albert Pion, and then also about Beastmaster, which that one was a cable staple. I did not see that one theatrically. There was a joke in the 80s that TBS showed Beastmaster so often 
that the TBS stood for the Beastmaster Station. Yeah, I think my first sword and sorcery film actually was Red Sonia because I distinctly remember seeing that when I was about five or six, and that giant spider definitely laid an impact on me. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm. I'm anxious to talk about that film because I had gone for many years without seeing it and then revisiting it. I was just kind of surprised. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the best thing you could say about that movie. I always feel a little ripped off that Arnold's not Conan in that. I mean, Red Sonja and Conan are from the same novels and in the same comics, so it was kind of weird that he wasn't Conan in that. All about the rights, baby. Yeah. All about those rights, yeah. But yeah, and then they try to explain it away outside of the movie, like, oh, that's just another one of Conan's names, you know, like, yeah, sure, so, yeah, sure, yeah, <laughs> like those Parker movies that are, you know, where the guy's a different name, you know, Mel Gibson was, uh, well, he was Parker, or no, he was he was Porter in that one, right? And so let's talk about um, Robert E. Howard a little bit. I stayed away from the Robert E. Howard books for a long time, just because when I was a kid, I couldn't find any of these Robert E. Howard books. No matter where I went, you know, I was all about the used bookstores and stuff, trying to find these books, and I did want to see what these were about, even though I wasn't able to see the movie, but having seen Red Sonia, and eventually, I guess I kind of went backwards. I think I saw Red Sonia, and then I saw Conan the Destroyer, and then saw Conan the Barbarian years later, but I wanted to read these books. I was kind of into, you know, Edgar Rice Burroughs and some of the classics. And I was like, okay, I want to, you know, see these Robert E. Howard books. Couldn't find them anywhere. Uh, the best I could do was find these books by this guy, L. Sprague de Camp. That was it. And, and they had something to do with Robert E. Howard, but I wasn't really sure what it was. And it was kind of like, you know, we've talked on the, the show before about not being able to find the version that you think that you want. Like, not, you know, I never watched The Devils until I found the version that was right for me to watch, you know. And when it came to these Robert E. Howard books, I was like, well, I guess I'll read these El Sprague de Camp books because they talk about Conan, but I don't really understand what's going on. <laughs> and I was just so confused as a young child trying to figure this stuff out, only to realize years later that De Camp just kind of made his, his bones by kind of uh, rewriting or, you know, the ripping off Howard and just kind of uh, doing his thing and, and basically taking over this guy's body of work. It's like, wow, it was pretty ballsy to be able to do that. Have you guys read the, the Howard stories? Oh, yeah. Um, initially, I was introduced to the El Sprague de Camp um, rewrites, as they are, and um, eventually I learned that they they were exactly what, what they sound like. They were a gentleman that was taking Howard's work and then repurposing it, in some cases rewriting whole swaths of it because his actual opinion of Howard's writing was uh, not all that good. And so for a while, I kind of put them down and um, just said, well, I'll, I'll see if I can find the books and stories in their original form. And then thankfully, um, I think within the last 10 years or so, Del Rey started putting out these big collected editions of the original Conan stories written by Robert E. Howard, and I just completely devoured them. And for people that are wanting to get into them, you, I would definitely suggest looking into those collections or just heading over to Project Gutenberg because so much of his work is in the public domain in its original unaltered form. I got to agree that the Howard stuff, it needs to be read, but you do need to put it in its historical context. Robert E. Howard 
would not make it by today's standards. And I'm not talking about his writing skills. He was a hardcore, hardlined racist. <laughs> and when you read these stories and the villains are swamp niggers and things like that, you kind of are taken aback and you're like, holy shit, is this from a different time indeed? I mean, he did not treat black people well at all. I can't think of a single black character in an original Robert E. Howard story that was not just this side of a talking monkey. So you need to be prepared if you do go and read these nowadays. The biggest change, though, would be most people interpret Conan either from Arnold Schwarzenegger or from the Frank Frazetta paintings that helped sell so many of those books. But I I think you can back me up on this. The Conan in the original stories is hardly a barbarian. He wears armor. He's a strategist. He's very well-spoken. He's not the barbarian that we picture, is he? No, I mean, in the very first story that he appears in, I mean, the first time we're introduced to him, he's writing poetry. He's writing a history of the world, and peppered throughout the story are excerpts from his poetic work. So he is definitely much more of a thinker than the popular conception of Conan. And in in the original artwork that accompanied the old Weird Tales stories, he's a skinny, almost borderline gaunt dude that's that's in kind of almost romanesque ben-hur style clothing so it's night and day difference from the frazetta conan and the arnold conan so i think that is actually going to be even more shocking than the racism aspect if people go back and read the original howard stories Oh, definitely. Now, I'll admit to a great deal of affection for the Frazetta paintings. I mean, they still define my view of what Conan should look like. But if you go back to the original text, I mean, Howard spends much more time talking about the agility of Conan, the panther-like movements of Conan, as much as he does about Conan's physical strength. So while I have a great deal of affection for Frazetta and I love Arnie as the, in the role, I think one of the perfect views of Conan is a mixture between between those very lithe original drawings and some of the more developed physicality that we would see in some of the in the Frazetta work. That, to me, is uh, a much more holistic view of what Conan should be. When Howard was writing these things in the early part of the 20th century, we hadn't had, you know, the... We hadn't had Superman. We hadn't had Batman. We hadn't had any of that stuff. We hadn't had muscle culture, really, which Arnold would kind of come from. So I think kind of between the the worship of the body that we had with the superheroes and everything and then the the weightlifting and all that kind of stuff i wonder if the franzetta kind of used that as his interpretation rather than that panther like conan that we saw from the stories yeah, i think so i mean if you go into frazetta's background and he was a sportsman himself he was in incredible shape if you look at early pictures of frazetta so i think he just took like his build and exaggerated it he built upon it to sell a greater level of physical strength than you know what had been presented before and you have to also figure that uh howard would have had very little input on the art that was go that was gracing these weird weird tail covers you know he was just submitting the work at i think for like something at a rate of about half a penny a word and at that time you know what other his uh fantasy analogs did we have you know that's that's why I think there's a lot of uh, Roman influence in a lot of the early work because when, at the time that Howard was writing this fantasy as a thing didn't really exist. Well, you had you had John Carter of Mars and and True. whatnot, but 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 at the same time, I, I think 
I think when you hear the term barbarian, that he's Conan the Barbarian, you picture more of a Frazetta Arnold kind of thing than you do a what if Matt Damon were Conan. Because Matt Damon honestly fits the Howard version of Conan a lot more. So that's not as strange as what it might initially have sounded like when I said that. Oh, sure. I agree. And we have to remember, you know, Robert E. Howard, Conan was just one of many creations that he had. And he only did, like, what's the official number? Like 18 published stories and then some fragments, some non-published stories. So when we're talking about the body of work of Conan, we're not talking about a whole lot of stuff. And these are, are some. there's one full-length novel and then some shorter stories and some of these things you know you can read them in an hour or less or 15 minutes just depending on your reading speed but so they go fairly fast and they're written so intensely that some of them demand to be read in a very short amount of time but we don't have a ton of stuff when it comes to conan he he was writing like crazy though i mean conan was one of many creations that we had and we had call the conqueror we had um Red Sonia, Solomon Kane, who the bra- oh god, I'm forgetting uh, Bragon, Brand McMorn. Thank you. So we've got a lot of these other characters as well, and I know that when he kind of did his Conan thing, finished it up, and was done with it after a while, and it was just like you know he's not he w- wasn't one of these writers, and also the the way that the market was at the time, it wasn't like you know hey. Robert, you came up with your one character that you can really milk for the rest of your life. Just the market wasn't like that at the time. You know, he didn't have that kind of feedback and he wasn't, you know, Arthur Conan Doyle sitting down in the, the, you know, in the uh, den writing out his stuff. He was, he was writing to make a living and to be able to do that via weird tales back at the turn of the century, pretty impressive stuff. And he had to write a lot if he was going to actually be able to survive on what he was making from a writer's pay. Also, there's the fact that Conan was not that big of a hit in the Weird Tales original Robert E. Howard era. I mean, yes, he was a hit. The readers really liked it. But And I'm sorry to keep going back to Frazetta, but it's on record that I think it was Del Rey Publishing said – They initially released works of Robert E. Howard in the late 60s and early 70s. They were selling all right. Then they got the first Conan the Barbarian uh, reprint with a brand new first-time Frank Frazetta painting on the cover. They sold like crazy. They said the Frank Frazetta paintings and these covers are what sold Conan to the populace less than the stories did. So you cannot undermine what Frazetta did for the character, if you will. Oh, certainly. His work was pivotal to the success of of the Conan character, and it's probably one of the reasons that when you think of Conan, your thoughts will automatically land on a Frazetta painting. Mine are still intertwined. I imagine that some of our younger listeners, like they probably think Arnold or God help them if they think of Jason Momoa or whatever. But it's, yeah, when I think of Conan, I think of those friends that are paintings. I think of those action scenes. I think of him, you know, crushing this guy's, you know, neck between his legs, these kind of things. So, yeah, it's definitely uh, the two really go hand in hand. I think the two are what helped separate Conan from the pack, separate him from these other characters and really kind of 
make him an indelible part of our pop culture. If you look at other artists that have taken on the duties of portraying Conan, because, you know, there's been, of course, the Marvel comic books, the the Dark Horse comic books, tons and tons of artistic depictions of Conan. A lot of them will reach back to that Frazetta look, that wild black hair, that deep and heavy brow, that it's just something that you associate with Conan now. Mountains of Skulls are a Conan thing. Definitely. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You you can never have too many skulls around the house. A skull is like a condom. I'd rather have one and not need it than need it and not have it, right? Have either of you guys seen The Whole Wide World, which was the film in which we got to see Robert E. Howard being portrayed by uh, Vincent D'Onofrio? Yes, it is currently streaming in its entirety on YouTube, and that is how I watched it. What did you think? I'm of two minds about it. There, for one thing, with Vincent D'Onofrio's or D'Onofrio's, I always mess up his name. His performance oscillates between incredibly engaging and just verging on uh, too over the top. And there are times where the schmaltziness of the storyline, the romantic plot just gets a little insufferable. But to me, there is something somewhat compelling about the character of Robert E. Howard as presented in this story. A man that is so consumed by this imaginary world that he makes for himself, this wellspring that he can draw upon to fuel these incredible stories, but that makes him so incredibly socially maladjusted and incapable of interacting with the with the real world like everybody else. So it's it's definitely a flawed film, but it is somewhat of an interesting film in my opinion. I have not seen this one, but it that sounds like it was a little closer to reality because I, I, I know they didn't have the term back then, but from what I've read about Howard, he was what we would almost call a paranoid schizophrenic, that he seemed to really believe this Conan character was forcing him to write these stories. And so that seems a little bit more in line with arguably being realistic. I walked out of the whole wide world when I saw it back in 1996. They showed it at the Detroit Film Theater around here. And I think I turned off the the DVD right around the same place where I walked out. Because I really like Vincent Tanafrio. I've liked him ever since I first saw him. I mean, Adventures in Babysitting, 13th Floor, uh, Full Metal Jacket, just so many things. I, I've loved every role that this guy has done. But he was just so over the top when he was being Robert E. Howard, this whole thing where he would be speaking in a normal, and then he would start to shout his lines. I'm like, Jesus Christ, man. I I don't want to be around this guy. I don't want to know this guy. I just want to go home. I don't want to be in the theater with this Robert E. Howard character as portrayed in this film. Just get me out of here. And I really I thought, like, okay, all these years later... You know what? I'm nine years later. I'm going to try this again. Same reaction. I just couldn't stand it. So, sex will infest everything: books, radio, newspapers, everything. I might be in the minority on this one because I know it ended up winning all these awards and all this kind of stuff, but I, I couldn't take it, and I just I, I didn't want anything to do with this movie. Some of the stuff that we see on screen is coming right from Noveline Price's memoir. Um, she's the character that uh, Renee Zellweger portrays in this one. Who was still cute at that point, too. She was still very cute at this time. Yes, she was She was kind of adorable. 
And then there's other stuff where it's like, well, maybe this is kind of influenced by because not only did DeCamp, you know, kind of steal uh, Howard's stories and, you know, do what he wanted to with them, but he also had this great smear campaign. He wrote a, a whole biography, uh, Dark Valley Destiny, about, um, about Howard and basically made him out to be a loony. And yeah, so <laughs> made him out to be this terrible, terrible person. And thank goodness DeCamp kind of saved this uh, fiction from Howard and gave us these great stories that he basically just ripped off and rewrote. Anyway, <laughs> um, so yeah, so there are there are other times where it's just like there's this weird sexual tension between D'Onofrio and the woman that plays his mother. And after a while, I just wanted to yell out in the theater, just fuck her already. But... <laughs> That didn't happen. That's not the way they courted back then at that time. No, <laughs> no. There had to be a whole ritual thing around it. So so let's go ahead. We're going to take a break and learn a little bit more about Robert E. Howard from Mark Finn, the author of Blood and Thunder, The Life and Art of Robert E. Howard. And we'll play that right now. How did you get interested in Robert E. Howard? Well, that is a loaded question. Uh, I'll, I'll give you the Cliff's Notes answer. Uh, I was uh, a, a child of the 80s, uh, and uh, Dungeons & Dragons had come into its own in uh, 80, 81. And like every other kid, I was playing the game. Uh, and around the same time that I discovered Dungeons & Dragons was the same year that the Conan movie hit and hit big. And uh, I'd already been reading some of the comics, and so it was sort of a perfect storm of, i got to get this Conan guy and figure out what's going on. So uh, for my 12th birthday, I got a, uh, uh, I asked for Conan paperbacks and got uh, the, the Ace, uh, which is the reprint of The Lancer, I got the Ace Conan the Usurper. So my first uh, exposure to Robert E. Howard was Beyond the Black River, and it's kind of ruined me for Conan ever since. Um, <laughs> uh, because, uh, uh, you know, that's just one of the great ones, uh, probably my favorite Conan story. So. so how do you go from being a fan of Robert E. Howard to writing pretty much the definitive biography of this guy? That was a matter of degrees and necessity. Um, um, I'll tell you what I know. I kind of backed into checking out Robert E. Howard days in 1995. Uh, I, I, I literally went to visit my parents in Brownwood, and uh, they were very surprised to see me and said, we thought you would be in cross planes. And, we said, and I said, why? And, she, and mom said, well, they're doing this thing for Robert E. Howard. And I said, I'll be back for dinner. And so I just drove there and, and checked it out. Uh, so that was my first exposure to this wider world uh, of guys who were doing things for Howard studies. You know, um, that was the first year I met Rusty Burke and a few other people who would later become friends and mentors and and eventually goad me into uh, writing things about Robert E. Howard. Flash forward a few years, I'm at a San Diego uh, Comic Con. I was having a conversation with Mike Mignola, and we were talking about Solomon Kane. He said, if you like Solomon Kane, oh, wait till you see. My friend Gary Gianni's uh, doing – you know who Gary Gianni is? I said, yeah, I know who Gary Gianni is. He goes, he's, 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 he's illustrating Solomon Kane in book form. You know, like the old uh, uh, Donald Grant 
books that were illustrated? I said, yeah. He said, they're doing one for Solomon Cain and Gianni's doing all the illustrations. And I got angry. I'm like, why don't I know this? I'm like, I'm like a Howard collector. I should know this. And so that's when I really got to looking and found out about some of the online groups, found out about Ray Hoopa. Uh, the Robert E. Howard United Press Association, and realized that there was an active discussion going on, and there was a lot of stuff happening that was in this sort of like little closed-off corner of the internet that nobody knew anything about. And so uh, I joined with the intention of, well, now I'll be on the inside track whenever this new stuff hits, and I won't miss anything. And uh, th- and then as soon as I joined, I started trying to get them to open up and say, look, we got to you got to tell more than the 30 people in this group about us. You know, this is important stuff. That eventually led me to saying, you know, there's some things here that you guys are missing. And they're like, yeah, well, we don't see it the way you see it. And I said, why don't I just write it down and show you? And so that's how I started writing papers and and, and uh, actively engaging the other Robert E. Howard uh, fans and scholars and saying, look, here's some stuff you've overlooked. Here's some stuff that you don't know because none of you are from Texas. And and uh, and and so it, it kind of grew from there. Uh, when Chris Robertson uh, was doing Monkey Brain books, he knew that the Robert E. Howard Centennial was coming up because he knows me and I take everybody to cross planes at one point or or another. And he said, "I'd like to do something for the 100th anniversary of Howard. Uh, I want you to put a book together for me." And I said, great. I know all the guys. Well, I'll get, a, I'll get some essays. We'll do a lineup of things. He said, no, 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 no. I want you to write a biography of Howard. And I said, oh, I guess I could do that. <laughs> and, then I, and then I hung up the phone and thought, oh, crap. Now I got to write a book. And so he, he really kind of forced my hand. You know, uh, he said, you know, you're the guy who tells the story with this kind of enthusiasm and makes other people want to read Robert E. Howard. I want you to put that in the book. And so that's how the first edition of Blood and Thunder came about. It was it was literally put together to take advantage of the centennial. It wasn't complete at the time, but it was, I thought, a really good, really complete first draft. And so now that the second edition is out and available, I got to put in more of the things that I wish I'd put in before. And, and it's it's a bigger, meatier, kind of heavier book. And much more in line of everything I wanted to say in the first place, which I'm I'm grateful I got the chance to do that. Now you mentioned your folks mentioning the um, Robert E. Howard days over at Cross Plains. How far away is that from you, or where you grew up at? I well, I was born in Abilene, Texas, and so when I was reading Conan, uh, there were these little introductions in the beginning of the of the paperbacks that I would introductions I would incidentally come to hate as I got older, but it mentioned. That Howard was born in Cross Plains, or not born, but but lived in Cross Plains, Texas, and so I, you know, that was just down the road. That's forty five minutes away, Abilene to Cross Plains, and I thought, well, hell, if he can, if he can do it in Cross Plains, I sure as heck can do it in Abilene. You know, uh, I mean, uh, there it is. And so, kind of to my, uh, it's just kind of worked out that way. You know, I lived in Austin for uh, fifteen years or so, and that's three hours. South of Cross Plains. Now I'm living in Vernon, Texas, which is three hours north of Cross Plains. I've never lived more than three hours away from Cross Plains as long as I've lived in Texas. It's been kind of, it's been weirdly comforting to know I'm never that far away from Howard's, uh, Howard's old stomping grounds. You really kind of emphasize Texas, at least in the beginning of the book, and, and the introduction by Joe Lansdale really kind of puts a fine point on this whole idea of Texas writers or 
I don't want to say writers from Texas because it seems like there's a there's a really big distinction about Texan writers. What was this kind of tradition of writers who were in Texas and embraced Texas? It's a it's a it's a hard thing to kind of uh, describe, and you know, and I've Joe and I've talked about it at length, and other people, uh, Scott Cup. Um, Bill Kreider, Howard Waldrop, uh, uh, Neil Barrett Jr., uh, Brad Denton. Uh, there, there's there's a list of these uh, guys who are uh, who write. I don't want to call it Texas weird, but that's probably close enough to it. And what uh, what the Texas mindset is, is very strange. It's a very accommodating environment to be in. You know, if you want to go be a writer, you can go be a writer. I mean, you're not going to win any points from anybody, but you want to go do that, you can go do that. So you're you're kind of left to your own devices, and no, and, and so as as you're developing your skills and as you're reading what you read, uh, there's nobody that tells you what's good or bad. There's no expectations put on on you as a writer in Texas that you have to write a certain way or a thing, and so all of the stuff that you're into and and uh, uh, Joe's work, I think, is very emblematic of this. You know, uh, uh, y- you can really tell the things that Joe likes in all of his books because they're all in there. But all that stuff goes in at equal value. The comic book you read in back in, when you were nine years old has the same weight in your brain as Moby Dick, and <laughs> and and so culturally, there there there's not a pecking order, and uh, and it creates a kind of um, uh, maybe not a level playing field, but but it's 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 a lot to draw on. There, we don't really have a tradition in Texas of of literature so much as we have a tradition of storytelling, and um, the the currency, the coin of the realm in Texas, still to this day is bullshit. You know, it's tall lying. It's that uh, it's that yarn spinning. You know, uh, that that exaggeration for exaggeration's sake, and so. Um, you, you put that in into the mix as well, and 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 you know maybe a little of the Bible on top of it, and uh, and it's not surprising that you, you see everybody writing what they write about because um, it's it's a it's a it's a kind of a cultural mashup rather than a you know pop cultural reference. Um, we just don't have any filters. And, and I think that's probably what it is. There's, there's nobody around, you know, I've never pitched an idea to any of these guys during any of our, any of our talks over the years where they haven't gone, man, that's great. You ought to do it. <laughs> you know, there's nobody that says, oh, that would never work because of the blibbity blobbity blue. Yeah, no one ever does that. They just like, you know, yeah, you want to put buffaloes in space? Go for it. <laughs> so. Uh, it, it's a, it's a very permissive, uh, uh, culture, uh, to, to write in and to, to kind of be a reader for. And, and Howard is sort of the godfather of that, you know, the way he mashed up Westerns and horror elements to make, you know, horror from the mound and, you know, the, the, the historical setting with the fantastical elements is, is sword and sorcery. You know, he, he really combined this stuff in interesting ways, and 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 a lot of it defies genre categorization. In in, in you know for a, a lot of stuff, uh, everybody in Texas that's a genre reader read that 
And and even if you didn't, even if it didn't stick, even if you read Howard and said, "Yeah, I wasn't a big Conan fan," you still were exposed to it. And uh, and I, and so I think that's where the uh, th- that's where that kind of unique kind of um, it's not a voice, but it's it's like it's like a you're it's like you're it's it, rather than the voice, it's the room in which your voice is being heard. You mentioned uh, Texas Weird, and famously, Howard sold most of his stories, or most people came to his stories through Weird Tales. Can you kind of explain what Weird Tales was and what that relationship was between Howard and the magazine? Sure. Weird Tales was – it's it's one of the most storied and famous of the pulp magazines, and the pulps were uh, a, a type of magazine that was published – uh, from the turn of the century until probably the mid fifties, I think it was sort of the heyday. Um, but Weird Tales was really, uh, big through the twenties and thirties. That was when they're in their sort of renaissance. And, uh, the pulps were published, uh, in every sort of genre. It's very similar to what television is like now with cable channels. Uh, you know, there were aviation pulps, there were Western pulps, there were, Romance pulps, any kind of genre that you wanted to read about, uh, could be found. And these were cheaply made magazines that, uh, usually sold for a dime, sometimes, uh, 15 cents. Big stacked things, you know, uh, 128 pages with, with lots of, uh, punchy stories in them, quickly written by people who were maybe sitting around the office and some folks who had aspirations of, of literature. Like most cheaply produced mass market consumable media, oh, they were they were pretty mediocre. Uh, but there were some diamonds in the rough, that, and and it's where we saw, for example, uh, Raymond Chandler, uh, Dashiell Hammett, Tennessee Williams. Uh, these guys were initially published in the books. Ray Bradbury, uh, a lot of our American authors who 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 made the American voice in the 20th century got their start writing the pulps and weird tales uh was uh, uh was a magazine that catered to story back then weird just meant the strange or unusual sometimes supernatural sometimes the unexplained it was sort of a category um unto itself and and, and in fact weird tales was kind of a catch-all magazine uh they would run classic stories from edgar Allan poe and shakespeare chapters um and then they would publish poetry. So they were, they were, they were really kind of a, they called themselves the unique magazine. And it, and it, it was by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, Farnsworth Wright was the editor and he was a Shakespeare scholar, uh, who, uh, uh, brought his own sort of unique sensibilities to the magazine. Um, Howard was an early reader and a fan. And so were some of his other contemporaries. Uh, it was the magazine that bought his first story. It was a caveman tale called Spear and Fang. And over the years, uh, he and, uh, Robert E. Howard had developed a relationship with the editor Farnsworth Wright. Uh, Wright ended up buying a lot of his stories. Some, and, and frequently there were stories that Howard couldn't sell anywhere else. So it was kind of a go-to market for him. And it, it was the, ma- it was that magazine that originally, um, uh, kind of kept him in 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 money whenever he needed it. Uh, he always knew he could get a sale from from them. Uh, when the when Farnsworth Wright started a companion magazine called Oriental Stories, he knew Robert E. Howard could be counted on to contribute, and so uh, it it opened up his markets. Uh, and of course, 
it's the magazine that published Conan the Barbarian. So all of the Conan stories that we that originally Howard were published in Howard's lifetime came through uh, this with the with the if I don't know if you want to count the fantasy fan and the Frost Giant's daughter. I I won't because uh, Howard changed the names, but what what we think of as the primary Conan stories were originally published in um, in Weird Tales, along with Cull and um, Bran McMorn and Solomon Kane, his other big sword and sorcery characters. Those were, you know, Weird Tales was the home for that, and uh, uh, he got a lot of encouragement from writing from fellow authors H.P. Lovecraft, Clark Ashton Smith, um, August Derleth. These were guys that were writing in the magazine at the same time as Howard. And so uh, I, I would say that it, Weird Tales was really instrumental in him growing as a as an author and a writer, uh, and it really helped him. It was probably the, the most influential magazine in terms of uh, the thing that uh, it, it widened his correspondence, it widened his worldview, you know. Um, it's, uh, it's unfortunate that, uh, it was also probably partially responsible for him not writing any more Conan stories. There were other factors, uh, laden upon that. But, uh, when, when Weird Tales was, was good to Robert, it was very good. You mentioned a lot of Robert's, uh, characters. Why is it that you think of all the things that you've mentioned? I mean, I know they've made a Solomon Kane movie, a Cull movie, which was actually a, a Conan script originally and then changed to a Cull movie. Right. Why Conan? Why of all the characters did that one seem to stick and be so much part of pop culture today? My gut reaction to this is because he's divisive and he's polemic. It, when Conan first appeared, he was divisive. There were there for every letter that was published from somebody in the in the Weird Tales letter column talking about how much they love the new Conan magazine. Give me more Conan. I want to read more of his adventures. There was somebody from somebody else going. I really wish Robert E. Howard would drop this Conan character. He, it's just it's just nothing but gore, gore, gore. I want to go back to the stirring historical dramas like Solomon Kane and Bran McMorn. You know, and you're like, well. <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean, really, it was it was strange that uh, that 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 was sort of a reaction. He's a love or hate kind of character, and uh, I think that's part of it. I think people that get Conan get him right away, get him instantly, and 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 clutch him to their breast. I think people that don't get Conan only make the reaction greater for people that do. <laughs> it's sort of like women in the Three Stooges. You know, if a, if a girl likes the three Jews, the three students, you go, oh, that's pretty cool. But when they go, oh, it's they're just stupid. It doesn't make any sense. How come they're always hitting each other? You go, <laughs> you know, and that's what that's the Conan reaction. Oh, he's just dumb. He, he wears a sword and he, and he runs around. And he chops people's heads off. You go, yeah, isn't that great? <laughs> but there, the, there's more to it than that, and I think part of it is because he got a foothold when he did. In paperbacks with Frazetta, that was right at the time when fantasy was undergoing a renaissance. You know, the uh, uh, Burroughs have been rediscovered, Tolkien have been rediscovered, and now here comes these Frank Frazetta paintings on this on this Conan paperback from Lancer, and here's this long-haired, muscle-bound hippie 
you know, uh, that, that the covers just have their own kind of animated quality to them. Those, those books, as flawed as they are, were lightning in a bottle, you know, and there are people that remember those Conan paintings to this day. Well, right at the time, right on the heels of that comes Marvel comics at their apex. 1970, they were as, people were as brand aware of Marvel comics as they were ever going to be. And, you know, here comes Conan, the, the first non-superhero title, you know, to get the Marvel comics treatment, um, selling well. It was huge. And so, um, I, I think they've just had really good timing for a lot of this stuff, you know. Um, between the Lancers, you know, Lancers go from the 60s to the early 70s. And really, they go up into about the, probably the early 80s if, because after Lancer, they become Ace. The comics, you know, from 70 on to about – from 70 to 77, the comics are, are great and the magazines are great. And, and, and again, that goes up into the 80s as well. All of that fed into Conan, the, the movie. You know, when they were looking into the rights – it was the popularity of the Conan comics and the Conan magazines that they were drawing into. And so when Pressman and the guys started shopping around trying to figure out who to, who to buy the rights from, they didn't realize it was an even larger world on top of it. So, um, you know, and, and with, with the Conan movie, you know, it's right in, at the, in the early 80s, you've got Schwarzenegger – uh, it was this breakout star. I mean, it's, I, I'm trying to think of an equivalent in our world, you know, and I, I, I really, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on somebody that hit the ground and, and, and was like that immediately recognizably iconic in something. Um, probably it doesn't, it's not quite the same because Johnny Depp was, was like very famous before Pirates of the Caribbean. But when Captain Jack Sparrow hit, there was this sort of like, oh, obviously, you know, like everybody was just kind of like, yeah, this is what we've been waiting for. Why didn't you tell us? Well, that was that was how that was Conan and Schwarzenegger. It was like, well, of course he's going to be the barbarian. Why wouldn't he be? You know, th- there was this sort of weird sort of sense of of having already, you know, meeting a demand that we didn't know we'd asked people for. And so, you know, that's where the Conan stuff, you know, because because he's been around for so long and you have all these layers, you have very different inter- people in their heads have a different interpretation of Conan. My Conan is not your Conan. Your Conan is not your best friend's Conan. You know, we and even though we will all go, oh, yeah, the Frazetta paintings were awesome and Barry Wintersmith is a great artist and Jason Momoa was great and, you know, and, and really looked the part. You, my Conan, I'll never see on screen because it's a it's a combination of the things that I liked about all the Conans that came before it, and so that's probably the one of the enduring qualities of something that has that kind of pop culture resonance. You know, um, Batman doesn't reinvent himself so much as he just rediscovers the bits that worked the last time we went through here. James Bond goes through different iterations where they get, they take him back to the books and then slowly move him away from the books and then they take him and then they get a new guy and bring him back to the books and slowly move him away from the books. Um, uh, you know, so too do we get a Conan that's basically layered, uh, like a cake or an onion. Uh, and, uh, each new generation and each new version of Conan you know, strikes a chord of familiarity because in reality it's standing on 
all these other versions of Conan uh, to sort of draw its essential elements from. Before you wrote Blood and Thunder, had you ever written a biography before? No. <laughs> no, I had not. I, uh, I'm a fan of biographies. I read many and liked them. Uh, some of my favorite biographies, some of my favorite, my favorite books are biographies. Um, uh, Flame of Pure Fire, uh, uh, Jack Dempsey, The Roaring Twenties was an influential book in this regard. Um, I'm trying to think. Kenneth Silverman uh, writes really good biographies. Uh, his one on Houdini was great. Uh, oh, um, Jim Steinmeier writes great nonfiction uh, biographies and historical uh, things. Uh, also, um, Carlton Stowers, who who writes true crime novels, is a Texas true crime writer. All of these guys were sort of in the mental hopper uh, of the type of book I knew I wanted to write. And even still, I, th- I don't think I got it 100% right. But I was determined to kind of, you know, look, I, I looked at all the biographies that I'd read over the years that, that stuck with me or that I had gone back and reread or whatever. Uh, and, and I paid attention to the ones that were literary biographies like, uh, uh, Ambrose Bierce alone in bad company and, um, uh, Jim Thompson, Texas tornado. And there were, there were others and, uh, or Texas by the tail. Uh, and I, and I, I kind of built a Frankenstein template of this is how I want the, the book to look. This is how I want it to go. And once I did that and, and had, I, the, the, I was sort of floundering until I figured out that I could tell this story by using, I had these scenes in my head that, that I couldn't justifiably include because they didn't happen. So I just decided to set them apart. And that's where the part one, part two, part three, and part four narrative comes in. And uh, I really wanted to to use that that story idea of the 15-year-old boy walking through the boomtown, and it's Robert E. Howard, and he's got a copy of Adventure tucked in his back pocket. And all of this is sort of based on Howard's letters anyways, but, you know, him getting to the house and you know, he, he's just trying to just trying to avoid the violence and the bloodshed and the gunshots and all that. Uh, and um, the idea of, of saying, you know, he's 15 years old when he discovers adventure. Robert e. Howard at 15, his life is half over. And that was a very yeah, that was one of those reasons. You go, whoa, OK. And so that's that. Was, I knew I knew that's how I wanted the book to sort of open. I wanted that sort of hook right away um, that this didn't happen in a short amount of time. And then I started looking at those 30 years. Well, you know, uh, that's not a long time to research, but then I, I realized that that's cra- a crazy amount of history happened in those 30 years. Texas went from rural to, to urban in 30 years. I mean, that's just, that's just hard to fathom, you know, but it was all based on oil money, you know, and, uh, what, what oil did for the state. I, I've, I've said to everybody, and I, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, it was the hardest book I've ever written. It was the hardest thing I ever had to do. <clears throat> you know, I had to, I had to get right with Howard's suicide. I had to put aside whatever I might have felt about certain things and just like look at what was said, look at what was done, accept the fact that I don't know why he did X, Y, or Z. And no one does, you know? And, uh, and so, you, you know, navigating that, you know, how do I update the narrative that, that people have about Robert E. Howard? How do I refute the things that L. Sprague de Camp wrote without really a basis of fact or, or misinterpreting a quote or a, 
line of dialogue completely and, and extrapolating in the wrong direction. It, it, it created a kind of a punch list for me. It created a sort of a to-do list. And uh, once I got an organized sort of list together and I realized I could, I could hit these points and, 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 and cover most of my bases, then, then, then it, it became just a question of uh, writing the narrative. The structure, putting that together was, was hard. It was fun, but it was very hard. Writing the narrative uh, actually was harder than the structure because when you, when you're writing fiction, I'm t- I typically am about three words ahead of my nose every time I'm writing fiction. If I get in the zone, you know, you get in that space where you're just in front of your fingertips. And uh, that's where you get these wonderful inspirational pieces of dialogue and cool, strange connections. Well, I can't really I can't really riff on Howard that way when I'm when I'm dropping facts in. <laughs> you know, I, and so um I did basically a dry pass where I put in all the information, and then once those once that was done, I went back and and wrote it in my style. I I, I edited it with my with my the way I construct sentences and things like that. So, so it was a process, and 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 the rewrite was even was another process as well. The whole thing was a very you know it it, it took me the with the second edition the the second edition writing as well the whole thing probably took me two and a half years total you know from research to execution to rewrites to re-rewrites to re-editing and execution about two and a half years so uh I, i've lived with this for a while you've mentioned a lot of the characters that he had done and even more than that, he did all of these different types of stories, you know, the boxing stories, his kind of nonfictional stuff, his westerns, all these things. I think it would be pretty amazing to a lot of people when they pick up your book to see that Conan doesn't even enter the picture until way into the story. Yeah. And one of the other pieces of writing that he also did was all of these letters and was that did that kind of open a door for you to have these letters to be able to see how he wrote to different people and what he was writing? Absolutely, you know, it opened a door in that uh, we got a lot of him talking about himself, talking about Texas, talking about other things. But then, you know, Robert um, Robert comes with his own set of caveats. You know, his um, uh, Rusty Burke is often quoted as saying, you know, Robert never let the facts get in the way of a good story. Um, (laughs) And so, you know, if you read some of his accounts of Texas history, they are gripping and awesome and amazing and cool. And they all didn't really happen quite that way. You know, he couldn't really help rewriting some of this stuff. And so you have to allow for the possibility that Howard gilded his own lily when it came to his personal stuff as well. You really can't take any of it at face value. I think if you use it generally to inform, or if you're looking for some specific things, particularly as they relate to the stories that he was writing, there's there, there are a wealth of information. You can't always use them to say, this is what Howard thought about X or Y, because we have him talking to Lovecraft about one thing, and then uh, we're talking to uh, Clark Ashton Smith about one thing, and then you have him talking to Novel and Price about the same thing, and he and he absolutely contradicts himself. Robert wrote this to these guys, and then he said this to Novel and Price. 
who's right? <laughs> you know, if you want to know how Robert felt about civilization, if you want to know how he felt about boom towns, if you want to know how he felt about politics, uh, these things are in the letters, you know, um, comments about movies, uh, books that he's read, stories that he's written, uh, poetry, philosophy, you know, the, the, the letters are really instrumental for a lot of that. And, uh, getting to read all of them. And I actually, I didn't read all of them. They found some more in the meantime, but, uh, getting to read the vast majority of them at the time was instrumental. And it was something that DeCamp didn't really have access to. Not a lot. He didn't have, uh, you know, and I think, I think it would have changed maybe some of the things that he said or thought about Howard. I hope it would have. So I, I felt obligated to use those things. E- e- flawed as they are, they're, they are considered a primary source and definitely are, you know, a place where if you're going to really want to l- get a feel for Robert Howard, you have to at least read the, the Howard Lovecraft letters. Those are, those are super important. They, they impact directly, uh, with the Conan stories. And so if you are, if you are interested in what kind of, philosophical underpinnings of Conan are you got to look to the barbarism versus civilization debate. Cause it's all in there. Uh, it's like, he's having this argument with Lovecraft and in between having the argument with Lovecraft and, and getting travelogue updates and postcards, he's writing these stories where he's basically proving as a story in print, his arguments. Uh, and, and it's fascinating when you start lining up, when he writes certain Conan stories with what's going on in the, in the letter, in the letters at the time, it's like, hmm, this is, this is very telling, you know, while you were doing your research, what was the one thing that just stopped you in your tracks? Did there, was there any point where you're like, I never knew this and this completely changes things. Probably the thing that was most like that was reading the cross planes newspaper from that time period and seeing the activity in the town. It really gave you a picture of what's going on. Um, it really gave you a, a, a picture of of what the town was like, reading the obituaries, the number of people that died, the number of people that committed suicide. Very interesting. The development of the town, the wells coming in. You know, there was a lot of that kind of stuff that was really, really interesting that really helped connect – Howard's disliking of civilization and boom towns and things like that with, with, with that. Um, the thing that, that for me, my, the, the thing that I'm proudest I was able to find, and it was literally kind of, uh, I suspected there was something like this out there, but I didn't really know. And, uh, so I was able to, when I, when I tracked it down, it was like finding the Rosetta stone, you know, uh, and that was Modi Boatwright's article on tall lying. Uh, Boatwright was a Texas historian who wrote a lot of, uh, books about, um, stories that people would tell on the ranches. And he even wrote a story. He even wrote a couple of books that talk about the transition from the ranch hands going to work in the oil fields. And the, st- the same story would change. And instead of being a ranch based story, it'd be about guys working on an oil well or a sputter. So the folklore was the same. It was just that the job titles were different. Really interesting. But he wrote this article on the art of tall lying, uh, and, and wherein he outlined the tenets of what constitutes a tall lie. This is how, this is how, basically, this is how Texans bullshit was sort of what the article was. 
And I'm reading this and I'm thinking, yep, that's Howard. Yep, that's Howard. Yep, that's Howard. Oh my God. <laughs> this, you know, there, it was all there, you know, it, and not just in the humor stories, but in all this other stuff too, you know, uh, the way that he puts descriptions down in his serious things. If you read the way Boatwright talks about how the setup, you know, the, the description is merely the sketch. It's the outline. It's just enough to give you the bare bones. That's what Howard does. He gives you the bare bones. Now he does it colorfully so that when, you know, so that when you close your eyes, you, you imagine what the, what the planes look like that these guys are riding across. But he never really tells you it's green grassland or that it's red clay or whatever. You, you get to put that in on your own. Yeah. Finding the boat right article on tall lying was the thing that really allowed me to sort of authoritatively say, you can't say he wasn't a Texas writer and you can't say he wasn't writing in the Texas tall tale tradition because here's the thing that the guy that studied this for 20 years wrote about it. And if you read it, it reads like Robert E. Howard stuff. What were some of the misconceptions about Howard that you tried to put to bed with your book? The Oedipal complex with mom was, was probably the, one of the two big ones. Um, DeCamp floated this idea that uh, because of how the narrative is, you know, when Howard learned that his mother wasn't going to wake up, he went out to his house and, or he went out to his car and, and killed himself. That, that got turned into, you know, upon hearing that his mother with whom he was excessively and, and perhaps unnaturally devoted to his beloved mother with around whom he and, you know, the, 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 it got more dramatic and more flowery and more florid. And, and there was so much implied, oh, he couldn't bear the thought of, of living without his beloved mother. I, there was just something about that that, I don't know, it just didn't, it didn't work for me. We know that there were a lot of other pressures. There were a lot of other things going on at the time. Uh, or a lot of other um, economic forces in play. Uh, he'd been under a lot of stress, uh, and, and of course, you know, he was his mom's primary caregiver, and this was not unusual. And that's something else that DeCamp sort of tisk tisked about. Well, you know, I can't believe that he, you know, stayed, you know, wanted to stay home. It wasn't that he wanted to. They just, you know, Howard was under the impression that they didn't have any money. Whether they did or didn't, really, we don't really know. But that's just what people do for their families. When when the parents get too sick, you move them in with you or you come down to take care of them. It wasn't that strange, at least not in Texas. And and DeCamp was making it sound as if this is what Martians do. The other thing that uh, DeCamp had a problem with was why, you know, if he killed himself at the age of 30 and cut short a promising literary career, uh, you'd have to be crazy to do that. So let's go look for all the things that we could find that make him seem crazy, and let's write the story like that. Again, DeCamp tisk tisks that there's guns in the house in Texas in the 1920s. I'm sorry, but <laughs> it would have been weirder if there wasn't a gun in the house. And so um, there was a lot of stuff that DeCamp just assumed was was strange and unusual behavior. And yet a lot of the stuff when I was reading, even DeCamp's biography at the time, I was thinking, why is he, why is he making a point about the guns in the house? My, my dad had guns in the house. You know, my dad still has guns in the house. There, you know, in Texas, that's not an uncommon thing. It never has been. 
But uh, he sort of made a point about it as if to say, well, if there hadn't been a gun in the house, Robert wouldn't have killed himself, to which I say, yeah, uh, try again, you know. So that was a lot of the uh, things I wanted to redress. You know, DeCamp uh, made a lot of assumptions, just a ton of them. They were based on his point of view rather than looking at actual information. No writer from DeCamp forward had ever made an effort to look at Howard's environment and see what was going on. One of the big mistakes that DeCamp makes in his bio- in, in his biography is he makes a mention of the fact that Robert didn't start school until he was eight. Immediately, he invents uh, a scenario wherein Howard's mom is holding him back and keeping him out of school for fear of him being bullied because he's frail and skinny and weak. And and first of all, there was no evidence of him being frail and skinny and weak. And and then second of all, if he'd looked into what the school requirements were in that area, he would have sh- he would have seen that pe- that the kids didn't start school until they were eight. Nobody went to school until they were eight. It wasn't a big deal. It was just the way of it. But DeCamp had to invent a reason for why this was strange because well, of course, he was in school much earlier. Uh, yeah, in the in the northeast you would have been. So that was the stuff that really just kind of made me nuts. Just flat out. And he didn't really like Texas very much and made it kind of obvious, even, which, which is weird because he ended up living here. And I don't know why that was. But when they were writing the book, you know, DeCamp would come, you know, they went to, they came, they showed up in cross planes. DeCamp's wearing uh, a Navy blazer, you know, he's got an ascot. Horn rim glasses, a cane, leather shoes, uh, white slacks, looking for all the world like like uh, Thurston Howell with a goatee and a Van Dyke, and uh, he's walking up on those steps. Good morning, my name is El Sprague de Camp. No one's going to talk to him. <laughs> you know, I mean, in the 1970s, he's dealing with old people from Cross Plains. They're, they took one look at him and shut the door. You know. Uh, get off my porch, Yankee. It just would have been nuts, you know. And so he literally got a co-writer to help him, a woman from Eastland named Jane Whittington Griffin. And she was from Texas. And so she was the one who actually got the doors open for them and, and got people to talk to them. Because she'd walk up in a big flowery dress and go, hi, y'all. How are y'all doing? We're doing good. How are you? Oh, good, good. You know, and then the, then the ice is broken now. You know, and then let these weird little Yankees into their home and, and ask them questions about what they remembered of Robert E. Howard when, when they were back when they were 10 years old. So it, it, the whole thing was agenda driven. You know, DeCamp wrote the book he wanted to write and he was he didn't really care about setting the record straight. He didn't really care about uh, any kind of historical archive. He didn't really care about getting the facts right. He had a narrative. He had an idea. And it was one that granted. It should be noted he'd been pushing since the 1950s when he first wrote his first essay on Robert E. Howard. And so it was sort of his final word on Howard. Like, this is everything I've learned about Robert E. Howard and everything I'm going to know about Robert E. Howard. And he didn't really, you know, he didn't really assimilate anything else new after that. Not really. Um, he just dined out on the reputation of Blood and Thunder, or no, of, of, of Dark Valley Destiny. So my book was intentionally. You know, I I picked up everything of his that I didn't like, and 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 basically refuted it. And I'm really glad I did. DeCamp wasn't just an essayist, and he didn't wasn't just a biographer. 
he was involved a lot with the Howard works as well. How did he kind of get involved with this and how does the camp kind of impact what we know of Howard? I'm going to keep it brief because you, you've basically asked me, uh, uh, the Gordian knot question, you know, in essence, the camp was hired, uh, initially to finish some unfinished, uh, stories and, make an editorial pass over some Conan stories for publication. And what he mainly did was he took some stories that were not Conan stories and reasoned, as he said, basically all Howard characters are cut from the same cloth. So he literally took the guns out and added swords. He changed the word Egypt into Shem. And so he created Conan stories out of unsold stories featuring other characters you know initially he was set up as an editor and a packager and eventually became sort of the steward of the line you know his his assertion was that he edited enough of the material and added enough of his own material to the stories that he could claim a co-writer credit and a co-copywriter and a copywriting credit for it an editing credit and so he had a number of those stories with his, you know, Robert E. Howard and Elspray de Camp, uh, byline, uh, copyrighted in that fashion. Now that he had product, he was basically looking for places to sell it. And that's how he became involved with trying to take the, the, the Conan stories and, and make, make a, a, a saga out of them, a 12 book saga that he would sell to the Lancers eventually and then, uh, turn into, the paperback Conan series that everybody read in the 1960s and 70s. Um, there's a lot more to it than that. But essentially, he he sort of became, as I said, this sort of de facto steward of Conan. Uh, even as Glenn Lord, as the literary agent, was making deals to get all of the other Howard stuff into print, DeCamp and he f- formed initially an uneasy truce and then eventually a kind of a uh, a rivalry over, you know, the the Conan stories. You know, I'll I'll take care of Conan. You take care of everything else. That that sort of deal. And so that was the that was the setup for years. Part of what how part of what DeCamp did in in introducing these stories to other people and in, in the in the Lancer line is he wrote these introductions, wherein he talked about what sword and sorcery is and who Howard was and what I've done for these stories in the service of, of bringing them to you. And this is where you started getting this bot, these biographical comments from the camp, these editorializations, the thing that uh, the phrase that he used on more than one occasion uh, to describe Howard was that he was maladjusted to the point of psychosis. I guarantee you if Howard had been alive he would have punched DeCamp in the nose. You know, you know, maladjusted to the point of psychosis is, is a, is a horrible thing to say about anybody that you profess to like. But that was DeCamp. And I don't know why he thought it was okay to promote Conan and at the same time sort of downplay Howard. I won't go into why there, there's, there's a number of reasons. That the speculatory in regarding why DeCamp did this. Uh, it's enough that he did it. And he did it so frequently that for a lot of people, the only thing they know about Robert E. Howard is the introductory essays that they read in their Conan 
books back in the 70s, and they haven't looked at anything since. And so I still run into old-timers who will say something about Robert E. Howard and then go, well, you know, that's what you get for wearing a dress. And I'll go, what? Oh, yeah, Howard wore a dress when he wrote. I'm thinking, you're thinking that's on a show. No, no, no. It was on the Conan uh, tape, uh, on the, on the, on the notes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, John Millius wrote, said all kinds of stuff about this. I'm like, yeah, none of it's true. You know, and it's, and, and, and they look at you like, well, why would he say it if it wasn't true? It's because he was the same way. Millius never let the facts get in the way of a good story. And Millius, heard the camp's blarney like a line of telephone and just got it all wrong. So there's just been, you know, people have played fast and loose with Howard's biography for, for decades. And uh, I hope we're, we're at the point now, we're kind of at the point where people have just kind of stopped. They've stopped saying the things that they don't know, which is great. You know, if you don't know, it's okay to say, I don't know. If there's nothing in the historical record. It's okay to say, we're not really sure why I did this. But, you know, when you're, when you're, even when you're doing a puff piece, it's probably a good idea just to stick to the facts. And the, and and Howard's record speaks for himself. His characters speak for themselves. The the stuff he wrote and the way he wrote it speaks for itself. You don't need to gild Howard's lily. In a professional career that spanned 12 years, uh, he wrote over 300 stories and over 900 poems, created uh, new genres and invented characters that have been around for 75 years or more to this day. That's a legacy that anybody would be proud of having uh, with a lifetime achievement. You know, you don't really need to – you don't have to sell Howard past the point of like, yeah, in the 1930s, he's the guy that created Conan in Texas. And most people hear that and flip out. Nobody cares about maladjusted to the point of psychosis because he wasn't in the first place. But, but I mean, even still, you know, that, that's just not a point anymore. So thankfully, most of the DeCamp stuff is is slowly – factoring out and going away and it's just taken a lot of just repeated effort to to get that done but if i'm proud of anything i'm proudest of of that that decamp's characterization is is on the wane you know which is nice you know you mentioned maladjusted to the point of psychosis and looking at the way that howard has been portrayed not just in the the decamp stuff but actually in the media seeing him portrayed on film i would have to say that whole maladjusted to the point of psychosis might actually fit with the description of vincent tonafrio's performance in the whole <laughs> wide world would you agree or disagree with that i think that um he definitely played him as a tortured genius I try very, when I watch that movie, I try to focus on all the scenes where he's acting with Novelin. Anytime Howard and Novelin are in the room together in that movie, that's all based on stuff that she wrote, her, her, her journals and her diaries. And, and those are the conversations that they had, which I love. Uh, anytime he's by himself, right, or with his mom, that's a conjectural scene that the writers put in there based on the information that they had at the time. And it wasn't necessarily bad information. Uh, I have no doubt that in his frustration, he probably did grab a sword and go running through the fields. We got pictures of him with swords and guns, and I'm sure he blew off steam like that. Maybe not right after a conversation with Novelin. It's hard to know, you know. Uh, so I try to, you know, even even though those those scenes are a little heavy-handed, I think within the context of the story, it works pretty well. And I still think that it's that, that that's a really wonderful introduction to Howard 
just in terms of seeing this guy kind of cope with a, you know, he he got dealt a, a bad hand. You know, he, he, he the primary caregiver for his mom, who, who's got a wasting disease, you know, tuberculosis, which has been around for a while. And, you know, he's writing to escape and he's writing to make a living and he's doing what he can, but he's kind of trapped in this set of circumstances. And so, um, you know, he wasn't able to really articulate to Novelin what he needed from her. And she wasn't ever really to articulate to him what, what she needed from him. And it was a really, it was a star crossed relationship. I like the movie a lot. I, I really do. And I think it's a, a, a great, uh, intro, as I said, but, um, I always let people know, you know, anytime you see Howard on screen by himself, that's probably not what really happened, <laughs> you know? So that, that's my, that's my only caveat for that. Other than the whole wide world, has he ever been portrayed on TV or movies that you know of either as actual Robert E. Howard or as like kind of a thinly veiled approximation? Not to my knowledge, no. Um, obviously, he's made a lot of book appearances in short stories and novels, but never in, never in any uh, other TV or movie type of uh, setup. Yeah. It'd be nice. I'd like to see it. I may have to do one. Now, the second edition of Blood and Thunder, you said that you went back and you added just an absolute ton of stuff. So if people are out there looking for the book, just focus on that second edition. Not to say don't pick up the first one, but... You, you can't miss the second edition. Uh, it's uh, It's got the photo cover on the front. It's actually... Uh, Amazon's got it. Uh, you can you can buy it from Amazon. Uh, just do a search for Mark Finn Blood and Thunder and it'll pop right up. It's currently being published by the Robert E. Howard Foundation Press, which I'm very grateful for. And so uh, the nice thing is it's going to be around for a while. I'm, 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 I like that a lot. So, uh, yeah, and, and if you've got the first edition, there are, there is enough in the second edition. Uh, for example, I added 10,000 words to the Conan chapter. Conan got a real uh, shot in the arm in the second edition. and Because and, a lot of people were like, I really liked what you'd written, but uh, you didn't write a lot about Conan. And, of course, my point was – that's because everybody's written about Conan. You don't need to know what I think about Conan. You need to know what I need you to know about uh, Sailor Steve Costigan. And they all went, yeah, but – and so be careful what you wish for, uh, fans of the world. Uh, I, you now have a Conan chapter, and it may not be the Conan chapter you want. <laughs> <laughs> Where is the best place for people to kind of keep up with you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Finn's Wake. I uh, post whenever I have a new book or a new um, thing out. I've also got a blog that I write, uh, try to write weekly on, uh, called Mark the Aging Hipster at blogspot.com. It's also, uh, if you just do a Google search for Finn's Wake, it'll pop up. You can hit me up on Facebook, but you gotta, you gotta tell me, hey, I'm a fan of Robert E. Howard. Uh, otherwise I won't friend you because, uh, I use my Facebook mostly just for friends and family, but but I make an exception for Robert E. Howard fans. So if if uh, anybody's on Facebook and wants to friend me, uh, you can. Uh, I've actually got a Mark Finn page, uh, Finn's Wake page as well.
All right, we're back. Thanks to Mr. Finn for taking the time to talk to us. Josh, you said that when you first got into Conan, you got into him through the comic books. Is that right? Yeah, I, I before I read any of the stories, saw the movie or anything, my dad would was buying me Conan comic books because Marvel Comics had the rights to, to the character since the, I think, mid-70s or so. And Conan was such a popular character. I know this is going to seem weird to especially younger readers but or younger listeners. There was a time when Marvel Comics was doing so poorly between 1977 and 1979. There were two comic books that kept the company afloat, Star Wars and Conan the Barbarian. Those were the only comics selling worth a damn for Marvel at that point, both licensed titles. Conan was being bought by people who would not read Spider-Man, who would not read Captain America, who would not read the X-Men. They were reading Conan. Conan was being read in colleges and auto garages. Those Marvel comics were fantastic, and they were more based off of the Frazetta version that we were talking about more than the Robert E. Howard version. This is the big, long, black hair, big, muscled, but he was kind of the Robert E. Howard version as well because he was smart and a strategist, and he was not this monosyllabic barbarian that all of the parodies would make him out to be. So I read Conan like crazy. Thankfully, my stepfather had a rather extensive collection of comic books, which encapsulated pretty much everything the DC and Marvel printed from anywhere between 1969 all the way up through the early 90s. So I read a lot of Conan, both in the regular size issues that they were putting out and the huge oversized magazine formats. And there was something very, very compelling about him, this just barbarian tale that almost seemed to run darker than anything else that Marvel was putting out at the time. You know, we're not talking about huge amounts of gore or or nudity in that, at least not in the regular size ones. They were allowed a little bit more leeway in the uh, magazine format to tell they got around the comic code. What's that? Uh, Savage Sword of Conan was being magazine sized. Yeah, they they didn't have to abide by the comic code. So, and those were in black and white, and you can get away with more in black and white than you can in color. Indeed. So when you're coming into it as a ten year old, that sort of thing has a lot of appeal. It wasn't just one Conan title. We had multiple Conan titles happening at the same time. Yes, there was Conan the Barbarian, which was comic book sized color, and you you know buy it at the drugstore. Then you had Savage Sword of Conan, which was the magazine sized one, which was more of a specialty shop or a bookstore kind of thing. Then you, later on, you had King Conan, which was more of a set in the future as Conan is now, now the king, and you know he's kind of been realized his dream. And then you had Conan Saga, which was magazine sized black and white reprints of the color comic book issues. So you had all of these being printed at arguably the same time. And that's not, that's not even counting the multiple appearances Conan made in the What If line of comic. I showed this to Mike White last night. At one point, he got transported to Contemporary Times, 1982, and he became a pimp, yo! And he a went p- all Scarface and became a drug dealer and a, and, a, and, and a pimp, and it was fantastic. He fought Wolverine once, too. Yeah, it was What If uh, Conan Met Wolverine. I always loved that, that book, but it doesn't have the, quite the same appeal as uh, Pimp Conan with his leopard pet. Kind of makes sense that there's uh, multiple appearances as, of Conan in these What Ifs, because I think Roy Thomas was the creator of What If, and then he was also the guy who championed and really got 
Conan out there as this comic title. And the reason why I'm bringing up the, the comics is because there's just such a direct correlation. I mean, we have the stories being written in the, what, the 1930s, and then we don't have a whole lot. We've got the, the, the camp kind of uh, seizure of Conan for a long time after that. And it isn't until the 70s where the late 60s, early 70s, where we get this resurgence of Conan, helped by those Franzetta reprints, the paintings and everything, and then kind of going into the comic books and all this. And just that's really, for me, what helps spark the film. And there's a real clear uh, connection between all of that stuff. So let's take another break. I'm going to play the first part of an interview with Roy Thomas, who is the author of these Conan comic books. How did you get involved with the Conan comics? The basic thing, uh, as I've mentioned many times before, is that uh, our readers were, Marvel's readers were writing it during this period, the late 60s and thereabouts, to, uh, and asking us, imploring us, uh, pushing us really to uh, adapt some of the things that were then becoming popular in paperback books and the like, as opposed to just doing endless superheroes. There were a lot of people saying that we should be doing, uh, because some of those things that were, popular at the time were the, the Tolkien uh, books had been published only recently in America. The over In the 60s, the Edgar Rice Burroughs works had been brought back from obscurity and were selling very well. The Conan and then related sword and sorcery or imitative sword and sorcery materials and the other Robert E. Howard material of that kind was doing well, as well as uh, other things influenced by it, other sword and sorcery heroes, including Elric and the like. Uh, and also the Doc Savage novels. That, that these were all things that, uh, and related things of that sort. Uh, these were all areas where the where we were getting a lot of letters saying that we should look into doing those things. And we did look into them all, and over the next few years did end up doing every one of them except the uh, the Tolkien material, which they could not get. So it was really the fans writing in that led Stan to decide uh, that we should do a, a sword and sorcery book of some sort, and for some reason he felt uh, that rather than make up a character, that maybe because this is the kind of thing that the readers were asking uh, in this case, uh, they weren't just after sword and sorcery. They said, why don't you do some of these characters, you know, Conan or one of the others that's out there in the books? Why don't you do Doc Savage? Why don't you do Tarzan and John Carter of Mars, that kind of thing? So he had me write a memo to publisher Martin Goodman uh, Martin didn't own the, co- the company any longer, but he was still the, the publisher, as to why we should get a little budget to license a character, a sword and sorcery character of that type. Uh, not necessarily Conan, it was just a sword and sorcery character, but it was a, a thing to license one, not to create a new one. And I wrote up a two or three page memo to that effect and forwarded it to Martin Goodman. And uh, he really liked the reasoning behind it, uh, that it would have an appeal to our readership, et cetera, because of the heroic aspects, uh, the good-looking women, the monsters, the wizards, et cetera. So he okayed our going after some character and offering a small sum of money to be able to put that character into comics. Now, when it comes to Conan, I mean, Howard only wrote so many Conan stories, how beholden were you to follow his storyline uh, as opposed to kind of creating your own stories to kind of fill in some of those gaps that were between Well, not at all, wrote. because originally the, the original contract did not give us the right to adapt any Conan stories or any Robert E. Howard stories. We were to 
do the Conan comic, but we didn't have the right to use any of his material in terms of adapting any stories. I worked that out a little later. Once we had the contract at hand, I then worked with uh, Gled Lord, the uh, agent for the estate with whom I had uh, helped Marvel. I had arranged for Marvel to make the deal to get the right first to adapt some non-Conan Robert E. Howard stories into Conan stories. Uh, that's what we did first with at least one of them, even though it wasn't published uh, as early. It, it, that was the one that was done first. Uh, and then uh, right after that, since that seemed to be working out well, I got Glenn to give us permission one at a time. We had to go to you know to, uh, to each story, any story we wanted to adapt. We had to go to him sort of in, on an individual basis and to um, get the rights to pay a small additional sum and to then adapt that story. And that's what we did within just a few issues, but it was not in the original Conan contract at all. I know that the popularity of the Conan comic really helped lead to the Conan film. What was your involvement with the Conan film? Well, indirectly, of course, it is true that the comics had a lot to do with the movie being made at the time. It was the more so because the books were almost were virtually out of print at, during that period of the uh, late 70s and early 80s. And we were just about going to come back and print around the time the movie would come out, I think. But uh, basically, uh, the company, Lancer Books, that had uh, published the Conan books, had gone into Chapter 11 bankruptcy. It had done very well with Conan, but it had other problems, I guess. And... Uh, the Conan and other things that didn't pull them out of that. So when they went under, all of a sudden, you know, uh, there weren't any more Conan books coming out. And that didn't help the uh, prospects for there being a movie, but the fact that Conan the Barbarian was a very successful comic, and by that time there was also the Savage Sword of Conan as a successful black-and-white comic magazine, led the movies to... Uh, the movie to eventually be made. It, uh, obviously, the thing really at the bottom of it all is Robert E. Howard and his character, but it is true that the movies uh, were very much made possible at that particular time by the success of the comics. And uh, my own involvement was uh, I had co-written a treatment for the uh, for the movie uh, for producer Ed Pressman, the person who put together the the organization that was going to do the movies. It's a little convoluted to, to say briefly. The basic thing is the various parties controlled various rights in Conan stories at that time. You know, one was the, the actual estate of Robert E. Howard that was, that was in the hands of the literary agent, Robert, uh, Glenn Lord of Texas. But at the same time, uh, the science fiction and fantasy writer L. Sprague Camp and a couple of other people under him, like Lynn Carter, they were writing new stories of Conan and putting them in the paperback books along with the Robert E. Howard stories, uh, either writing their own stories or changing some of Howard's stories into Conan stories with a, with a, a little bit of word changing and a, and a few additional uh, supernatural elements being added. These two different factions were really not on speaking terms at the time. So uh, they, they just they didn't like each other at all. They had And they had contrary views on how to split the money and how things should be handled, et cetera, et cetera. So when uh, Ed Pressman, the uh, movie producer, became convinced that that uh, the Conan movies would make a that a Conan movie would make a good vehicle uh, that he want that he wanted to star Arnold Schwarzenegger in, and having become interested in Schwarzenegger from seeing him in a movie or, or two that he made at the very beginning of his movie career, he it, he Pressman got the various parties together 
the feuding parties and convince them that, that for their, their own good, they should uh, form a group called Conan Properties, uh, which they truly did, which was operated by a person who was sort of neutral, you know, representing neither side. And once Conan Properties was, uh, was created, that made the movie possible. Conan Properties began to be farmed uh, when, after a phone call made actually uh, one night from my apartment, my friend Ed Summer, who operated the Super Snipe comic book store just a few blocks away from me in, on the east side of Manhattan, Upper East Side of Manhattan, Ed Summer was the guy who had convinced Ed Pressman that if he was looking for a vehicle for Schwarzenegger, that Conan would be a perfect one. Pressman was totally unaware of Conan as a comic book or a a series of paperbacks or anything else until uh, Summer made him aware of that. And then Summer came to me and, and asked me, well, you know, how do we get these people together? And I said, well, the first thing you ought to do is talk to, uh, you know, Glenn Lord, and then uh, if that works out, maybe you can talk to others and maybe you can get them together in some way. So I, I made a phone call to Glenn Lord, the literary agent down in Texas, uh, with Ed Summer right there, and then I turned the phone over to Ed, and Ed talked to him, and just began to set in motion the uh, the various consultations and discussions that eventually led to there being Conan Properties, and Conan Properties, in turn, made possible uh, the Conan movie. Ed and I, at one stage, was Ed Summer and I uh, were working on a, uh, an outline for the Conan movie, but uh, that just wasn't going to happen, and uh, uh, eventually I was hired because of my comics experience of, of adapting Conan, et cetera, I was hired to be a uh, consultant on the movie. Story consultant was the official term. And I, I was paid a small, you know, five-figure sum to give uh, advice to uh, John Milius when he was hired to be the writer and director of the film. And I did that just, you know, a day or so was really all that I ended up doing. And uh, that was the end of my involvement with the first movie. I didn't have anything in my contract that guaranteed me movie credit or screen credit, so I didn't get it. And eventually, though, I sort of stumbled into being offered a chance to uh, write with my partner, Jerry Conway, the second Conan movie. And that, of course, we, we took up and, and did write the first several drafts of the second Conan movie and received, received screen credit for the uh, story of the, uh, the second movie. John Milius has famously said that he really knew nothing about Conan when he came in to the project. Were you kind of that guy, the guy that, who taught him about Conan? At the beginning, just in a day or so, you know, we talked and, and I told him about it and, and so forth. But then right after that, he began to read a few of the stories. And once he read a few of them, then he was convinced he knew enough. And, and then I never heard from him again. <laughs> so I did get him started on it. But uh, in the end, he educated himself about it. Uh, my own feeling is that he didn't necessarily understand Conan as well as he thought he did, or else I would have liked the, uh, his movie better. But uh, the fact remains that there were a lot of things that were good about the movie, even if I, there were a lot of other things that I don't think are uh, were right. I, I just I felt that so many details in the uh, first movie were wrong and just wrong-headed, you know, like like having Conan uh, be a slave for a long time, and one who was back, practically had to be driven away, driven out of slavery by his master, according to the uh, early part of the film. And I just found that totally repugnant. And even other things that were you know, nice visuals, like that wheel of pain or whatever it was at the beginning, they, they really had nothing to do with, uh, with Conan. You know, uh, the, the origin, and, uh, I suppose, of coming up with an origin for Conan of being, of having his tribe slaughtered him, sold him to slavery, while not very original, I guess that made some sense. It wasn't part of the actual coded myth, but if you needed an origin, that made as much sense as any. 
But after that, there was a lot of stuff that was just junk. Then the story itself isn't that bad at the end, the story with Balsa Doom and that, that sort of thing. That, that's basically okay, even if it's perhaps a little static, because it, once you get to that mountain of power thing, uh, the story just you know, never moves again. What was your original outline like for the film? I don't remember it offhand without looking over it. It was a combination of a lot of different elements that were uh, t- that we were that we took from uh, different stories. There were there were pieces from Rogues in the House, probably throwing the girl in the cesspool and Conan being captured and so forth. Uh, I, I remember there was a, a great wizard, whether it was Thalfa Doom or not. I don't remember. He was the major uh, villain uh, and so forth and. Uh, I, I don't really remember that much about it. I've, I've got a copy of it. It was, I don't know, 30, 40 pages long, I guess. And Ed and I, you know, worked on it together. Uh, Ed educated him. Ed Summer, he educated himself about Conan, and uh, we worked on it together. And it was okay. We were paid uh, some, uh, you know, a, a sort of a pittance for it, and then it was sort of put on the shelf and forgotten because we didn't have any name as, uh, you know, as screenwriters. I accepted that. I'd never. I'd always thought it was rather a long shot that we would get to work on the movie anyway. What did you think of the Oliver Stone draft of the script? It had very little to do with Conan. It was it was, it was a nice big movie. Uh, again, I don't remember the details too much. I read at the time. Obviously, it was a huge movie and was going to be way too long and way too expensive to be made. But you know, some of the some of the things that offended me were little things like like his, he was seeming like naming all his characters after. Uh, I don't know, Norse or Greek gods or something, you know, uh, uh, trying to give some kind of cachet to them. It had a nice feel to it in certain ways. I I just don't remember the details because I haven't read it for 10 or 20 years at least. Before we get back into it, I want to kind of keep the ball rolling here and play back the interview with Ed Pressman, who is the executive producer of Conan the Barbarian. And we're also going to play an interview with Paul Salmon, who's the author of Conan the Phenomenon. And then we'll be back after these important messages. For you, the listeners of the Projection Booth podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a 30-day free trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. You can download The Blood Crown of Conan by Robert E. Howard or another book of your choice for free by trying audible.com and it's yours to keep even if you cancel your subscription. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com forward slash projection booth. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash projection booth for your free audiobook. One dark and stormy night in the mid-80s, Joe Bob Briggs, Harlan Ellison, and the ghost of El Santo pulled a train on Elvira while Siskel and Ebert sobbingly masturbated in the corner. From that union arose the greatest movie critic and luchador that ever lived. But we're not going to talk about him. He's kind of a dick. Instead, we're going to talk about me, El Goro, the stuttering movie fan and host of the Talk Without Rhythm podcast. Every week on Talk Without Rhythm, I discuss two to three movies tangentially tied together by a theme. I cover action. And the most complete fighter in the world. Sci-fi. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Horror. Oh, no tears, please. 
that's a waste of good suffering. And the continuing adventures of James Spader, sexual deviant. You're not worried that I'm going to fuck you, are you? I'm not interested in that, and I'm waste. Now pull up your skirt. So check me out at TWORpodcast.blogspot.com, drunkenzombie.com, or subscribe on iTunes. Talk Without Rhythm, the only podcast that will not attract the world. Adios! Faye Ray. <coughs> Janet Lee. Adrian King. Heather Langenkamp. Amy Steele. That weatherman who saw the cockroach. Oh my god! Oh my god! Jamie Lee Curtis. And you. Come on. You know you wanna. Let her rip. There. Now don't you feel better? You are now officially a Scream Queen. Come play with the rest of us at www.screamqueens.com. That's Queens with a Z. Or you could subscribe to us on iTunes. Either way, it's gonna be fucking fabulous. The Scream Queens Horror Podcast. It's where horror gets bent. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. How did the project come to you? Uh, Originally, I was invited to a screening, a rough cut of Pumping Iron by, there were two directors, if you look up Pumping Iron, George, brother. so George, George was a friend and he asked uh, me to take a look at a rough cut of Pumping Iron and so I went to the screening and you know, there appeared this amazing physical specimen with incredible charisma, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and I was you know, saying, God, this guy's amazing. There must be some project that he, you know, that he'd be great for. And I was sitting next to a fellow named Ed Summer, who owned a comic book gallery that George Lucas had sponsored in New York called Super Snipe. And the uh, 
He said, come back to the gallery with me. I'll show you. It's Conan, of course. And he showed me the Frank Frazetta book covers and uh, you know, the comic books that had started coming out, striking the resemblance between Arnold and this character Conan that I had not heard about. And that was the beginning of like an eight-year journey trying to uh, first get the rights to Conan, which were very complicated lots of different owners of the various properties. And, and then, you know, I met Arnold, and he was totally into it, but then convincing the financiers that Arnold could play, a, you know, a lead role in a, a big, you know, American movie with a, an accent, as he had. Like I said, it was a, it was a long period that it evolved, but it finally came together, and several writers and directors and lots of permutations but it was always uh Arnold was the key and you know even when we walked around New York City before Conan came out it was very clear he had a magnetism and he was a star just just hanging out on 36th street I heard you were kind of the peacemaker between all these parties who were owners of different rights and everything. How did you kind of convince these people that it was in their best interest to come together? Like I said, that's what took you know, a lot of years of of patience and convincing. I think we had a, a screenplay. I don't even think it was the original, but we had a screenplay that Oliver Stone wrote that was quite remarkable. It was very ambitious. It was almost like Dante's Inferno. It was very, very expansive and dark, and it was quite brilliant. And 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 so that was a, uh, you know, I think various parties saw that we were serious about making a good movie, and then finding a director who uh you know had, had the standing to take it on we, we we met with Ridley Scott we met with Alan Park we met with a number of people that, uh we, met, we even talked for a period with Ralph Bakshi and then John Milius came into the picture and Oliver and I were in London having just been turned down by Ridley very despondent because we thought he was seriously interested Millius's agent is named uh, Jeff Berg, and he said, you know, go over to Dino De Laurentiis' apartment, and he's interested in doing it. And we, we met with Dino, and he, he liked John, and, it, you know, that deal took a while to get done, but ultimately it was, it was through Dino that the, the film got financed, and it was, it was Universal and, and De Laurentiis. How did you get Oliver Stone on the project? I was introduced to Oliver by his agent as by getting a writing sample of a script called Platoon, which was brilliant. And so we became friends after reading Platoon, and we worked together on a feature that Oliver wrote. Platoon had not, had not been made yet. He, he wrote Midnight Express and became a big screenwriter. Orion offered us and Oliver, a movie to do, which turned uh, out, to, out to be The Hands. So we worked together as a directing and producing team. All the while, he, he was, he'd was he been working on the Conan script, which was 
we went with him because of the script platoon, which was his like writing sample, which then after the hand, which was not a successful film, he went back to writing and then finally got to do Salvador and then finally got to do platoon, which you know made him a, a major director. So it was that it was that script that brought us together. Some of the elements of Oliver Stone's script are still there in the finished project, but how was that process of rewriting kind of handled? Did you just kind of say, John, it's yours, or what was that like? I think Oliver and John became friends ultimately, but I think the process initially was quite contentious because Oliver you know, had you know, great confidence in the work he did, and John made many changes uh, in quite a period of time where they were at odds. And ultimately, you know, they became friends. What was that uh, relationship like between Milius and Arnold Schwarzenegger? Initially, there was a lot of resistance to Arnold playing the role on the part of both Dino and John. But uh, con- contractually, John had to be the director and Arnold had to be the star. So even though there was some... Uh, resistance uh, that was part of the deal did you have any kind of uh, worry about you know the non-actors that were kind of being tasked for this film no I have great confidence in John and in, and in the script we had and, 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 and really had the sense about Arnold that he could do anything he chose to do he could become a senator or, the, or governor of the state and whatever he put his mind to he seemed to be able to accomplished. He was a very impressive fellow. What was the shooting like? Uh, it was a, a long shoot in Almeria in Spain. I, I didn't spend a lot of time there. I, I was much more involved creation of the production and in the final stages of the editing and distribution, but uh, I was in Spain for a very brief amount of time. But I know it was a, a long and arduous shoot. How did you decide to to market the film? What was your approach to that? I think when Universal first screened the film, I think Bob Ramey was running Universal, and they were shocked at the interest. I think the screening, in, I think it was in Hollywood, and kids were lined around the block. They, you know, they all knew as fanboys the, the character, and I guess knew of Arnold through his bodybuilding or whatever, and and. The first test screening was such a success, they they moved the uh, opening date up, which at that point, big summer films, I think, opened like around July 4th, and they decided to move the, the opening to a, like Memorial Day, a much earlier time than it had been done up till then. And it was a, a, you know, a, a big hit, and, and it was really... a I think Bob Ramey and the Universal team that saw the interest in this film, which I think shocked them. I think then, I guess the the, the design of the poster and the, I think the concept of how to sell it was somewhat self-evident. But it was derived a lot from, I think, Frank Frazetta and the, and the images that he created for the novel. How was the film received when it came out? It was a big hit. Right, right off the bat. Were critics open to it, or how how was that? My recollection is it was probably split, because a lot of people that didn't understand the genre of sword and sorcery, they 
so connected to the old Steve Reeves movies, the Sword and Sandal movies. But this was something new and original, and those who saw that loved the film, and those that didn't, didn't you know, understand the evolution of the, the genre, you know, took it as something much more you know, lowbrow and uh, traditional. With the success of the film, was the idea of doing a sequel pretty much a no-brainer? Yeah. What was your involvement with that? I I wanted to produce the sequel with great fervor, and uh, you know, and Universal had a a right of last refusal on the rights. We brought in a big lawyer, and it was who uh, actually was an advisor to the Beatles. Alan Klein was his name. He said, you'll never get the rights because they have last refusal and they'll never give it up. And so I didn't, you know, I, I wouldn't give it up and they kept raising the price and raising the price and finally Alan proved right that there was, they weren't going to let it go away. They had, I ended up, you know, making a lot more money by not making the film than I would have by making the film, but you know, it's not what I wanted, but it's the way it ended up. So the, the sequel, I get a credit on it, but it, I was really not much involved. And I think I was disappointed in it. And I think that the franchise could have had a, a much longer life and been sustained had we been able to control control it better. But we we, we didn't have the legal uh, ability to do that. Yeah, I think I had heard uh, Oliver Stone talking like his idea was that this would be almost like a James Bond where they would he would come back every few years and do another one. Yeah, no, I think they had all that potential, which we never got to see. Yeah, I, I would still pay to see uh, you know a, a Schwarzenegger Conan movie made today. Well, I think they're working on one. Speaking of, what are you working on these days? We have a, a new Crow movie that we're going to start in May with a terrific young, young British director named Corin Hardy, who just had a film at Sundance called The Hallow, which got great reactions. I think a terrific new, new director. And we just finished a film with Dev Patel and Jeremy Irons called The Man Who Knew Infinity, which will be finished by May. It's a a drama, a historical drama about a, a famous Indian mathematician in the 19, during the First World War who kind of changed the history of mathematics. It's a very different kind of movie than The Crow or Conan. We're working on a, you know, the Monkey Wrench Gang, which we've been working on for many years with the guys who directed Catfish, Henry Joost and Ralph Shulman, who are really very sharp. And they've, I think, it's a project I've been working on for longer than and even Conan, and I think it's finally coming in, into being. We plan to do that in the next year. With The Crow, is that like another chapter, or is this kind of a reboot, or what is this one? It's really going back to the original graphic novel. That, well, when Alex Proyas did the first Crow, we, you know, we didn't have the means to do a lot of things that were in the book. We can do now, and uh, I think it's, it's very true you know, to... The author's original vision. I think it's really drawing from from the heart of of his unique graphic novel. Corin, the director, you know, he was a a crow fan when he was 14 years old. He showed us pictures of him dressed like the crow. He was a kid, and, and he's a real. He really knows the mythology, and it's very 
very excited about doing the movie. It's been interesting, all the people that have been kind of drawn to the material. You know, I've, I've read um, Rob Zombie was interested, mm-hmm. and I know Nick yeah. Cave has been interested. So Yeah, no, Nick did a draft, which I liked, but Steve Norrington didn't. Rob Zombie did a draft we weren't comfortable with. So we've gone through a lot of different permutations. And I think you know, Rob is a real ta- talented guy, but I, I, he's, I think, more of a visual and musical artist than, than a screenwriter. At least that, that's what I felt at the time. Yeah, I was just commenting to a friend of mine that Heath Ledger's Joker really seems to draw a lot from that mm-hmm. Crow performance. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah for, I, I think making a new Crow has to deal with that because I think people, audiences today, uh, you know, would, would be much more familiar with, with, with the Batman movies than the original Crow. So we have to not seem like we're trying to imitate you know, the Joker. How did you first get introduced to Robert E. Howard's work? Well, I'm one of those extremely fortunate people. Uh, long before the cliche of follow your bliss was on everyone's lips, I seem to be doing that, both per- personally and professionally. I, I grew up in uh, unusual circumstances in that my father both was in and then worked for the military, uh, in his case, uh, both the Navy and military intelligence for about 30 years. And we wound up in Asia in the 50s and the 60s, and the bases where we were, there was literally only one television station, and that was from Manila at the time. And you couldn't get that TV station because the mountains blocked the signals. So you essentially either went to the base movie theaters every night where they had free films, or you were a reader, or you had comic books, or you went to the library. I kind of did all three. And I was about nine years old, I guess it was, and I was poking around in the library of an elementary school, and it was on a little base called Sangley Point, which no longer exists, but it was a naval air station across the harbor from Manila. And I found this book. I was going through this series of books called The Miss Pickles Goes To, and it was like Miss Pickles Goes to Buenos Aires or Miss Pickles Goes to Tijuana <laughs> and Sees a Donkey Show. I don't know. I don't remember seeing that. Uh, or Miss Miss Pickles Goes to Mars. But I had, I had run through these Miss Pickles books, and all of a sudden I see this red-spined hardcover. And uh, it was by this fellow named Robert E. Howard, and it was the sort of, and I looked at it, and I went, C-O-N-A-N. What the heck is it? C-O-N? So I thought Conan or Conan or Conan, none of which are the proper pronunciation. But it turned out in 1959 that this was one of the earliest known press hardcover collections of Robert E. Howard's uh, original Conan stories and the pastiches that had been written by Elspike de Camp. I, I turned to the very first one that I could come across, and it was Red Nails. And I read Red Nails in 1959 when I was nine years old. And it literally blew my childhood mind. I had never read anything like this. And I still wonder, you know, what subversive librarian put Robert E. Howard in the kids' section. <laughs> but uh, that was a perfect age to discover him. Unfortunately, that was also a period of time unlike the surfeit of riches everyone has now when you think about genre. Um, you, it's like pornography. There's a, there's a niche and a fetish for everyone. There's thousands of niches out there. 
if you're into fantasy, horror, or science fiction, or if you're just a garden variety geek. But back then, uh, anything geek-like was shameful and to be hidden. Um, I was pretty athletic. I was on a lot of swim teams. I did things like join student government, Boy Scouts, all that kind of thing. But I was a closet intellectual. And uh, it was very difficult to find anything else by Robert E. Howard. And it took about another six years. And then in 1965, of course, the Lancer paperbacks started to come out with the Frank Frazetta covers on them. And uh, that was Conan the Adventurer. And I remember I was back stateside for a brief time in San Diego. And I said, oh, my God, there's another Conan book. And, of course, uh, all those uh, – that that run of all those Lancer and then later the Ace uh, Conan books that El Sprague de Camp and uh, his cohort, uh, Lynn Carter, edited, they all came out of, you know on the heels of each other. And then in 1970, the Marvel comic that, you know uh, – Barry Windsor Smith illustrated uh, for the first three issues trying to ape Jack Kirby's style, and it wasn't really until the fourth issue of Conan the Barbarian, the, the Marvel comic, all of which, by the way, as I'm talking, I was gathering all this material and um, just reading them purely for pleasure. And um, also as a burgeoning writer, because I've been writing professionally for about 40-some years now, I was very interested in that sort of lurid, pulpish, you know, uh, purple-hued style. I mean, Howard really knew how to tell an adventure story, and it was just straight-ahead action. And while his cohort, H.P. Lovecraft, who I also consumed, because Lovecraft had such a firm grasp of cosmic nihilism and also um, florid prose, a la Edgar Allan Poe, um, I, I always kind of like enjoyed the energy of the Howard stories, as well as enjoying the more literary aspirations of the the type of writer that H.P. Lovecraft was. So long story short, I just discovered him as I grew up. And long before, I was, I was sort of, I guess, in the second wave of Conan fandom. I mean, 1959, Howard had been dead for 23 years. And at that point in the 50s, there were just these little stirrings of organized fandom and whatnot. And it was very small. You know, uh, there was this avalanche of kids' movies, bad cheap black and white science fiction movies with like giant uh, you know bed lice or you know whatever you know uh, the giant tick that devoured chicago uh, i saw all those because those were a generational thing um but i was also a reader so when 1980 rolls around by then i'm 30 years old and i've already gone through now 21 years of conan I was already sort of on the edges of the film industry, and I, through the 1970s, been supporting myself through a lot of freelance work, uh, writing, and including stuff for a lot of major magazines like uh, Rolling Stone and L.A. Times and American Cinematographer and, uh, gosh, uh, Omni Magazine, a lot of the men's magazines. I was just, like, squirting stuff out, mostly nonfiction, to uh, keep checks coming in so I could feed I and my family. And I got wind of this Conan film finally going to happen. And at that point, I'd been writing for a magazine called Cinefantastique, which was sort of the film comment of its time for, again, genre cinema. And uh, I called up the editor, Fred Clark, uh, and said, look, Fred, uh, they're finally going to do this Conan film. This was three years after, in 77, Schwarzenegger had actually signed on to it. And it had gone through other iterations that never really hit the screen. And I said, I want to go out there, send me out 
to go cover it. And he goes, well, where are they filming it? <laughs> I go, Spain. He goes, there's no way I'm going to send you to Spain. And I said, well, the production company won't do it. So I wound up paying half of the tab to get there, and he wound up paying the other half. But it was a wise investment because um, I got there in early January of 1981, hung around the sets and cast and crew and kind of um, had an attitude back then of like, well, I'm not really part of the industry, so I don't really have to watch what I say. And uh, I was a little cheeky, and I think that uh, kind of like uh, amused people like uh, John Melius and Arnold, both who are cheeky themselves. And uh, next thing I knew, I was on that film and not only writing about it, but the next step was being hired by Universal to promote it. And then another step was uh, finding myself uh, not only a, a single title promoter, but within a year working at the Universal Publicity Department and working my way up through the system. And uh, that went on in the industry for over 30 years. I worked uh, in many, many different capacities in the film business. Uh, I always like to say I started at the top and quickly worked my way down. <laughs> but anyway, that was the long-winded way of saying that uh, Conan has been something that's literally been a lifelong uh, pleasure of mine. When you went over to Spain, where was the project as far as being in development? Well, actually, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to edit myself because, as you already heard from that incredibly long-winded initial answer, I like to talk. <laughs> so I, I gave you the, the cut-and-paste version. But I had known, I mentioned 1977, knowing that there was this project in development. In 1970, I think it was, or possibly early 71, when I was still in college, there were no, I, I went to a private school that didn't have a film school. And uh, simultaneous with uh, my love of literature of all kinds, both high art and low fiction, um, because as Susan Sontag would famously say in her essay on camp many years later, there really is no distinction, and there was none to my, to, to my way of thinking either. I was exposed to both classic literature, the golden age of international art cinema, but I was also reading, you know, crappy EC comic books with severed heads on sticks or going to see, you know, like a uh, roughy nudie cutie movie. So, I, you know, I, it was all grist for the mill. So uh, I was just fascinated by both the film industry and by literature. And I wound up briefly working on a movie called Silent Running when I was 21 years old. And uh, it was a very low-budget picture that Douglas Trumbull directed. Bruce Stern was a star. And they shot it at a decommissioned aircraft carrier up in uh, San Pedro, for the most part. I was one of the guys who was essentially an unpaid production assistant who helped suit up the uh, bilateral amputees who were inside the Huey, Dewey, and Louie robot suits. And I was on that picture for about two weeks, and it was the first movie I actually worked on, even though they wouldn't let me eat lunch with anybody. I wasn't even allowed to go to lunch call. I had to, I had to eat off craft services, which was <laughs> a really good introduction to the uh, harsh realities of the film business. I wasn't even worthy enough to have lunch. But I, I really enjoyed that, and I, I was always really fascinated by the dynamics of the uh, protocols and unwritten pe pecking orders that, of what really goes on on the film industry and within the uh, varying levels of bureaucracy and creativity in making a movie. Uh, again, not a lot of that was known back then. Uh, there was not a cottage industry as there is now of all these making of featurettes, of which I also did many. I directed over 
hundred of those. I had my ear to the ground, at least what was going on in the industry. And I had heard that there had been a company called Conan Properties Incorporated, CPI, which had been formed in the 1970s, late 1970s, by a consortium of people who claimed to own the rights to the Robert E. Howard character. Now, when I say claimed, uh, I don't mean that in a disparaging way. I just mean that it was legally very murky waters. But there was a guy named Edward Pressman, uh, who was a producer, still around. Uh, he, uh, his, uh, mother, I think it was, or anyway, somehow he was a, a associated with the Pressman Toy Company. And Ed Pressman decided he wasn't going to make movies. And he managed to pull together all these warring factions, which included the legal heirs to the rights of Robert E. Howard, uh, L. Sprague de Camp, uh, who had, uh, since the ni- early 1950s, when he had worked on the Gnome Press editions of Conan as a series editor, and then been associated with the Lancer paperbacks and many other things, Conan, and and kind of almost made it his own. Um, He was brought in, and some of the filmmaking money people were brought in as well, and they started Conan Properties. And one of the first passes was a guy named Oliver Stone, who was just making his name known in the 1970s through you know horror films. Really, he did Seizure and then later The Hand. But he did this script uh, that I'd actually read before a year before I got to Madrid, which was uh, kind of for those who are in the know of the Robert E. Howard original Conan stories. It was kind of a, a cross between a witch shall be born and rogues in the house. And um, it was also on a massive scale, massive. I mean, it had thousands upon thousands of mutants and armies pouring over hillsides, you know, descending on Conan. And Conan, of course, is taking them all out, you know, with uh, two-fisted uh, weaponry. Um, but it was a, it would have been a very expensive film to produce. <clears throat> and that was one of the reasons it didn't work. Um, I think another reason was that Stone and the production company, which eventually uh, Dino De Laurentiis became involved and bought the rights to do, I think it was three or four Conan films, maybe five, uh, and um, that didn't happen. So when I got to Spain, I already had all this backstory, and I was already—I'd already actually started writing little little articles for varying publications about, well, this is where this Conan movie is now, and I'd known that Arnold had been more or less associated with it uh, formally in '77, but informally since '75 when he and Ed Pressman had lunch together here in L.A. and um, so I got there and I had this backstory, and I, I quickly found out that I knew more about their production than they did. <laughs> which <laughs> was another kind of a big light bulb went off in my head. I thought, oh, my God, you know, I thought I always thought that people that were in the film business knew about film. And guess what? They don't, you know, and they don't care to know. I, I'm not talking about people who are the craftspeople uh, who certainly know their area of expertise very well and really are the unsung heroes behind every production, the guys who are the grips and the art department and, you know, wardrobe and makeup, all that. Uh, I'm not talking about that. I'm, I'm talking about the execs in charge. Um, the people who really should have been the ones who were familiar with the history of Conan and the character. Um, so 
when I got there, they had not only uh, put all the deals together finally and gotten John Milius kind of through the back door of a movie called The Mountain Men that John was developing with Dino De Laurentiis uh, exactly on that topic. John is a huge, huge fan of the original uh, Pioneers of America, uh, the, imper- <laughs> the imperialist Pioneers of America. And uh, one of the subsets of that group that he's just total love with uh, in a romanticized way are the mountain men like Jeremiah Johnson of which one of his scripts was made into a kind of watered down version with Robert Redford uh, the real Jeremiah Johnson was called the liver eater by the Crow Indians because he would eat the livers of every Indian that he killed but they you didn't see Robert Redford doing that which I found amusing um, but anyway uh, he was going to do this film John Mealy is called the mountain men and he had a production designer named Ron Cobb and Ron had made his name through a series of satirical cartoons in the L.A. Free Press, uh, which were very scathing, left, uh, progressive uh, 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 editorial cartoons about what was going on in the country at the time. It's hard to believe that America was actually a left-leaning, progressive, uh, benevolent country at one point, um, since we've gone 180 degrees in the opposite direction since then and become the great Satan of the world. Um, but that's a political issue. Uh, I got there in Spain and they had, uh, just literally started shooting. I think I missed the first couple of days and that was the first stuff that they shot was where, uh, as always, they usually shoot movies out of sequence. Um, and Conan the Barbarian was no exception. There was a, um, the, about half of it was shot in a location outside of Madrid in this old abandoned, uh, tractor factory that Dino had bought for like, or leased for next to nothing. And uh, they had built, uh, all the sound stages for Conan, uh, most of the sound stages there. And, uh, then they went down to Southern Spain to Almiramar, Almira, Almeria, which is the area where Sergio Leone shot all of the spaghetti Westerns. And, um, the first day uh, was when Conan is being pursued by wolves after just before he goes down into the thing in the crypt where he the mummified Atlantean warrior king where he takes the Atlantean sword off of its lap and you see him come up in the film and cut his chains and these wolves have chased him and he has this look and then the next thing you see is that Conan's wearing the pelt of the wolves in the movie. When they shot that Arnold was supposed to leap up these fake boulders and get to the top uh, but the the dogs uh, that they were used got carried away and they grabbed his loincloth and they pulled him off of those rocks right into this bramble bush and and he fell a good five or six feet flat and just this you know this Austrian oath you know like split the countryside and you know that was that was his first uh, day of shooting on that and as I recall everyone telling me that Arnold was really pissed and Milius thought it was the funniest thing he'd ever heard you know so. <laughs> Because apparently Arnold was cursing an Austrian, you know, which is, I guess, interesting in German. But anyway, uh, I got there when they were shooting the orgy chamber sequence, which was the first big set piece that they were doing in the film. And uh, that's when I met Sandal Bergman and Jerry Lopez and and uh, Melius and uh, Ron Cobb, who had actually crossed paths with previously. And uh, I got introduced to Arnold. He was all in that makeup that he wears, that camouflage makeup. 
for the orgy chamber sequence. And um, the publicist uh, at the time was a guy named Terry Horseman, who for some reason was uh, let go on the picture and another person was brought on midway through production. But anyway, Terry was there at this point. And um, he said, well, I, I'm going to, you know, Arnold's having like, you know, an early lunch and, you know, I'll introduce you and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, fine. And uh, I already at that point in my life, I, I, again, this background I had growing up in Asia, my father uh, had a very unusual and exotic kind of law enforcement job. So I grew up around murderers and thieves and rapists and drug addicts and, you know, which was great preparation for Hollywood, frankly. <laughs> and um, I, it takes a lot to impress me. And uh, so I, you know, movie stars, eh, you know, I mean, I, I, I have nothing but praise for people's talents, but the whole mystique in the aura, you know, people are people. So I, I walked in and Arnold had all this makeup on, you know, the black, uh, jagged, you know, irregular geometric patterns that they painted on him. And he goes, yeah, I remember this like it was 20 minutes ago. He goes, yeah. And Terry goes, oh, this is Paul Salmon. He's here from Cinefantastique, and he's also going to write, you know, for some other magazines. He's he's really kind of a Conan expert. He goes, yeah, what you say your name was? And I go, Salmon. And he goes, oh, 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 that sounds fishy to me. What do you think of that? And I stared at him, and I thought, the first thought that went through my mind was, is this guy really this stupid that he doesn't think at the age of 31 I haven't heard every possible ringing change on my last name? But instead of that, I stared at him, and there was a silence. And I looked at him, I said, that's very funny coming from somebody who looks like a demented Austrian raccoon. And there was this, like, everyone in the, there was four or five people in the trail, there was like this collective gasp because... You know, I'm talking to the star of the picture, and I'm, <laughs> I'm probably going to get thrown off the set right there, right? But for some reason, or I'll just stare at me. He goes, he, and he burst out laughing. He goes, "Oh, you're okay. Come here, sit down next to me." You know. <laughs> so I, I found out that he was one of those guys that uh, he well probably still does it. He likes to test people. And uh, he comes from, uh, you know, that whole jock background and very competitive. And I knew that about him as well going in. So uh, I guess he was uh, amused, either amused or just realized that, you know, I wasn't going to be someone that was going to fall to my knees and throw my hands up and say anything you say, Mr. Schwarzenegger. And uh, we got along fine. We got along throughout the 80s like houses on fire. In fact, I wound up... Uh, professionally working with him on about five or six pictures right after that like one and one after another and was around when he proposed to maria shriver and used to go to their home and had dinner with them and go out in west hollywood and brentwood and you know we we hung out for a while Uh, that was my introduction to arnold schwarzenegger and the conan character basically an exchange of insults but uh he arnold was impressive guy um he he had a certain laser-like focus. He said something very interesting to me. About a month later, we were down in Almeria. Maybe maybe two or three months later. Uh, I, I went back and forth on the production between the states after that initial visit. And um, I, they were down there, and he was again in the trailer. And he, I said, well, what are you going to do after this? And he goes, well, you know. Um, I've been doing these movies and Dino has got a contract with me and I owe two or three more movies with him. And then uh, there's this other thing, this script called, uh, you ever hear of some guy named James Cameron? And I've never heard of him, you know? <laughs> and what that was, of course, is he had already started to hear some things about the Terminator. And um, basically, uh, he said that I think I'm going to get into politics. And I laughed and I said, well, 
Arnold, why would you want to get into politics? And he goes, well, he says, you know, it's a, it's a challenge and, you know, I've done everything else and uh, I'd like to either be president. And I, I said, stop right there. You've got to be a naturalized U.S. citizen. You'll never be president unless they change the law. He didn't know that. And uh, he goes, well, well, then maybe I'll be a governor. And this was 1981. So, I mean, you know, he, he was very methodical. Arnold always reminded me, um, the Teutonic people, I've, I've done a great deal of traveling. I've been fortunate enough to meet just people from all over the world. And uh, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a kind of a people person. I really like people. And uh, there are some cultural differences. Um, at heart, we're all the same. Uh, the species of Homo sapiens is, is all very similar. We're, we're all different, but we're all alike, if you know what I mean. But the... Germanic people, as do many people from Asia, Southeast Asia, have one thing in common in that they're very methodical. They, they'll, 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 they'll look into the future and say, okay, there's my prize. Now, how do I get there? Okay, I have to take this step, this step, this step, this step. They, they mentally or in whatever way map out a whole course of action and then they take the steps. And Arnold was very much like that. You know, I could see that in him. He was like, okay, I have to do this to get here. And then when I get there, I have to do that. To do that. And there's always this forward motion thing. So, uh, you know, he's a fascinating guy. He's flawed, obviously. You know, he's a human being. Um, as he became more internationally renowned and more powerful, I think some of that naturally went to his head. Um, but he could be a tough negotiator. Uh, but once you got him uh, on a project, he was, boy, he was a pro. You know, he, he showed up, he suited up and hit his mark, did his lines and, you know, promoted the heck out of it. There are a lot of, a lot of performers who do not like to do the de rigueur kind of publicity that goes along with doing a film these days where they trot them out on all the morning shows and everything, you know, to say about how wonderful it was to work with this fine artist and this is the best movie I've ever made and all those lies. Um, but, uh, Arnold uh, relished that type of thing. He really enjoyed going out and promoting and he was a, a joy to work with in that sense. So, I mean, the, the studios liked him for that because they got extra value, you know. But, uh, having said that, um, the first Conan film as a purist going in and, uh, I ended up writing two articles, uh, for Cinefantastique, two cover stories. One was a 25,000 word uh, sort of making of, and the other one was a very personalized journal that I did because I, I went from London on a, on a train called the Puerto del Sol from London to Madrid, stopping in Paris and then going across the English Channel. They didn't have the channel back then. They didn't have the train that goes underneath the, you know, English Channel. Um, but it's, there's an actual, uh, train line that you can get a ticket in London and wind up in Madrid, and it's called the Puerto del Sol, the door to the sun. And um, I really enjoyed myself while I was there. It was probably one of the most enjoyable productions I was ever uh, associated with. Um, interestingly enough, the next Conan film, uh, Conan the Destroyer, uh, was one of my least favorite <laughs> films that I worked on. And, and by that point, a few years later, I had, uh, as sometimes the fortunate people in the film business, uh, you rise quickly. Um, and then usually you, you descend even faster. But uh, I found myself a few years later in Mexico City 
as actually someone who was working in the publicity department of Universal Pictures as a junior executive by now, a uh, junior vice president in charge of what they called special promotions, uh, which basically meant anything that everyone else didn't want to do, they would dump on my desk and say, here, you do it. You know, I don't thank you. Um, but that, I, I remember being so um, overjoyed by Conan the Barbarian's uh, pedigree because John Melius, although he wasn't a Robert E. Howard fan, had read all the stories and also read all the Solomon Kane stories, read all the Bran MacMorn stories, and he kind of liked uh, uh, Howard's pulpy energy, like I had mentioned earlier. And, and John has a huge... Um, interest, affection, and encyclopedic knowledge of military history. And so he, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a highly educated, uh, highly articulate guy who delights in putting on this persona of being a larger-than-life um, fascist who's to the right of Genghis Khan, right? I mean, he's not that – you can't boil someone like Melius down to that simple of an equation. He was a really interesting guy. He was an agitator. He just loved to, to just mix things up, and he was very funny. Uh, but he had a sweetness to him, too, and he was – when he came to women, he was very romantic, old school, uh, in, in the classic uh, English literary sense of a romantic. Um, well, that was all infused into the first – Conan film. Also, there's a lot of Akira Kurosawa or Kurosawa Akira in the first Conan film because Melius, the first movie he saw that made a, an impression on him was The Seven Samurai, and he became a huge uh, Japanese uh, samurai film fan. And he put a lot of all that stuff into Conan the Barbarian, which is why you see this mix of all these different historical uh, cultures and wardrobes and languages. And, you know, there's like eight or nine different, you know, civilizations, pre-existing real world civilizations that are magnified and kind of focused through the lens of Robert Howard in that first film. Plus, there's a certain doomed romanticism about it. So, you know, there's some good things in that first first film and uh, it was also the very first Conan movie and you know which was just knock my socks I couldn't believe that I was not only were they making one but here I was on the sets you know and and sitting and you know having rides with James Earl Jones and you know Ronald Reagan was just you know just had been elected no comment and uh, he uh, Jones was very excited about Reagan being someone who was uh, an actor who was going to be in the White House and blah, 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 blah. And uh, Sandal Bergman and I became very good friends, uh, and we are to this day. Uh, and uh, uh, I was there when she was accidentally hit with a sword and cut her hand almost off uh, during one of the scenes in the orgy chamber. Uh, one of the extras got carried away, and uh, his sword went... She didn't have a, a really... a. a a guard on her own sword and this guy was not supposed to hit her where he did and this, the blade traveled down and just went in between her fingers and almost took a couple of fingers off and um, you know it was just going out and hanging out with these people and, and Ron Cobb who was very much a Conan fan and William Stout who was also working in the production department at that time uh, Bill Stout the guy who was the production designer a few years later Return of the Living Dead so all this was really good to me uh, but Conan the Destroyer, um, the script had gone through a torturous evolution. Uh, Roy Thomas and Jerry Conway from the Conan uh, Marvel uh, comic books had actually been the first ones to do numerous drafts of screenplays. And uh, for varying reasons, those were not deemed 
worthy. And uh, at the last minute, a fellow named Stanley Mann was brought in who had actually written some very good scripts, but at this point was basically a script doctor. And uh, he did a very watered-down version of um, the ideas that Thomas and Jerry Conway had for Conan the Destroyer. So if the first Conan film was more like Robert E. Howard and uh, the, uh, the pulp stories, the second one was more like Roy Thomas and – well, no, I won't even say that. It was more like a very uh, comic bookish flat version of Conan and you know they with with bad comedy relief and you know beautiful production values because Dino De Laurentiis always brought the best uh, talent in in terms of the departments he had uh, he would cut corners occasionally with money and that would catch up with him um, but uh, it just wasn't there the spark wasn't there on the second one and it was essentially just product to me and I had to keep biting my tongue a lot uh, because I just didn't, I, I mean, I really liked Grace Jones. Her boyfriend at that time was Dolph Lundgren and he hadn't gotten into the film business yet. He essentially was her bodyguard at this point, but they were also romantically involved. And, uh, I got to meet both of them and Will Chamberlain, who turned out was a Robert E. Howard fan and had read the original pulp stories which blew me away. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, hang out with like the Irish stuntman, Pat Roach, uh, who played three roles in that, uh, who played the wizard and played the uh, <laughs> Tagarath, that horrible thing, in the, the monster in the suit. And uh, also played the ape man that uh, Conan fights in the Hall of Mirrors. Uh, um, they were all great to get to know. But uh, really, the only it, it was a very fraught production. There was a lot of uh, tension on that movie, the second one. The first one was like summer camp, this crazy summer camp for uh, for barbarians. You know, it was just Looney Tunes. It was it was a lot of fun. But the second one was more uh, constrained and uh, more of a product. But having said that. I'm also a film buff, and so to sit there and be able to talk to Jack Cardiff, who is the DP on Conan the Destroyer, one of the greatest British cinematographers of all time, and to ask him what it was really like shooting the African Queen and being on location with Bogart and John Huston and all that, and then sitting with Dick Fleischer, the director, and asking him about what was it like to work with Kirk Douglas and Tony Curtis on the Vikings, or work with Charles McGraw on you know the Narrow Margin, all those great film noirs that uh, Fleischer did very early in his career, and of course, you know little movies like Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. It was really funny. Fleischer and I, Fleischer was a very nice guy and and a real pro. Uh, he was very much in control of his sets, but he had this low-key managerial style. And I was, of course, familiar with his father, Max Fleischer, the creator of Betty Boop, and, you know, all those Popeye cartoons, those surreal things like the Out of the Inkwell series. And we wound up for months talking about everything but Conan the Destroyer. It was really funny, <laughs> you know. Uh, so it, it, those were marvelous experiences. Um, I, they were very personalized, and um, I, I feel a great deal of affection for them they in in essence too one was like uh reflected the first film was my you know the the kind of the glamorous seductive side of the filmmaking business where everything's cool and the other side was kind of the darker harsher realities of working with studios and production companies and problems and a lot of politics and that kind of thing and also you know just an example of what happens if you just don't have the script you know is there any is there any form of entertainment that so undervalues the writer as the motion picture business, the American motion picture business? I mean, it's nonsensical. You know, I've I've produced, I've directed, 
Um, I had a, four shows on in Japan for years in the 80s, the late 80s, when I moved into production myself. And I've worked for major networks. Uh, I've, I've had to deal with sponsors like Sony and Shiseido Cosmetics. And I know, I know the game, uh, but I'm essentially, you know, a, a lover of the art form. Uh, well, a lover of the form. Sometimes it's art, you know, and I, I, I'm just happy if it's entertaining anymore. Um, but I, I just, it, even though I obviously have a, a bias because I have this parallel career as a writer, um, it, it, it's only, it's just sensible. You, you, what house do you build without a foundation? You know? And you don't pay the guy who lays the foundation in your home the, the least money of anyone on the team or your house is going to fall down. And I know that's a simplistic analogy, but it holds true. People in this country just do not understand the value of the script. Uh, there are people who do, um, and many of them now are showrunners on TV. You know, things like Game of Thrones and, you know, Breaking Bad and, you know, where everyone now says all the good stuff is on, you know, the, the, the cable. Well, a lot of it is just listen to the dialogue. Look at those characters, uh, you know, hear what these really, you know, complex, you know, multi-stranded plots are like. And the, hey, man, that's not coming from the cast, you know, <laughs> that's not coming from the set dresser. That's coming from the writer. It's so simple, but you know, I understand. It's like television and the industry are, are hungry monsters with ravenous, never ending appetites, and they're kind of like black holes that you have to keep shoveling food down to keep them going. So obviously there's going to be a lot of junk food that goes down there, but it, I used to get into these uh, arguments really uh, that led nowhere when I was an executive in the studios, uh, junior executive, and uh, they, you know, I would just be met with blank stares. And I remember the classic line: I was having lunch with someone at the Disney Studios once, who's very well placed, very highly uh, regarded and well-known person. And uh, his assistant goes, "This is Paul." He says, "I have to warn you about him. He's different from us." And this person says, "What do you mean?" He says, "Well, he cares." <laughs> you know, and I was like young. I was still a young man, relatively. I was in my early thirties at that point. <laughs> I remember this. I just in my head, it was like, "What the? What did he just say?" You know, and and then, but as I as I went through, I understood exactly what he meant because you're not supposed to care. You know, you have to choose your battles quite well. Otherwise, you just become depleted. You know, you. It's like Sam Peckinpah used to say. He walked around while the jackals were still chewing on him. You know, and uh, I understand that all too well. It's a very, very rough business. You've got to uh, have a hide of a rhinoceros, the soul of a warrior, uh, and the instincts of a poet. You know, plus a very hard-headed business sense. You know, otherwise, you're just going to get you're going to wind up on TMZ coming out of rehab for the 18th time. You know, so it's 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 a harsh it's a harsh business. But when it works, you know, it's uh, it, there's nothing more beautiful. You know, famously, there's the uh, the death of King Osric that was cut out of Conan the Barbarian. Do you remember other stuff that was filmed that never made it to the screen? Yeah, there was uh, there were a number of things. Uh, some of those have uh, you know found their way on the the special edition DVDs <clears throat> that have come out over the years. Um, in fact, uh, before we before I answer that about King Osric, excuse me a second. There, uh, I, I also uh, not only did a lot of the worldwide publicity for Conan the Destroyer, but I wrote about it for Marvel Comics, and uh, I uh, uh, recently, within the last few years, did a special edition DVD that I helped a company 
in the UK produce about that, where I wrote the you know the historical booklet and supplied all the stills and whatnot. Because I'm still a fan. I've got all this stuff everywhere. Um, so I tracked these changes. And what happened on the first movie was that Milius, although he understood the necessity and the you know absolute bread in the bone. Um, origins of the supernatural shadings of the Conan character. And by the way, it is not Conan, it's Conan. Conan, like Conan O'Brien that you hear. Conan pronounces his name correctly. It's a Celtic word. It's a, it's a Gaelic word. It's Conan, like with an E, a soft E, not a hard A, not Conan. Um, but anyway, um, the first film uh, suffered a bit in that John Mealy's did not like the supernatural or fantasy. And yet <laughs> here you had this fantasy kingdom that never existed with giant serpents and, you know, cults and all that kind of stuff. Um, so wherever he could soft pedal that, he had a tendency to do so. Uh, one other thing other than King Osric, uh, there were scenes of King Osric being uh, murdered on his throne. Um, and you found out that this was a part of a plot that uh, Thulsa Doom had actually infiltrated and uh, the kingdom of Osric uh, through his daughter, uh, the princess, who incidentally, uh, Valerie Quinesson, who has very little to say in the movie, except in the expanded edition, where at the very end she takes Conan's hand and leads him off into this beautiful matte painting, which is how the film was supposed to originally end. Valerie's lines were all cut by Melius because Valerie was a communist card-carrying communist, French communist intellectual. <laughs> and that was the last thing you wanted to be on a John Milius picture. And uh, she was like fearless. She would say, you fascist, you know, you American fascist, and they would be off, you know. And, and it was really hilarious to watch this, but I'm afraid that her candor cost her some dialogue because uh, suddenly her role got <laughs> reduced <laughs> somewhat. Um, but uh, the Osric thing, um, they never really finished shooting it. And uh, you'll see some of the shots that they have of varying angles, but they never recorded it. They never looped it. Um, running time also became a consideration. Very interestingly, if you go and look at Dino De Laurentiis productions from the early 1980s, up really through the mid-80s, they're almost uh, the, the larger ones, uh, the bigger budget ones, are almost exactly the same length. They're about 139 to 137 minutes. And there was actually a writer in the contracts that the director signed that A, Dino would get the final cut, which most directors don't like, but would sign off because they thought they could get away with it, but Dino actually did get the final cut. And uh, the other thing was that uh, they had to be a certain length, and I think they were like 138, 139 minutes. And Dino had some kind of arcane calculation that this was the outside running time that you could go with uh, in order to get a certain amount of shows into a certain amount of theaters on a certain amount of days so the exhibitors would be happy, the distributor would be happy, and then in turn the production uh, stu entity, the studios, would be happy and then be happy with Dino. So uh, there was time constraints. There was a running constraint on it, and Conan went a little long. So Melius snipped some of the stuff because of that, some of the other things that he you know, he had personal reasons for it, like Valerie. And uh, they started to get a little tight on money. But there was this one sequence uh, where Subutai, um, the character played by Jerry Lopez, is seen climbing the Tower of Serpents uh, using these climbing knives. And in the film, you see the three of them, Arnold, uh, uh, Sandal, and Jerry Lopez, going up the side of this set, this tower. 
And you can see that, that Jerry Lopez was the first one to get up there. And what there was was a whole little scene up there. There was a, a, a sentry who was a supernatural creature. And it was like this troll uh, with a third eye on the back of its neck that opened up and saw Subutai coming from the back. And Subutai sta- – they had a fight. And Subutai stabbed it into the back of the neck. And the idea was it was going to dissolve into like this black goo. And they shot everything but the optical. They didn't do the, as far as I know, and I'm, I could be wrong with this, but I'm 99% sure that they didn't do the effect. Uh, that would have been done, you know, in post. Uh, but on set, they actually did shoot that. They made this guy up looking like a monster. There are a few stills that survive of it. And, uh, so that's another one. There was a bit more of the, of the serpent, uh, the fight with the snake with Arnold, but I don't think, uh, John Milius liked the way it looked. Although it was odd because, uh, um, that snake was built by a guy named Nicky Alder, Nick Alder, who was a uh, special effects uh, a technician and supervisor of what they call floor effects, practical effects that they use in front of the camera while you're shooting. <clears throat> and that snake was real. That was in two sections that were about 18 feet long each. And one was the front half and the other was the half. Uh, bottom half, and it was all controlled hydraulically through hydraulic rams and whatnot, and they had like joysticks off camera. It wasn't computer controlled. It was like um, oil, hydraulic uh, oil rams that were doing it. And people were riding that snake. Uh, you weren't supposed to do this because there was, of course, a, you know, an insurance thing. But, uh, they, you know, they're off in Spain and uh, <laughs> they're, they're doing what they're going to do. And I actually got to ride that snake. Nikki let me ride it. Um, you could grab onto the head before they skinned it, before they put the skin on. There were all these metal hoops around it. And they were like a, a, a kind of an aluminum spine that went down the center of it. And then all of the hydraulic cables went. But you could hold on and there was a little like makeshift saddle. And he said, do you want to ride the snake? And I said, sure. And it was in their little warehouse that they had. Uh, for their shop and I got on it and there was a, a god awful like like that and the next thing I know this thing was just picking me up the head and I was right behind the head and I almost bumped my head on the top of the rafters I was about 15 feet off the ground it was the coolest thing <laughs> You know, and I'm saying, I'm saying, I'm, I was saying, don't get over, you know, I said, okay, I, I'm really enjoying this. Don't get over enthusiastic down there, you know, <laughs> watch, watch what you're doing. And he's laughing because, you know, we were all like little kids, you know, doing what you weren't supposed to do while the principal wasn't around. Um, but, uh, yeah, so. You know, there were some of that was cut. Uh, the, you know, the beast uh, with three eyes was cut. Um, originally, Arnold had a longer speech about, you know, he was trying to figure out, you know, this philosophy of life. And at the end, in the uh, restored version of Conan the Barbarian, he does have that little speech where he talks about, you know, you know what it means to be a warrior and what it means to be a man. And interestingly enough, the thing about the riddle of steel is never addressed in the film it's brought up by william smith who incidentally is doing a jack palance imitation uh Delius <laughs> wanted jack palance and he couldn't get him and so he directed william smith as jack palance and if you look and you and you listen he's doing jack palance and it's intentional which i always thought was a hoot um william smith by the way who is such a bad boy in all those biker movies of the 70s and, you know, and, and in the Fa- Falconetti and Rich Man, Poor Man and, oh, the many other things he was in. And he was always this, like, you know, menacing thug. He is a highly sophisticated, multilingual intellectual who's married, 
you know, was married to a, a Russian wife for many years. He used to be an interpreter at the UN when he was a young man. I mean, you know, <laughs> just things you would not expect of William Smith, you know. Uh, but um, he asked young Conan about the riddle of steel, and the riddle of steel was that um, you couldn't you couldn't trust. Uh, wait, 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 wait. Uh, it was not. It was not. It was not the sword that you trusted, because he he says this you can trust. You can't trust man. You can't trust beast. This you can trust. But he says now what is the riddle of steel? And the riddle of steel wasn't that. It was that yes, the steel was great, but the riddle was that even as great as the steel was, it was only as strong as the arm that welded it. You know wielded it and so basically it was this conundrum it was a paradox you had this you had this this weapon uh the weapon the way of uh, protecting yourself and the warrior's way is very powerful but it's only as powerful as the warrior himself and that's what it basically got down to and and there was uh, some dialogue later down in the film where conan figured this out but they just kind of set it up and then, then they just dropped it you know so um Interesting. So there were little, there were a bunch of little things, but major. I would say really the only major, major thing was the uh, the whole thing with the uh, uh, the beast with three eyes. Although, also Conan was supposed to originally, when he's a slave and a pit fighter, uh, his in the film as it is now, his master gets drunk and just lets him go. Well, originally there was an earthquake, and Conan was put into this cage that was like in the side of a cliff, and and an earthquake breaks the cage. And lets him free, and they have that set, but they never got around to shooting the quake. So I think money again or scheduling, and they did something very quick, <laughs> which is basically okay. Let's rewrite this, and you know the the slave master will get drunk and just let him free. You know, so they 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 saved a lot of money right there, I guess, on effects. But uh, yeah, stuff like that, stuff like that. I've seen some stills of uh, it. Almost looks like Samuel Berkman as a. Pit fighter as well. Yeah, Do you know yeah, anything yeah, about yeah, that? Absolutely. Uh, in fact, um, yes, uh, I, you're absolutely correct. Uh, there was a sequence where uh, they inadvertently crossed paths. Uh, she is also a pit fighter, and um, uh, but they don't fight each other. He's coming out of the pit and she's going in, and so they're like, huh. you know, it's next match, right? And so it's like, oh, this is you know for for ordained, you know, they're destined to meet down the line, you know, and they don't recognize each other years later but the audience was supposed to also uh conan uh and and there was a scene where he uh uh Milius had an assistant named sorallo who was a martial artist and uh, also a uh, uh gosh what was she she was ballet a boxer she's a beautiful tall uh exotic dark-haired young woman uh Quite, quite intelligent, multilingual, but uh, she got to play a female pit fighter that Arnold hacked her head off and then held the head up, and everyone was like, hey, and there are stills of that, but they they kind of cut around that. You don't really see that it's a woman he's you know cutting up. <laughs> I guess someone somewhere in the previews or you know one of the executives said, oh my God, Arnold Schwarzenegger just cut off a woman's head, you know. But oh, also Amelius. Uh, uh, oh, now I see it's all coming back. Um, on the raid in the Sumerian village at the beginning, there was a a, a quick shot. Uh, filmmakers do, but they don't do it as much anymore because they don't have to. Um, because um, certain standards have loosened. But there was uh, there was actually a shot that Amelius purposely put in of a baby being skewered on the end of a lance 
on a, on a, on a, on a pole when the Sumerian village of Conan's boyhood is being overrun by Thulsa Doom and his hordes. And this baby is on the end of the spear, like flapping around all over the place. And Neil oh, thought geez. it was hilarious. And everyone's saying, John, you'll never get that in. And they said, he said, of course I won't. He says, but they'll cut that. And they won't notice all this other stuff I'm trying to get in. And so that was a, a dodge. You know, he would shoot things like purposefully over the top, you know, uh, just so that, you know, they'd say, oh, you've got to take that out. And he'd, he would say, no, I'm not going to. And he'd pretend to fight, knowing full well when he shot it, he was going to take it out. Finally, right. one last thing I remembered. Um, there was a scene, a shot of Conan's mother when she's beheaded by Thalsa Doom at the beginning of the film. There was a very elaborate um, Again, cable-controlled head uh, that was made up of the actress uh, who uh, did that and uh, played Conan's mom. And uh, there was a shot that they did because I was there and I even took some photos of it that I have in my archives of them prepping this head where you had the head in the snow and the camera was shooting straight down on it like from a God's eye point of view and the mouth and the eyes were moving and slowly just stopped while gouts of blood came out and stained the snow all around it. And they did a close up of that and that got taken out. And I'm not quite sure if that got taken out because of the gore factor or, or that Melius was not happy with the way it looked because it looked a little robotic to me when I saw it. Um, you know, who knows? I did see it in, I did see it in dailies. Um, you know, uh, later, uh, I was fortunate enough to be invited to see those, uh, pretty early on. So I got to see a lot of the rough footage. Um, and I remember thinking, well, this might work. It might not work. You know, once they, if they cut away from it quickly enough or if they put some sound effects in or blah, 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 blah. But that shot never showed up anywhere. So that was another thing they cut up. The woman that played Conan's mother, Nadiuska, was she as striking in real life as she is in the film? More so. She was drop-dead gorgeous. And she's one of those people that had it, you know? You, you you always hear about this indefinable, elusive quality where the camera has some mystical, uh, almost sexual relationship, uh, you know, with, with a person in front of it, be they male or female. Uh, she had that in spades. But she had it also off camera she would there was a certain regality about her she she was very regal what can i tell you uh she uh walked uh like a panther she kind of glided she had perfect posture she had supreme self-confidence not quite arrogant but almost and uh funny story uh <laughs> i don't know if i should tell this well all right i'll i'll, I'll, I'll say it in a nice way um Melius was smitten and uh uh, uh Nadiuska was quite popular in Spain at the time as a homegrown actress of note. Uh, she had done television and films and was pretty well known in Spain and a big name. And uh, Melius tried to date her and she, she kind of snorted and said no. <laughs> you know, and uh, that's very funny. You know, and I just always, so you always hear about like, you know, directors betting the leading ladies and well, here's one that didn't really work out. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember, uh, you know, that I, I remember that he, everyone was taken with her. I, I found her very, uh, very, very sweet and, uh, boy, tough as nails. She had been through it, you know. And I remember briefly talking to her about her career. She had that knowing, I've seen it all and been there and here I am still standing and, you know, you know that kind of thing. You know, so she was very interesting. Yes, very striking. Very exotic. Her eyes, as I recall. Valerie Quinesson, too. And Sandal. You know, it's interesting. All the, all the major women in that have all got, 
you know, they're not only they are not only willowy and shapely and, and tall and strong looking, but they they have a certain exoticism about them. And you would think, okay, obviously, because this is supposed to be an exotic, you know, prehistoric world. But there was something about the eyes of all of the female actors in that movie that I, I remember just being like just transfixed with all of them. I would I would sit and I just chat and I'd always drift to their eyes because they were all just just beautiful. I mean, Sandal has these big you know, dark eyes and uh, Valerie Cornesson had these almost purple eyes and, you know, uh, bluish purple and uh, Cassandra Gaviola, you know, had this uh, Asian, you know, almond shape and, and, and uh, Nadiuska had a kind of a greenish cat's eyes, you know, and it was just, I, I still remember that to this day. It was really an interesting assemblage of performers on that picture. Okay, one more question about weird stills that I've seen out on the internet. I've seen pictures of Arnold with these almost like Cro-Magnon creatures. Yeah, yeah, they're they're actually in the film. You just don't get a chance to see them. Yeah, they're they're the guys. Um, when uh, they make the raid on the orgy chamber to kidnap the princess, when everyone's lying around drugged and it looks like a Frazetta painting with a half-naked slave girls, <laughs> which I forgot to tell you is the very first shot that I saw. <laughs> I remember walking in and saying, oh, Salmon, what good timing, good time." <laughs> and, um, but, uh, yeah, as they come out, um, they, uh, there's, there's a fight that Sandal and, uh, uh, Arnold has with these guys that kind of shamble down these corridors by themselves. And they're supposed to be like prehistoric. They are supposed to be like Neanderthals. They're supposed to be, uh, a subhuman, uh, off, offshoot of Homo sapiens that Thulsa Doom uses as guards. And, uh, I don't think the makeup passed muster. You know, for close-ups, and so they were shot from a distance. But those are those guys in those tunnels. Also, the idea was too that some of them were supposed to be the guys with the leather masks that come in with the people soup, you know, and pour that green stew that's got the arms and the heads and the legs that they're all you know eating. Split Peter with hand. Oh, nice. <laughs> That's a terrible pun. Um, but yeah, they were supposed to be the uh, Cro-Magnons too. Cro-Magnons and Neanderthals. It was supposed to be, you know, guys who were, uh, proto, proto-humans, uh, that uh, were still around in the shadows. There were little touches like that all through the first film, which I, I really enjoy. My biggest problem with the first Conan film is that it starts strong when it, it narratively kind of slackens in the second act, and this is just me, and then it picks up again in the third act. But you have to remember, you know, we're talking uh, right around the same time as the Raiders of the Lost Ark and just a few years after Star Wars. So this was all virgin territory in terms of, you know, mainstream, big-budget commercial filmmaking. And uh, for a little kid like me, uh, at, who at nine had discovered this character, to actually be a part of this, was just you know a, 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 a vision beyond imagining. It was just so amazing to me, and I remember coming back. I was actually hired towards right after the end of principal photography by Universal to start to promote this film. Oh, <laughs> here's a good story. Um, I, I came back from Spain and I was given all these photos and stuff to use for my articles and also i had taken pictures and i asked the studio is it okay if i uh, the san diego comic-con was still around back then but in a much smaller uh iteration iteration than it is today and um i've been involved with comic-con since 
its origins. I know the people who started it. I was living in San Diego at the time, and I was one of its earliest guests, frankly. And I used to bring down movies from the studios all the time. And I, I said, well, maybe I could do a little talk on Conan to kind of jumpstart this. And the studio said, fine, but they had not cleared it with the De Laurentiis people. And I didn't know this. I was still very green. And um, so I did my little dog and pony show, and everybody seemed to really like it because I was very enthused. <laughs> and two days later, I get a letter from the legal department of De Laurentiis Productions threatening to sue me. <laughs> Oh, jeez. <laughs> and I went, what? I said, I'm your biggest fan. What the hell? You know? And uh, I, I wrote this impassioned letter back to them. And six months later, I was working for De Laurentiis. This is how weird this town can be. Um, another person on the second Conan film who worked on the first one had not been paid for his work on the first one and was working on the f- second one as a very prominent member of the uh, uh, crew and uh, was suing uh, De Laurentiis at the same time that he was drawing a salary from it. <laughs> and you just, you learn, you know, I mean, you, we've all heard these stories about how crazy this industry can be. Um, but uh, it all turned out for the best for me because I actually did become sort of the official voice of Conan there uh, for a, a, a while just before it came out. And I, I just, it seemed like, you know, kismet, as they used to say, fate, you know, serendipity, synchronicity, whatever you want to call it. You know, there I was at the right place at the right time with the right amount of passion and knowledge and kind of ambition and uh, all came together. And in many ways, Conan, although I had been involved in other films before then, um, including The Black Hole, which is another one that somehow has endured over these years, um, I owe a lot to that first Conan film. That, that, that established me in a lot of ways. And uh, it, at least, it, like I said earlier, it poured the foundation. And I've built on it ever since, including the book that I wrote in 2007 for Dark Horse, uh, Conan the Phenomenon. Yeah, I was going to ask, how did that kind of come about? Well, um, there had been some uh, – I, I knew that this book was going to be done, but originally it was going to be done by someone else and um, in a completely different kind of format. And I was approached to do a very short essay about the two films, and I said, okay, sure. And uh, I did that and got paid for it. And then the project seemed to go into limbo. And um, for whatever reason, the people who were doing it uh, at the beginning were no longer involved. And I got I, I, I knew some people up at Dark Horse who apparently knew about me and Conan and said, uh, well, you know, you really should ask Paul. I mean, he's a guy that knows so much about this character in so many different ways. And um, so Mike Richardson uh, from Dark Horse and I had a meeting, and then I went over and I met with Frederick Malmberg, uh, and uh, he is the head of Conan Properties International, uh, which is the second corporate entity that now owns not only the copyrights but all the trademarks to all of the Robert E. Howard characters. Uh, and we sat down, and it turned out that Fred was a, a, a guy from Sweden uh, who had read all of the uh, 1970s versions of the paperbacks and the comics, and he's a huge Conan. So I thought, oh, okay, good. You know, this is good. And then they tell me, we want a picture book. And I said, well, what's your idea about a picture book? And they said, well, we want it to be a coffee table art book to celebrate Conan's, I think it was his 70th or 75th anniversary. I have to do the math. But I think it was the 70th. Yeah. Uh, No. 75th, 75th anniversary of the character. And uh, because Conan was created in 1932, 
in, on, in, in this story called The Phoenix on the Sword by Robert E. Howard that came out in Weird Tales in 1932. So um, I said, well, look, you know, it seems to me you're missing an opportunity. I mean, you're only doing half of the, the, the project. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, why don't we do a history of the character, both visually as you want it, and I'll throw in the text, and I'll, I'll take him from the origins, and we'll bring him up to date. And they said, fine, you have 5,000 words. And I laughed, and I said, well, I said, that's probably not going to happen. I may not be the person you want to do this. And uh, we went back and forth, and <laughs> it wound up what it is. And uh, it's closer to 60,000 words. And uh, a lot of that material visually comes from my collection. Um, some of it comes from other people. Uh, some of the pulp covers, uh, some of the, uh, obviously, some of the newer Dark Horse uh, Conan title art came from their archives. But a lot of it came from me. I scanned it and, you know, put it in. And uh, that was a real labor of love. Um, in fact, I think the book uh, opens with this ode to my adolescence. And uh, <laughs> it really is. Uh, it's a valentine to the Paul Salmon that used to be. Uh, you know, the, the wide-eyed, uh, naive believer in all things Sumerian. So that was a wonderful, I was, a, I really enjoyed being able to do that. Um, it needs some updating. It came out in 2007. And, uh, you know, there's been the Conan film since then, the one with Jason Momoa, um, which has its ups and downs. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of on a four star, you know, system. It's about a two, two and a half. Um, but boy, that, the depiction that Jason gives of the character, if he had been, Jason is actually a good actor. And I don't think people realize how good he is. Um, you know, uh, Reservation Road, I think it is, or Red Road, whatever it is that he's been doing for the Sundance Channel um, uh, lately with, uh, uh, oh gosh, what's his name? Uh, can't remember. But anyway, Jason is a much better thespian than people give him credit for. And I think he really nailed the actual literary incarnation of the Conan character. Arnold was more of the um, kind of a brooding Euro slash Asian art cinema version of him, whereas Jason's Conan, who is like lean, pantherish, you know, powerful, but at the same time, uh, you know, very intelligent, and uh, you know, uh, you can tell that he's amassed all of this, these skills, and he's good at leading people, and he's principled, and a lot of that comes right out of the story. So I thought, you know, he was very good in terms of like reflecting the literary origins of the character. But once again, I think that for whatever reason, uh, that movie was in development hell for so long. Uh, in the 90s, it was going to be, uh, again, Melius was going to return to the writer and director's chair. It was going to be called Conan, Crown of Iron. And it was uh, a story that John had come up with about King Conan. Conan is now a king and is having to deal with all the headaches and the burdens of you know ruling a kingdom. And at the same time, he has a son who has joined up with people who think that the king is corrupt and want to overthrow him. So his own son is trying to unseat him. And uh, it was a very uh, it was a very political script, and uh, it got close. Uh, Arnold uh, was interested and then not interested, and interested. It was at Warner Brothers, and it was on, and it was thrown off. And then Arnold, of course, ran for governor, and that was the end of that. Um, but the next one that came around, uh, Paradox Entertainment. People say Paradox and Conan Properties International interchangeably because Paradox Entertainment is a software company 
that CPI runs in Sweden. And um, so that group uh, really was frustrated, I think. Fred Malmberg was frustrated that it had taken so long to try to get this thing off the ground, and he wanted something now. And so they got the rights back and did a different deal with New Image uh, and uh, Millennium Films. And uh, kind of like banged a script up very well. I won't say real fast, but let's just say that I think that the screenplay, <laughs> you know, was not completely there. Uh, I can't fault Marcus Nispel's uh, direction. I think it was like, you know, very visually arresting. But again, you know, the characters are kind of pat the situation. You got the crazy wizard. I did like uh, um, Rose McGowan. She was one of my favorite parts of the film. I thought she brought the necessary level of lunacy to that part. I mean, she seemed to really relish playing that, you know, evil sorceress. I mean, there was a real, some juice there. And I thought Jason was good. I thought Rachel Nichols was very comely and very attractive as, you know, the the not so, uh, you know, uh, a swooning maiden, because she wasn't. And uh, the, you know, the, the environments were all interesting, but it was just dramatically flat. And it just didn't work. And uh, I think, you know, the box office figures reflected that. I mean, it just, you know, it was a bomb. Uh, so it was too bad because uh, as someone who's been in the business now for so long, you know, I'm always torn because there's the, there's the critical side of me that wants to say, well, this is why I failed. And then there's the side who works on it and says, you know, Jesus, you know, these people, including myself, just put a year or two of blood, sweat, and tears into trying to get this thing come together. And you hear this over and over again. Any film that gets made, it's a miracle that it ever makes it to the screen. Every single production is fraught with problems and difficulties and unexpected obstacles and you name it. They're, movies aren't easy to make. You know, particularly ones that are run like a factory, you know, out of a factory like the studios are. Um, so you, you, you're, I, I'm, I'm always ambivalent in my reactions. But if I don't work on it, like I didn't on, well, I sort of was around, let's say, to, you know, maybe give some input into. And I talked to Fred about some things about the second Conan the Barbarian in 2011. There's, we had some talks, but nothing nothing even minor but i i was around um having said all that it just didn't work so it was such a shame but you know there is this uh you know the legend of conan uh which has uh, been developing now you know which is once again going back to the idea of arnold you know being king conan and uh this is at uh, back at warner brothers uh, or is it universal now i've forgotten i can't remember i'm sure millennium new image it, it, these things hop around from place to place so quickly it's hard to keep track of them sometimes but they are again trying to you know go back to the drawing board with arnold uh, as the character you know much uh, increased in years you know as a king and i think that's the way to go i mean it would be great cuz then you've got a trilogy of the films i think Frankly, it should be dark. I think it should be disturbing. I should think you should see a warrior in the twilight of his years and uh, really get into maybe the uh, psychological uh, toll that uh, being a barbarian king has exerted on the character. I think that'd be a great way to go. But, you know, who knows? I know that they keep saying they're going to start and then it doesn't. But, you know, that's typical for Hollywood. You really never know when that green light's going to flash. No one does. And uh, when it flashes, sometimes, oh, not sometimes, most times it's like everyone scrambles frantically to get going because no one was really ready for it because you never know when it's coming. 
you know so it's it's just it's a nutty way to do the 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 business model for hollywood has been broken and in dire need of overhaul for a long time but no one wants to listen to me talk about that never before in the history of motion pictures has there been a screen presence so commanding so powerful so deadly he's conan the librarian can you tell me where I can find a book on astronomy? Don't you know the Dewey Decimal System? Conan, the librarian. I'm sorry. These books are a little overdue. <laughs> Conan, the librarian. Tonight, only on U62. All right, so you just heard from Roy Thomas. We'll play a little bit more of the interview with him later on. Also, Ed Pressman, who you might have heard over on our uh, Bad Lieutenants episode. He was on there talking about the Bad Lieutenant films. Great guy. Good to hear from him. And then also Paul Salmon, who we've had on the show a couple times. He was on our Blue Velvet and our Blade Runner episode, on which, uh, Josh, you were one of the uh, guest co-hosts there. So Yeah, that three-hour three episode. <laughs> Yeah, I have a feeling if if we haven't reached the uh, you know two hour mark by now in this episode, I have a feeling that we're probably going to be going well past that one with this one. Oh, so. I'm not complaining. Oh no, no, I you know some people like it. Some people you know some some people complain about the length. Other people they they adjust and they get used to it. They take a deep breath and they're able to handle it. So <laughs> and it's Conan, man. Either go big or go home. One guy who has no problem with going big is Oliver Stone, as we heard in some of those interviews. He was the guy who wrote the first script for the Conan film, and he definitely was going big. He was very much of the idea of, let's go ahead and create this franchise and almost make it like a, um, a James Bond, where we're coming back to Conan every couple of years. And he went for broke in his first script. And I got to say, there's a lot of elements that ended up in Conan the Barbarian, the finished film, especially uh, the first 20, 30 pages. And as his script went along, it just got a little bit more and more out there. And by the end, I mean, it was just this huge battle of mutants on the wasteland and all this Giant kind of stuff. bugs and all this. Oh, God, it was crazy. It's really, I mean, people talk about, oh, yeah, this thing would have been three hours long. It's no, it, it was only like 134 pages, 43, something like that. So it wouldn't have been three hours long. It would have been, you know, 134 minutes or whatever. It it would have been huge, though. The budget for this thing would have been insane. Yeah, I think they originally had it at about 40 million, which for late 70s, that's pretty damn big. I think I think Star Trek the Motion Picture set a record at like 26 million in 1979. I think Star uh, Superman set one before that, and this was like, yeah, I can double that. I can double you. And I, I love John Milius's uh, response to the script, where he referred to it as a total drug fever dream, alluding to the fact that this was Stone very deep in his cocaine phase. And what I find interesting, though, is like I've gone through a lot of these, you know, um, Conan fan sites and uh, the forums and all this kind of stuff. And there's just there's tons of them, um, which is great. I love that there is still such a, a, a passion for this character and for all these different works. And there's one guy who's going through and just like comparing 
what stories kind of inspired Stone, but then also what uh, comics inspired him as well. And there were so many things from the Roy Thomas comic books where it's just like, okay, so he was taking everything that came before. He was taking the Howard, he was taking the DeCamp, but he was also taking the Thomas and kind of weaving it all into what he was doing. And even given it at one point, there's like, I don't want to say a throwaway, but there's there's a little scene in there where we find something from like present day in the script. And so you go, oh, well, this is Conan is actually like a warrior of the wasteland. This is an this is a post-apocalyptic thing. This isn't this lost Hyperion age that we have that we talk about, you know, when Atlantis was still around and everything. This is distant future that Conan is in. So it gives it this kind of interesting spin to it. But again, yeah, it would have just been insanity to try to film this thing and the special effects just it, it i don't know unless you put guys in goofy suits and i don't think that would have necessarily have worked yeah and it's one thing that i really appreciate with milius's take on this because you know he came in afterwards he took the, the stone script and did his own pass at it and as you said incorporated a lot of elements at least in the beginning but one thing i think he did that works in the, the movie's benefit is just scaling everything down and bringing it into a much more savage prehistoric time and as a result the story is incredibly more focused and allows you to explore some more interesting thematics than what were, was present in the stone script I, I like that Milius fully admitted when he came out to the project that he didn't know anything about Conan and that almost would have been the best person to take this on because you've got Milius who is this for better or worse this guy's a consummate artist I mean he's just amazing you know we we've talked about him on the show before we we um, had a whole episode about the Milius documentary that came out last year I mean amazing amazing guy he's so talented and that his name isn't out there with like Coppola Spielberg you know these guys who were his, his contemporaries Lucas you know, it's it's kind of a shame, but he's like the older brother in this whole thing, and he's the one who was playing with the, the dangerous toys while these guys were still in the sandbox kind of stuff, and he's out there, you know, braces that machismo and everything, so he's kind of the perfect guy to come into this Conan world and get himself educated about this, and then do what needs to be done. I mean, and talk about an amazing storyteller brings so much stuff to this that I, I think he was the man for the job. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you compare what, how stone wrote the original, opening scenes between Conan and his father and then the pass that Milius did on it just fleshing it out and adding so much poetry to the discussion of the riddle of steel and what it means to embrace the sword he is absolutely incredible at stuff like that and I think that's one of the reasons this film lasts and uh, endures like it does despite some of its uh, detractors is because of the poetry and the skill of Milius. If they had made Oliver Stone's script, it would have been like if Jedorowski had got to make his Dune. It probably would have been a fantastic movie, but Jedorowski's Dune wouldn't have been Dune. I think Stone's Conan, it wouldn't have been Conan, but it would have been a, probably a fantastic film. John Milius did have the foresight to kind of scale that back, but at the same time, I mean, Mike, on Radiodrome, you and I did a whole Dirty Harry retrospective 
I can't help but see John Milius coming from the first Dirty Harry movies into this. He kind of brought that sensibility because you tell me you can't see a little bit of Dirty Harry Callahan in Milius's version of Conan. Oh, yeah, that whole idea of what is right and what is wrong. And, yeah, no, it just the, he he imbues everything that he does with his touch. And it's, if you, as long as you like it, you're in for a treat. And he does it so well in this. When we uh, heard the Ed Pressman interview, you know, he was saying that the biggest thing when it came to this film was that Schwarzenegger was the guy. You know, there would be no Conan film without Arnold Schwarzenegger. He was part of the package. And I, again, I think they did a really good job. I mean, I've seen Hercules Goes Bananas. I've seen some of these earlier films that Schwarzenegger was in. I think they did a really good job to cut down the dialogue and you know josh you were saying before we even started recording you were amazed at just how little dialogue there is in this film and i think well that works for two reasons one it allows milius to tell a story without words i mean milius is a classic filmmaker and he knows you know sergio leone could tell an, an entire film with probably just a handful of words you know there wasn't a lot of stuff going on and like fistful of dollars and a few dollars more less is more when it comes to that but he is a poet when it comes to it. So having just these little moments of poetry, having the Mako voiceover, which I know was originally supposed to be a Conan voiceover, but using what you got and knowing what you got, I mean, Mako's voice is freaking amazing. And Arnold, at the time, people were still just afraid that this guy's accent was going to be too thick to understand or is just going to be too funny for our american ears and the, the, the funniest story about that is how dino de Laurentiis, who can who is barely intelligible when he's speaking english <laughs> thought nobody can understand him and one of the producers was like dino nobody can understand you and from the Milius documentary, there was another anecdote because uh, De Laurentiis didn't want uh, Arnie, and you know M- Milius was definitely backing him. So he's just like, you, "No, no, Arnold Schwarzenegger, you pick anybody else." So apparently Milius just looks at him and just says, "Dustin Hoffman, get the fuck out of my office." <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting the other people that were considered for the role i mean uh i've heard uh charles bronson was considered sylvester stallone william smith who would go on to play uh conan's father in the film but you try to imagine this movie with any of those guys and it just doesn't work arnie is conan Oh, yeah. And it's so funny listening to the audio commentary the other day. They were talking about all the people that they had to surround him with, like all of the enemies that he faces. They all had to be like six, four and above. I mean, Arnold is a monstrous human being. And to pit him against any quote unquote normal sized person is just going to look ridiculous. So everybody that he has to face off against in the film has to be a giant or bigger. You know, <laughs> just like where can we find these people that are just, you know, six foot five and above to surround him with? I mean, we're going to see that a lot more when it comes to Conan the Destroyer, where we just like, oh. okay, look in the phone book where uh, who do we know that's you know seven foot five you know yeah will chamberlain uh, and andre the giant which contributed to one of my favorite pictures on the internet where you have arnie who as we said is not a small man but between those two one in the photo oh yeah i I love the picture where they're carrying him and it's just it really does sell the sheer size of wilt the stilt and andre the giant with all of that said do you think we would ever 
see but more of like, like what I said, the the maybe Matt Damon as Conan as more of the Robert E. Howard Conan because you had Ralph Mueller play Conan in the TV series. You have Arnold, and then you have Jason Mimosa or whatever his name is for for the for the crap make. So, do, do you think we as a as a movie going culture, do you think moviegoers would accept say a, a Matt Damon or a Gerard Butler as Conan? Even though that's closer to the original work? Well, honestly, to me, out of those people that were mentioned, I actually think that Jason Momoa's physicality is closer in line to what was established in the Howard stories. Just the way he moved and some of that musculature. He's not as big as Arnie. He's not as big as Ralph Mueller. So to me, I think that was a step in the right direction, at least for making something that was closer to the original text. But uh, I honestly don't think you will see anybody much more slimmer than him. No, I don't think so either. I don't think that people, just like people wouldn't uh, accept Arnold's accent, people wouldn't accept a uh, a smaller barbarian. Which is actually kind of funny because this was Arnie at kind of the smallest during his heyday, you know, his bodybuilding prime. Because he had to drop about 30 pounds of mass just to meet uh, De Laurentiis' demands for a slightly more athletic looking guy. So, you know, I think he dropped down from 240 down to 210 or something like that. And you compare it to how he looks in Conan the Barbarian to even before when he was in Pumping Iron or afterwards when he would do Conan the Destroyer. This is a relatively slimmed down Arnie. But but then that said, look at how most of the ripoffs would, would have someone like Miles O'Keefe or Mark Singer who were very slimmed down actors. Do you think that was a conscious thing that – for the ripoffs, they went with smaller actors or just they got who they got at that point? I think part of it was who, whoever they could get because in the wake of Conan, you still had them reaching out to bodybuilders. I mean there was the Barbarians with the Barbarian Brothers. The Lou Ferrigno made a resurgence with some of his Hercules films. And I think it was just whoever they could get at the time. It's like, okay, does this guy look good with his shirt off? Cast him. Because Mark Singer and Miles O'Keefe are quite skinny and small, and they're both <laughs> barbarians. Well, they went the same routes later on when they did Cole the Conqueror and cast Kevin Sorbo. Who, he was despite a the fact, Hercules. Yeah, he was. He really was. I, I think they did a really smart job again cutting down on the dialogue, but also just when it comes to telling the story and the way that they weave these different ideas together i mean the way that really the whole movie is uh, so much a, a, a series of introductions you know we're introduced to the world of conan we're introduced to young conan and his father and mother and that whole idea of william smith at the beginning telling the riddle of steel and talking about this and setting up the whole world and you know as i'm re-watching the movie today my wife's like oh god that green screen effect is so terrible and i'm like no no it's it for me it works this whole scene of William Smith in front of these clouds and everything. This is, to me, it's like this kind of primordial type scene, you know, where you have the father handing the sword down to the son and giving him these words of advice. And really, Conan isn't going to have much more time with his father. And I, for me, it just really works. The secret of steel has always carried with it a mystery. You must learn its riddle, Conan. You must learn its discipline. For no one no one in this world can you trust not men not women not beasts this you can trust
and then we're introduced to Thulsa Doom and his folks, and we. I don't think we even get one line of dialogue from James Earl Jones at this point. All played silent. You know, just this whole idea of him coming in, though the all of his men tearing up the village, killing William Smith, eventually James Earl Jones killing Conan's mother and putting him into slavery. And it isn't until like almost 20 minutes into the film until we're introduced to Arnold Schwarzenegger as Conan. And that moment when he is there at the wheel of pain, where he's been for 12, 15 years, I can't even tell how long he's been there, but he's, they've gone from this whole group of children to him now as an, a young adult male pushing this wheel. And that's the only thing he knows how to do is push this wheel just amazing when he looks up and it's arnold like now i get chills you know did you notice something i noticed this specifically during the wheel of pain scene that a large chunk of thulsa dooms people the like the ones that are close to him are redheads because there's there's that that redhead that's putting young you know pre Arnold Schwarzenegger Conan into the shackles. The guy that buys him is a redhead. The guy that leads him up the mountain is a redhead. Sven Oli Thorson's got reddish hair. Did, did do you think that was trying to say something like maybe they're all part of the same family, if you will, of the Thulsa Doom followers? Well, you see, I always assumed that the little kid who was, you know, shackling in young Conan into the wheel of the wheel of pain was the guy who later came on to buy him. That just as Conan grew, so too did this child, and later on became Conan's master. That's a possibility. I just noticed that the kid was a redhead, and then a lot of the villains tended to be redheads. So I'm like, that had to be some sort of a intentional note that John Milius put into the film. Well, I know he was very conscious of how James Earl Jones was going to look in this film, and that Jones has this, well, he's got the blue contacts, he's got his hair is all straightened out, this long, straight hair. He looks like he's from another world, and I know that Milius has spoken about him as being like the last of his race. You know, he is this ancient race who eventually we'll find out can turn into snakes. Well, there's also the fact that him being black, other than the first opponent Arnold fights in the pit, there's not a single black character outside of Thulsa Doom in the entire movie. Yeah, and Jones is looking pretty light-skinned in this film. It's, it is this kind of like, almost like Twilight kind of thing. Like he's between worlds of, you know, black and white, um, uh, between human and snake. So it's it's interesting that he gets to have this kind of look. And I, I wouldn't put it past Millis at all about the whole redhead thing. I would definitely think that, especially in this world where you have clans and all this kind of stuff, and, you know, people very much um, identify with where they're from as, as to say, what kind of person they are I would definitely think that having a red tinge to Thulsa Doom and his followers or especially to his followers I should say is definitely intentional I even noticed in the deleted scene of King Osric's death the guards that kill him have red hair and part of it also might be just a nod, nod to the world that Howard created, because as they mentioned, Conan is taken north for his slavery, and the north people, the Vanir, were basically Viking analogs, so they have the redhead gene going in there. And that may have been a consideration. The other th- things may have been also a consideration, you know, t- kind of putting forward this redheaded equals evil. But uh, it's hard to say. 
Still does in our current society, too. So we've got the introduction of Arnold. I, I think, uh, El Gorio, you're going to talk about that uh, monobrow that he has. <laughs> well, I was going to say, you know, you were talking about when Arnold raises his head and you get chills. I think one of the things that really contributes to that and one of the things that contributes overall, overwhelmingly, to the success of this film has got to be the Basil Polidoro's uh, score. Oh, yeah. Because this That's score, the definition of epic. It very much yeah. is. You know, I, I have a lot of affection for Conan. I rank it amongst one of my favorite movies of all time. But unequivocally, I will say the score for Conan by Basil is my favorite movie score ever. It is one that from I can continue. Opening drums. Indeed. Yeah. Right on from Anvil Akram right to the end. And I love his approach to scoring it, that it was almost like setting out to compose an opera. That you can listen to the soundtrack and get an entire narrative arc just from the music. You could probably watch this movie without any dialogue and just have the music going along, and most of it would play. As we mentioned, there's very little dialogue, so what really drives this film, what drives the spirit and the th- and a lot of the themes of this movie is the music. It's an emotional score, and also the fact that this is, this is not me bitching about Basil Polidorus' score, but how much it's been bastardized. As I was re-watching the film last night, I'm like, this is modern-day trailer music. Oh, yeah. Movie, tra- movie trailers adopted his style for that big epic Avengers and Lord of the Rings. And I'm like, this has been bastardized into trailer music. Hans Zimmer owns, owes a lot to Basil Polidorus in this. Oh, story. yeah. <laughs> well, then then I, I've been done this a couple of times tonight. Let me ask you this, then. Since Marconi was the original choice to score this movie, do you think it would have worked as well without Basil Pol- Polidorus' score? Even though Marconi is a, is a fine is a fine composer. I don't know if I can ex- accept even just in retrospect a different score to this film. I would say no because when you actually saw Morricone take a stab at this sort of genre because he did the score for Red Sonia, it just wasn't as epic as what Polidoro said. His was more light, it was kind of lilting, it was embracing I don't know, just kind of softer themes. And don't get me wrong, I love Morricone's scores. But Basil brought something to this that I don't think uh, Morricone would have been able to capture. And when he finally got the chance, he didn't. I think there was also a relationship at this point between Milius and Polidora. So they had that working thing going on, kind of like Morricone and Leone had had at one point, and that Polidorus would eventually go on and have with like Verhoeven. So I think that their working relationship is really also what helped with this, and also knowing that there wasn't going to be a lot of dialogue and relying on this Polidora score so much. I don't necessarily see that Morcone he might have he could have pulled it off yes but yeah again going back to Red Sonia there's some great music in Red Sonia so much so that I actually you know went out and and uh, bought a couple tracks off the score because it's like wow this song works this one really does but they're score music they're not necessarily that operatic thing that we have going on inside of Conan the Barbarian and we're going to see the same score used again in Conan the Destroyer, much to Conan the Destroyer's uh, detriment. Because but it's kind of watered down in Conan the Destroyer. It is. It's very watered it, down. It, 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 the way I look at it is you, you took it for Conan and you made the TV movie version of the score for Conan the Destroyer because it's similar enough that you can tell it's Basil Polidorus, but it just seems almost like he didn't give a shit. Like it was just, just, just 
put it out there. Well, you hear some of the same exact music cues, and you're just like, oh, yeah, this is from the orgy. This is from this. And, oh, yeah, it's it's very much like – it's almost like the – difference between superman one and superman two where it's the john williams score but it's being done by somebody else i was so surprised to see that it was polydorus's name on destroyer because i was like oh they must have just take you know bought the rights to the music and had somebody else redo it but no i think he was just cashing the check on that one because it was just like this is yeah this isn't good at all and yeah just to hear those same cues and you're like oh i remember this from the first movie this was a great scene what's this same music doing behind this kind of shitty scene i'm gonna make a uh, an equivalent a pop culture equivalent this would be like basil polidorus's score being guns and roses sweet child of mine and then the conan the destroyer score being cheryl crow's sweet child of mine cover and it kind of speaks to the quality of destroyer as well because it is essentially it has so many of the elements of the original film but all of them are watered down all of them are made a little bit softer more uh, family friendly and it's reflected in the softer t- uh, the score that uh, basil t- t- tuned in for it maybe he just saw the final f- picture and it's like well they're not going as hardcore as uh, what milius did i guess i shouldn't either you know what it actually comes across more like more like they're trying to rip off one of their ripoffs, because the score in Conan the Destroyer, stylistically, is much closer to the Beastmaster score than it is the Conan the Barbarian score. And it also kind of meets the uh, sensibilities of R- the director Richard Fleischer, because you know his prior to that, you know he had done uh, similar films that were kind of paid or were kind of influenced Milius when he did Conan, because uh, Fleischer did Vikings in '58, I think it was, which those kind of movies were you know more swashbuckly, they were lighter in tone than what Milius would do with that. So I think. Yeah, they were more fun, and I think they were trying to go for a similar tone with Conan the Destroyer, and uh, from the sounds of it, from all the, you guys, I don't think it worked for you guys uh, either. It, did, it definitely didn't work for me. I've got plenty of bitching I can do about that one. So I talked about the introduction of Conan, and then shortly thereafter, we get the introduction of Subatai, who is a great character. Uh, this one is whole cloth um right out of Milius. I mean, this guy's named after, what, Genghis Khan's advisor or something. I mean, this is such a Milius kind of thing to do. And then casting Jerry Lopez, a world-famous surfer in this role and who had worked on Big Wednesday, which we covered forever ago on the the projection booth, casting him in this and and having this whole surfing connection and everything is just amazing. I was going to play this later, but let's go ahead and take another break, and we're going to play back the interview with Jerry Lopez about him being Subutai and about the wide world of surfing. So what are we going to talk about? Well, let's talk a little bit about surfing. I think you know a thing or two about that. Mm, I've been doing it for a little while. hope I know something. Is it just the thing to do when you're born in Hawaii to pick up a surfboard? Well, when I grew up, you know, it was the beach. That was pretty much the only thing to do. And at the beach, it looked like the surfers were having the most fun. It was a pretty easy thing to fall into. Of course, you know, it was a different, much different world of surfing back then than it is today. I mean, you know, it's a very small world. And, you know, the surfing was, well, you could say it was more recreational than uh, the seriousness that it approaches uh, today. But it was 
what we all did in Hawaii back in the 50s and through the 60s. I read that you were the Hawaii state champ when you were 14 years old. Well, you know, like I said, it was really a small world. Um, <laughs> I thought being the Hawaii state champ would, I don't know, get me something. And I went to, a, you know, the shop that I used to go to all the time and told the owner I won. He said, so what? <laughs> so what was, um, you know, kind of gave me a, a an idea of where contests really fit into the big scheme of things, somewhere near the bottom. Consequently, I was never much of a contest surfer after that. You have appeared in just a ton of documentaries. What was it about the 70s and kind of surf documentaries that went together so well? You know, decade of the 70s was really the the period in the, you know, again, short history of surfing up till then that a, a spot called the Pipeline began to be surfed with some degree of success. I mean, uh, you know, it was always a beautiful wave, but the equipment limitations uh, just made, uh, well, in the surf movies previous to that period of time, the pipeline would generally appear in the wipeout section, you know, where the surfboards and the bodies were falling out of the sky pretty much just because of the design of the surfboards back then, the shape and design um, really didn't allow for, you know, riding that kind of wave, which was a very steep, fast-breaking wave with any degree of of, uh, success. And it wasn't until the boards started to go shorter and, you know, the design started to evolve to more of a high-performance style of surfboard that, you know, the wave at the pipeline was, um, you had a chance of of successfully riding it. And uh, I just, you know, happened to be at that uh, period in time of the, you know, evolution of of the equipment that, uh, and I liked that, that kind of wave that, you know, I I um, was featured in a lot of films, and you know, part of it was that that spot, the pipeline, was pretty easy to film because it, it broke much closer to shore than most of the other breaks. And photogenic aspect, it was uh, a pretty spectacular-looking wave, especially you know when you fill the the whole uh, frame <laughs> with with just the wave and the surfer either making it or even not making it was uh, still pretty spectacular. Now, you had a hand in helping to shape the the way that surfboards are, are formed or, or, I guess, shaped themselves. Um, what were boards like before, and then what did you kind of help bring them to be? Well, you know, when the surfboards went to foam in the mid-50s, that was really the the thing that opened surfing up to a lot of people just because, you know, previously the boards made out of wood were pretty heavy. Um, and once they started making them out of foam, then, you know, 
girls started surfing and, and guys that were just beginning, um, started to have, you know, some success at it. And in the late sixties, the surfboard shape started to, uh, go smaller, shorter in length. And it was, you know, in that time, I guess it was about 1968 that I started making my own surfboards rather than, you know, going to a, a surf shop and buying them, one made by somebody else. And at that point in time, it also um, gave me a livelihood. I mean, it, it was a job, <laughs> not one that my parents um, had hoped that I'd have, but one nonetheless um where, you know, I was able to uh, support myself to be able to go surfing pretty full-time basis just by making surfboards and also to advance my own, you know, skill level at it just by virtue of the fact that, you know, I could build boards that uh, fit the style of surfing I was wanted to do and, and was attempting to do and, you know, specifically at that place called the pipeline which coincidentally happened to be photographed quite a bit through that period as well and so that you know allowed me to to, i guess garner some fame so to speak and and uh you know become kind of known to the the then small world of surfing and you know that wave is still um kind of the measure of how the top surfers in the world today and the contests that they have there, um, which, you know, dates back to, I guess, 1970 or 71, maybe was the first one. Back then, you know, that contest, the Pipe Bastards event only had six guys in it. So it wasn't much of a contest back then, but today it's, you know, one of the biggest ones in the world of surfing. How did you and John Milius meet? John was making a film called Big Wednesday that was, oh, kind of a, I guess, a story about him growing up as a surfer in the Malibu area and, you know, the characters that that he ran across. And part of that film was the whole, I guess it started in the early 60s and evolved through the early 70s so you know it was about a decade in time and he phoned me up one day because he had written in this story that the main character would meet you know who at in his heyday was the top surfer then as he got older and you know got married and had kids and got a job and um wasn't able to go surfing on the regular basis that he had when he was younger. Um, a big, great day of, of surf comes along, and of course, you know, he goes out on that day and and meets me, who's the new kid on the block, so to speak. And, you know, it was just <laughs> kind of John's fantasy and... Um, Anyway, you know, he phoned me up one day and, and I didn't, I was familiar with some of his pictures, you know, and, but I hadn't known him really or known anything about him except that I 
found out later that I really enjoyed a number of his movies up to then and, uh, you know, asked me if I'd like to be in the film. And I went, sure, why not? I mean, what do I have to do? He goes, well, come on over and I'll tell you all about it. So I flew, you know, I was on Molly when he called and I flew over to California. And from that moment forward, we became friends and uh, became, you know, pretty close. We had a lot in common. We loved storytelling and uh, loved, you know, history and loved surfing. And so we had a lot to talk about. Now, had you done any acting to that point or were you just... No, none at all. How did he work with you in front of the camera? He didn't expect much from me. Uh, you know, he was a great director. He um, That day that I met him in the studio at Warner Brothers, uh, Jan Michael Vincent came in and um, we met. And, you know, we also became friends and started um, hanging out together. And when it came time for, you know, the few little parts that I had in, in Big Wednesday, you know, John, of course, gave me some direction, but he had actually um, spoken to Jan to kind of, you know, help me get through the scenes. And, you know, they're looking back, there was never really, um, like I said, much expected of being, and um, it was pretty easy. I mean, you know, it wasn't any Academy Award performance, but... Um, you know, I was comfortable. I didn't get all nervous and blow my lines or anything. How did you go from that smaller part to such a, a bigger role in something like Conan the Barbarian? Well, again, that was John. You know, we had been spending more and more time together and, and doing, you know, lots of things. And that project came along and he, um, I guess there was a script that Oliver Stone had written and, you know, John read it and pretty much rewrote the whole thing and in doing so wrote in a part for the character that I played and when he wrote that part he wrote it with me in mind you know and when he told me he was doing that I went and and you know gave me the script to read I went geez this is kind of a big deal I don't think I can do that and he goes yeah you can do it and he sent me to uh, Mako had a, a school for Asian actors and he sent me there and I spent quite a bit of time with Mako and um, you know I don't think I ever learned how to act but um, with Arnold and Sandal you know the, none of us could act kind of got along real well <laughs> through the filming and and uh, just kind of stumbled our way through it and you know Mako was there most of the time and went along pretty well. And John, of course, you know, was a um, a great director too. I mean, you know, he always managed to put us all at ease. Um, you know, even Sandal, <laughs> who was a little high strung at times to, um, you know, get through the different uh, days of, of shooting and, and, uh, you know, at the end, geez, it actually came out kind of good. What was the atmosphere like on set for you guys? Oh, it was fun. I mean, for all of us, you know, it was a huge deal for all of us, too. I mean, you know, Sandal had done chorus line, so she was used to, um, you know, 
a big production, but she had quite a role in, in Conan and, and, um, you know, the way I think we all bonded, um, outside of the filming was we spent a lot of time learning how to use the swords with Yamazaki. And, um, that was something that really carried over into the film. And again, you know, that was really, um, brilliant and, and certainly clever on John's part because he was the one who set that all up. And I don't know if, um, he had that in mind, you know, when he did originally set that up and put us together with Yamazaki, I mean, months before we ever started filming, but it was something that really paid off so that we were always really comfortable with each other on the sets, you know, even, well, especially when, you know, we were in the presence of, of, um, Max and, and, uh, James Earl Jones, you know, who needless to say are, um, as good of actors as actors can be. I think that was something that, that John kind of paved the way for us to, to be able to get through these roles and, and, um, kind of be believable in them. I don't know how he figured that out, but it really paid off. I mean, you know, we all became, like I said, not only really comfortable with each other, but pretty good friends too. Um, just, you know, playing with those swords together with uh, Yamazaki, you know, day after day. It was kind of a fun thing. Yeah, we spent six months in Spain. Most of it was shot in and around Madrid. And then the last two months, we went down to the Mediterranean coast there at a place called El Maria, where John had filmed uh, a lot of The Wind and the Lion. That was really almost the best part of it the whole shoot um, you know just because we were we were all staying kind of on a golf course right on the ocean there and there was actually even surf and you know I had brought a surfboard with me it didn't get wet for four months in Madrid but any chance to get a wave um, the last two months I was <laughs> out there paddling around yeah, you must have been itching to to get back to it, I'm sure. At that point in, in my life, that was the longest time that I had ever spent away from the ocean. You know, just those, that four months straight in Madrid. Still, it was really fun. You know, that, that whole production was, was really a, just an outstanding experience. I think for all of us. I think all of us enjoyed it um, just immensely. Ben Davidson had a great role there. He was a terrific character. Um, we spent a lot of time together. Yamazaki spent a lot of time, and uh, he and I used to get on the bus in Madrid, and it was really kind of foolproof. You know, we didn't know where we were going, but the bus would stop right outside uh, of our apartment, and we'd hop on the bus and ride it, you know, till we saw something interesting, and we'd get off and poke around and um and anytime we wanted to go home we'd just cross the street and the bus would be coming back the other way and take us right back to where we started from so we got to drive all over madrid in the bus and you know had a wonderful time what was Mako like to work with terrific what a pro but at the same time you know what a down-to-earth guy 
you know, I, I've always kind of had my own diet, and, you know, lifestyle. And so, especially, um, when we were in Madrid, you know, I, I, uh, had an apartment that had a kitchen and did all my own cooking. And, you know, Arnold would come over and John and John used to, you know, say, well, we're going to eat Viet Cong, you know, because basically it's just brown rice and, and vegetables, tofu, um, sometimes some fish, you know, they'd come over and, you know, when they weren't out going for a big giant dinner, they'd come over and eat with me. But Mako didn't actually come until the last few months when we moved down to, uh, I think he was there for a little bit at the end of in the shoot in Madrid and then um, mostly in Almeria. When we moved there, almost everyone stayed in uh, the hotel on the golf course, but uh, Rafaela got me a, a little apartment that had a kitchen in it because she knew, you know, I like to make my own food. So Mako would come over and, you know, he'd eat my simple, you know, brown rice and vegetables. And one day he said, you know what, I'm going to cook for you tonight. And I go, oh, okay. He goes, yeah, you know, when I first came to America, that's how I survived. I, I didn't know how to cook, but I told him I did and got a job as a chef. You know, he was marooned in New York when uh, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and he couldn't get back to Japan. And, you know, that was... <laughs> how he survived was, you know, any odd job he could, but they were, you know, he saw a sign that they wanted a chef. And so he applied for the job and learned how to cook and actually became quite a cook. And he spent this one day all day preparing all these exotic dishes. And that night, John and, and Arnold and Samuel came over and ate all this really great food that Mako had made. He sat there, he didn't eat a thing. And I go, aren't you hungry? He goes, no, I've been picking at it all day. I'm not hungry. When you make it, you never get hungry. You know, we remained friends after that. And uh, I go out to see him every once in a while. And really a, a terrific guy. And I got an image of him in my mind right now. It seems like he would have had a really good laugh. <laughs> he did. Yeah, I think he really enjoyed life. You know, he he had uh, had a tough break at one point, but made the most out of it, and uh, you know, made quite a success of himself. Really, a, a terrific guy. And you know, I don't know if you were familiar with his his acting school, but uh, quite a few um, you know actors, Asian actors, uh, got their start through Mako. And, you know, John knew about it, and John had sent me there, and uh, I'd go there three or four nights a week, and these guys were all real serious, you know, and I'm just going, man, <laughs> what am I doing here? I'm way out of my depth here. Now, I think the, the most fun uh, John and I had was, you know, you got a lot of free time working on a movie, and he and I started making model airplanes in the trailer. And man, I'd scour the city, you know, I knew where every uh, store that sold model airplanes was and I'd get all these planes, you know, and then we'd build them together and paint them all up. I had a great time doing that. What'd you guys do with them after you're all done? 
actually, I took them all home because they were really kind of beautiful. I mean, after that, all my surfboard designs, I started using these camouflage patterns that, you know, were actually authentic patterns that we'd research and paint on the, you know, the proper patterns on the, the proper airplanes. I started painting them on my surfboards and, and uh, it's kind of been my trademark ever since then. So what was this like? You you uh, had the smaller role in Big Wednesday, and now you're one of three leads in what I seem to remember was a fairly big-budget action film. Did this help open any doors for you? Did you get noticed from this role? Well, I got to go on the David Letterman show and got to meet Merv Griffin, go on his show, was asked by someone who knew John that was... Um, an agent if if I was interested in, you know, pursuing a, a career in acting. And I said, well, what do I need to do? And she said, well, the first thing you need to do is you have to um, move here to Los Angeles. And I go, well, I live in Maui. And she goes, well, no, but you need to be here, you know, for casting calls and readings and, you know, meeting people. So you have to live here. And I thought about that for not very long and I went, you know what, I think I'd rather live in Maui. That was kinda it, you know, until John wanted to do the um farewell to the king. Then, you know, off we went to Borneo and, you know, spent a couple months down there. What was that shoot like? It just seems like it must have been from the from an outsider it seems like it might have been a little wild. <laughs> well, you know, a lot of the locations were kind of in the jungle there and I don't know if you've ever been to Borneo but uh, it's quite a jungle <laughs> and it was you know spread on the equator there so it's hot and it was tough for John and and especially for Frank McRae you know I think Frank part of it might have been my cooking but uh, he lost I think 80 or 90 pounds you know just in in those couple of months well, he could afford to lose that way. He was big. He's a big man. But, um, you know, most of it, he just sweated off. It was tough. But, you know, I had spent quite a bit of time down in not that particular area, but further south, you know, in Bali and Java. And uh, I was kind of used to the climate. And, you know, I, I loved the people and I loved the, uh, just the whole culture of that area. So I I've thoroughly enjoyed it. So did I rewrite that you're now you've given up? Well, I won't say given up, but you've kind of switched out surfing for snowboarding. Oh no, I I just snowboard as well. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of an obsessive kind of guy, you know. And for a while, I really got into snowboarding, and you know, in fact, moved the whole family from Maui to to Central Oregon. But, you know, the surfing reasserted itself that I came to my senses, you know, and realized that I'm a surfer <laughs> primarily, and I snowboard sometimes. After the ocean swallowed Atlantis, and before recorded history, there was an age when mythical kingdoms spread across an uncharted world. This was the age of Conan. Enslaved as a boy, Conan grew into a warrior, he escaped to encounter mystery, magic, and myth while forever facing the ultimate master of sorcery. 
Lover, friend, hero. Destiny was to free the oppressed and become a king by his own hand. Kona. All right, thanks to Jerry Lopez for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, fantastic. He was a great, great person to talk to. And so many amazing non-actors in this film. I mean, really, we had seen Arnold in other things. He had been acting for a while. No mortal is superior to Hercules. I am the son of Zeus. As I've told you, I'm Hercules, the son of Zeus. Again, I think they play to his strengths with so much of this film. Play to Jerry Lopez's strengths. I would not have thought that this was only one of his like first film roles. Like, you know, Big Wednesday. Before that, he'd been in a lot of documentaries and everything. But yeah. I, he's right there with the best. And then the introduction shortly thereafter of Valeria, who's played by Sandal Bergman. Again, I thought she was a seasoned actress. She does such a good job in this role. And the three of them, again, not just relying on Arnold for being the hero of the film, to have this kind of team approach to it, I thought was great. The heist, quote-unquote, of the Eye of the Serpent Oh, such a great, great scene. And, you know, really kind of taking a lot of stuff from the Tower of the Elephant story by Robert E. Howard and and just, you know, doing what they need to do with it and turning it into the snakes. And, you know, really, again, in the stone stuff, we don't have the whole idea of the snake cult. And I think that that is really what works so well. And we get those moments throughout the film. I mean, we, we get the snake banner at the beginning. We get the wolf woman talking about snakes at, uh, later on, and then kind of, you know, bringing us back into it with the tower of set and having the snakes in there and everything. So from there on out, you know, it kind of becomes more of this story of revenge because, Arnold's kind of finding his way as we go through here. You know, we talked about his introduction. We didn't talk necessarily about the pit fighting stuff. Some great, great scenes in there. And definitely that whole section provides us with one of the most quotable lines from Conan the Barbarian. You want to talk about amazing dialogue. I mean, right there, prime Milius with the whole idea of what is best in life. To crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and to hear the lamentation of your women. Another thing he lived directly from Genghis Khan, because I believe that oh, yeah. I believe that was that in line was a variation of something that uh, Khan said. Jerry Lopez, I, I agree, he was perfect for that part, and he needed that big ass mustache. I've seen him <laughs> in other photos without a mustache; he looks weird to me. It, it, it's like seeing Sam Elliott and frogs before he had the mustache. He doesn't look right. Though the sad thing is about Jerry Lopez is apparently they didn't trust his vocals, so they decided to uh, redub uh, all of his dialogue, but with by uh, Sab Shimono. It's it is kind of unfortunate because you know you you love the performance that he's giving, but you wonder how much of it is him and how much of it is uh, Shimono. Because you see him in the documentary on the DVD, and he's very quiet and soft-spoken. And then Subutai is very not that. The final piece in the 
the uh, chain here is Mako as the wizard, who we've heard again. This is great. He's the last person introduced in this film, but he's the guy who we've been hearing throughout the entire movie. Which I think, you know, again, I know Arnold was supposed to be the narrator narrator originally, but I think that use of Mako's voice is fantastic, and then to have him be the guy who we meet last, you know, out in this kind of wasteland and everything, I, I thought was a really smart idea. I kind of like to pretend that Mako's playing the same character in Highlander 3. There can be only one! <laughs> and his narration, it really helps kind of feed into the whole Howard, uh, Howard's view of Conan and view of his stories because he would refer to his stories as yarns. These were supposed to be uh, basically stories that people told around the campfire. So it makes sense that we are discovering about Conan not through his own words, but from the deeds that other people tell about him. Which also kind of helps as far as like the fuzziness of some of these stories or that some of these unbelievable things happen. And I like that Conan lives in a world where magic is possible. And I like the too, that, that Mako's playing a wizard and other than the one scene, the one like very quiet on um, influence scene, we don't see him doing a lot of wizardry. I'm expecting him at the end to just like, okay, yeah, I'm going to start casting some spells here. I think but, that's probably no. the best thing because they did make him do wizardry in the next film. And well, we all know how that worked out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but there, there's also a lot of symbolism in the film. And oh, yeah. a lot of symbolism that, that I think people, you, just someone looking for a barbarian action flick is not going to pick up. Like when I can't remember what Sven Oli Thorson's dad's name, what the character's name was, the deal Oakland, Oakland Raider guy. But he's got Conan's father's sword from all those years ago. And Rexor. when Conan's battling him, the, he breaks the sword as he kills him in a symbolic he has now exacted almost all of his revenge. He's no longer in his father's shadow. Or I'm just reading way too much into a battle scene. Oh, no. No, the, no. That, that, that scene was definitely very thick with the th- uh, theme and imagery. And it fits into the whole – one of the central themes of this entire movie, the riddle of steel. You know, in the beginning, uh, Conan's father told him that it was – oh, you can only trust steel, that it is stronger than men. You cannot trust men. Then later on, uh, Conan's other father figure, his twisted father figure, Thulsa Doom, tells him that it, steel is nothing – as opposed to the hand that wields it, that the flesh is stronger. And by the end, Conan comes to realize that, that as strong as steel is, it's nothing compared to the man behind it. And that's what we're seeing in this entire film, the forging of a weapon. It just so happens that this weapon is a man. Or the fact that 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 sword was made by, by men, by his father. The sword Conan is using is that sword that he stole from I guess you'd call it the Atlantean king when he found mm-hmm. his corpse that maybe there's something about this sword is not made by ma- by man. I don't know. I mean, I, I've always interpreted that particular scene to be how uh, being highlighting the uh, overcoming of a person, you know, it, and it kind of feeds into the whole Nietzschean quote that we get in the beginning, you know, that which does not kill us makes us stronger. And even, Milius's commentary suggests that this entire film is essentially the making of a man, the forging of a weapon in the form of Conan himself. Well, I also see it as not only, you know, 
seal is something that you can trust. You know, uh, flesh is what is more powerful than steel. But by this time, Conan has surrounded himself with, you know, two living friends and then having Valeria, whose love is so strong that she actually comes back from the dead to help save him at this point. Something she foreshadowed earlier as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, just to have those, you know, that support here on earth and everything is is just it, it's not just the man but the people that he surrounds himself with i think are what also gives him the strength that he needs to be able to stand up to this guy to break the sword and to reclaim that power and to to make himself the fully realized human being that he is yeah i think this film it provides an interesting exploration of, again, returning to the Nietzschean themes, but Nietzsche's concept of the Ubermensch, where it's more than just the Superman character. In Nietzsche's philosophy, the Ubermensch is designed to be the bringer and provider of morals in a world where God does not exist. You know, Nietzsche said that God is dead, so morality must flow from somewhere. In his uh, opinion, it comes from the Ubermensch figure. This man who, by deed and will alone has transcended other humanity and gone on to influence and inspire the people around him. And we see him uh, tear down these religious institutions that he's around, you know, Thulsa Doom representing the ultimate corruption of religion. And that by the end of the film, it is Conan's actions alone that is able to completely liberate all of these followers of Doom, sending them out into the world. It's a, a somewhat melancholy theme or uh, feeling of that scene, but it's also tinged with a bit of hope. Also, the fact that. Conan, Subutai, and Valeria are able to do things no one else could. Again, going to the symbolism, they cut the head off the snake. That they're yep. the only people in the world, in this entire world, that are willing to stand up to Thulsa Doom. Now, at that point, they're doing it because they're thieves, but they're still standing up. They're doing something no one else has had the balls to do. And then they even got Valeria's funeral pyre to light, even though Mako said no fire will burn there. The the four winds are too strong, and yet his love for her and her love for him allows her f- funeral pyre to light. They're doing things that that should not be able to be done. From laps with your four winds. Again, uh, kind of feeding back to certain Nietzschean themes, the idea of tearing down institutions and and establishing a new morality. I mean, hell, in the movie alone, Conan rejects the religion that he was born into in that speech on on the battle before the mounds where he in, uh, entreats Krom and then it ends it by saying, and if you don't listen, then to hell with you, implying that if you're not going to help me, I'm just going to do this myself. I also want to point out the special effects. Oh yes. You, there's nobody that is ever going to be able to convince me that that all the sequences with that snake, 100% animatronic fake snake, could be done better in CGI. So good. Well, it is so 100% realistic throughout the entire. You never once doubt that they are fighting an actual giant snake. Yeah, it has weight to it. It has a presence in the frame, and even more so. And I, it's it's also an effect they use to to great effect in the uh, when they're fighting regular people. But the bags of blood and the bladders of blood that they put in all of these things. So every hit just releases a torrent of blood. It it's so beautiful. That blood also was getting the stuntmen drunk. 
Because <laughs> was it, it was, was it liquor based? No, it, it it was freezing because of where they were shooting, so they thinned it out with vodka. So <laughs> it was a. Amelia said it was a while till he started realizing that stuntmen kept coming back for more and more blood, and he realized these motherfuckers are getting drunk. They were getting drunk drinking all the fake blood. That's hilarious. The King Osric scene, you know, speaks to everything that you're just talking about as far as them being the ones who are taking out Thulse Doom, doing something that nobody else is doing. And I love that scene, Max von Sydow playing King Osric. What daring! What outrageousness! What insolence! What arrogance! I salute you. He's the one who kind of kicks the story finally, you could almost say finally into gear, because before that we've had just like adventure, adventures, adventures. We've had kind of this plot going on with, you know, Conan looking for the snakes and meeting all these people. But it isn't until Osric kind of gives them a purpose to say, you know, save my daughter. You can have all the riches you want. It isn't until then that we really kick at things into high gear. And then it becomes this almost like a, a, you know, like we could have the intermission at this point and then come back. And now it's Conan's quest to save the princess, kill Thulsa doom, disband the, the followers, all this kind of stuff. And I love the, the way that Millie's just worked with the pacing of all this kind of stuff, because sometimes I forget just how much adventure there is in this film. It's like, Oh yeah, they still haven't put on the black and white paint yet. Oh, they haven't done this. We haven't seen Thulsa doom, you know, with the uh, snake arrows yet. I mean, there's so many great set pieces to this film. There's also the theme of betrayal as well, because King Osric, we, one of his contemporaries, the, the, who was following Thulsa Doom, betrayed the contemporary and stabbed him in the heart with that special dagger. And his daughter was going to do the same thing to him. And then, then there's the betrayal of when, when Osric's daughter, when she realizes that Thulsa Doom's going to kill her, she switches sides from because she realizes she's been betrayed. And then Thulsa Doom thinks Conan's going to join him, and he has this look of betrayal when Conan hacks his head off instead. There's also the theme of betrayal by a parental figure. Oh, yeah. And the other thing that that scene speaks to is a theme that would you would see in a lot of the Howard stories about Conan. The concept of barbarians rising up to supplant civilization and then becoming civilized, becoming weak, only to be supplanted by the next wave of barbarians. They describe Osric that, you know, in his youth, he was much like Conan, but he had become old and sotted. And there's even a deleted scene where... He, we see him get uh, mowed down by his uh, guards that had been corrupted by Thulsa Doom. So that's one of the one of the few times that the themes of this story it's actually very much in line with some of the central themes that, that uh, Howard was playing with the idea of civilization versus barbarism and how civilization will weaken barbarians, allowing them to be taken over by the next wave of barbarians, and so the cycle continues. On that note, there's also the fact that Thulsa Doom is creating a new civilization, arguably more, in quotes, civilized, and it takes a barbarian and a barbaric act of violence to show people that he was the false god. Exactly. Yeah, I see Thulsa Doom as being very, very Manson-esque, especially when we have the children of Doom, Doom's children, <laughs> when they're... Helping him find where Thulsa Doom is. Elter Skelter! Da-na-na-na-na-na. 
And how much of the of the uh, view and the movie's take on the Children of Doom do you think it was uh, Milius taking pot shots at hippies? Oh, totally. Well, there was totally there's no him. doubt about that. That scene where he's got all the flowers around him, that oh, yeah. is a shot at hippies. That That is an unabashed right shot at hippies. There's no even interpretation needed for that. Though I, I, again, it brings to mind a quote from the Milius documentary that's where he admitted that I'm a hippie at heart. They just wouldn't make me their king. It's good to be the king. Oh, it's such an incredible movie. It's one that over the years, it's been interesting to see other people's responses to it. And even going back to reading the early critical response, that a lot of people were saying that it was fascistic in nature. They were talking about, you know, this Aryan character going up against, you know, a black man. And that a lot of the, scenes the same complaints feel- against Dirty Harry. Oh, sure. And there there a lot of the scenes they feel are reminiscent of uh, Riefenstahl and, and, you know, uh, Triumph of the Will and all that thing. To me, if you have that interpretation of Conan, I really need to have a conversation with you because at the end of the film, it is that it is so anti-fascistic that the ultimate uh, depiction of fascism in this movie, Thulsa Doom, is destroyed. I, it's, I, I think it comes down to a fundamental misunderstanding of what Milius was doing and also a fundamental misunderstanding of some of the Nietzschean themes he was playing with. You know, the Nazis had a thing for Nietzsche, so a lot of people have applied Nazi ideology to Nietzsche, where his, his own philosophy was somewhat different. I also want to point out something about the presentation of Conan. This movie has to be seen widescreen. Now, oh, yeah, since, since, since I did not since I did not see this in the theater, I saw it on HBO or Showtime, whichever one debuted at first, full frame. Then the VHS was full frame, and I didn't see this widescreen until the early '90s when I got it on Laserdisc. And it's just amazing how much more the widescreen opens up the picture. You have to see this widescreen. This is not one you can watch on TNT. You can't watch this movie on TBS or A&E. You can't because it's just – it's like almost like a Michael Mann film. It's composed for the full 16 by 9 screen, and he uses all of it. Oh, that brings to mind a question. Which version of the film did you see? What format did you watch this movie on? Blu-ray, DVD? The one I watched, the one I watched last night was the was the DVD, but the laser disc was not the director's cut yet, and I watched the hell out of that one in the nineties. For the first time, I watched the expanded version. I think today, the one with that little bit more dialogue between Subutai and Conan before they go into the final, final battle, which I had never seen that scene before until today. So that was kind of nice. The ending is somewhat extended as well. Exactly. And it's it's one reason that I have yet to pick this movie up on Blu-ray, even though I'm sure that it would look fantastic on Blu-ray, because for whatever reason, the Blu-ray, despite the fact that they say it's the extended edition, they drop that scene that, you know, that spring breeze scene, that's that calm before the storm where Subutai and Conan reflect upon how different their lives would be if they had followed a different path, where they would be. And I don't know why they decided to drop that out of the Blu-ray release, but as it stands, you only only way you can get that is on the old DVD release, which I've uh, dis- is a disc I've had for well over a decade now. The one with that ugly pink cover. I don't know what the hell yeah. they were thinking of that, though. <laughs> oh, God, that was terrible. Yeah, it was not it, a it great It looks like cover. somebody puked in Photoshop. Me? You've got that gorgeous painting, so let's not use that. 
I, I don't know exa- what they were thinking with that, but the sad fact is that unless you get, I believe the uh, Region 2 Blu-ray has that scene available, but if you're Region 1 only in the United States, the most complete and best version of the film, in my opinion, is that extended edition on the DVD, for now. To be fair, though, if you do pick up the old Laserdisc, which has the correct cover art, I might add, the old Laserdisc, it might not be the, the extended edition, but it's a nice, proper widescreen version as well. A lot of people had complaints about the way that the movie was handled as far as those times where they would get away from the Robert E. Howard stuff and go into more, I don't know, for lack of a better term, cinematic kind of stuff. The whole idea of Conan's upbringing, what it was like for him, and really that whole the Wheel of Pain. A lot of people had problems with that and the the opening with uh, the village and everything. And it's like, I don't know if we could have started off any other place than doing that to have this epic story. Yeah, I mean, you have to have a protagonist in this sort of plot where you you are following the the hero from, you know, early beginnings to the end. You have to have a compelling beginning. And revenge is a very compelling plot engine. Now, that's to take nothing against away from Howard, but the stories he were writing were intended to be more or less standalone yarns. But if you're going to build, you know, a complete plot introducing the world to Conan, I think this was the best way to do it. Yes, it violates some of the spirit of Conan, and it definitely violates uh, a lot of the text, but... In my opinion, it's it's all d- done for the betterment of the plot, and it was a fantastic plot. I think it also adds an extra character arc, because he starts off a victim, then becomes a slave, and is raised as a slave, and then he's used as an automaton for the pit fighting, and the whole thing is supposed to be made a king by his own hand. That it's part of his arc. He overcame all of that and literally changed society by beheading Thulsa Doom. Yep. And so many of the Howard stories were Conan stumbles upon something else, something. You know, there would be these uh, plot, diabolical plots. He was David David Banner going from town to town and just helping people as, you know, as he wanted. Yeah, the, the, the original stories were very much the 70s Incredible Hulk show. Oh, yeah. So by giving by setting up the uh, background of Conan in the film, it gives him a personal investment investment into the into defeating Thulsa Doom. And that I love the fact that the first time that we see Conan meet Thulsa Doom, he is completely broken. He's broken in body. He's broken in spirit. And he loses. You know, he is bloody battered and then nailed onto the tree of woe. He's technically and killed. A great way to do it. Oh yeah, technically, technically killed. So that's there why we too, got that whole. They have to kind of bring him back. Yeah, through that whole Quidon and influence scene, which again, something that another filmmaker might not have known about or might not have done, and it was a nice way to bring in. You know, you've got freaking Mako there, so let's bring in some you know uh, Eastern. Uh, influence magic when we have this and he's a magician so i think that was a perfect thing the other thing that people were complaining about was the whole idea oh the animation is fantastic during that part it's just so nice and subtle that that line animation you know if that were that same scene were done today it'd be a bunch of crappy cg looking like something out of a voyager episode and it would not work that line animation gave them a very ethereal not of this world feel 
And apparently they were originally going to go with a, an effect that was closer to the ghost scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark because I believe it was the same special effects studio working on it. But the producer said, no, this looks too much like Raiders. Give us something different, which influenced the guys to go back and do this animation. And I always loved that look, you know, drawing directly on the on the a movie frame and adding those animated elements and the way they blended it in with the red filter that was going on. It didn't look out of place at all. It looked of a piece with what was going on in the film. Cause I've seen younger, younger people in modern DVD reviews actually point that out as some bad, a piece of bad special effects. And I'm like, oh. I am going to hit you in the dick. Well, some of it might just be what you grew up with. I have an affection for that kind of special effects, just like I have an affection for the optical effects in Ghostbusters. There's something infinitely appealing to that, the look of those kind of effects. But part of that might also be because I discovered those effects when I was a child. So it's a nostalgic quality. The other thing that people really had a problem with was the whole idea of, um, I think the character's just name just is Red Hair. Red Hair having to to push Conan away when he frees him finally. I know in the in one of the drafts of the script, I think it might have been Amelia's draft of it, there's an earthquake and the cage that Conan is in breaks open and that's how he gets away and goes off into the world. But I know people are like, oh, no, no, Conan isn't like that. He wouldn't have to chase this chase them away to you know free him but i think the voiceover explains it well enough oh yeah he, as mako said he was like a dog who had been kept too long and i think by setting up the scene that way we get that wonderful scene where he discovers the atlantean sword and he does free himself now it's more of a philosophical and emotional freedom but he, we do get that scene where he decides, I am going to be a slave no more, as he strikes down his own shackles and then literally turns those... cuts the chain. Exactly. Yeah. And then he turns those wolves into clothing. <laughs> Again, a subtle moment. We Nowadays, you would see him fighting the wolves. All you need to see is you hear the wolves coming from off camera. He grasps the sword. He kind of glints at the camera. And then the next scene, he's covered in wolf pelts. Well, yeah, and that's the thing that Millie has said about uh, even a lot of the fights. I mean, looking right at um, the beheading of Conan's mother, you don't see the beheading. You see her fall. You see the head fall. To not show the violence sometimes is more effective than to show the violence. It's even more horrifying than actually seeing it on screen. I think the the decision not to show more in that scene was one that arrived in the editing process because if I if I'm reading it correctly they actually had made an animated or an animatronic decapitated head that could you know uh, move its eyes could move its tongue could move so by but by d- filming it the way they did not showing the you know the aftermath of the violence that the camera the focus of the camera is this young child just looking at his hand he doesn't even look at his mother he looks at his hand and then he shares a look with Thulsa Doom, all without dialogue. All we have is physical performance and that Basil Polidorus score. Anybody who says that this is not the work of a talented filmmaker, that this film that this film is simply you know disposable crap with no craft, I don't think they're paying attention. I think those people saw the sequel. One more thing that they cut out of this movie that I've always noticed since I was a kid watching this movie. At no time in the entire runtime of this movie do they give Sandal Bergman a name. No. She's credited no. as Valeria, but they never say her name throughout the entire runtime of this movie. 
I, that may I don't know if that was an intentional thing, but the character of Valeria is from I can't I can't remember if it's from the Howard stories, but it's definitely from the Marvel Comics stuff. So that probably was a carryover from when Roy Thomas was still a, a screenwriter or one of his drafts. All right, on to the commentary because it is one of my favorite film commentaries ever. Oh, I know a lot of people talk about how great the commentary is for Total Recall, and I think uh, no Commando, he's not on, but Arnold Arnold gives commentary like nobody else. Like, like really, you should probably just have a separate Arnold commentary track and then have the Milius track because Milius can't get a fucking word in edgewise, and Conan he or Conan Arnold Freudian just sits there, there. like. <laughs> like he's n- never seen the film before. He's just like, <laughs> exactly. Oh, look at that. Oh, do you remember that? Oh, do you remember this, that? Look at this and he's misremembering a lot of it, too. He's adding lines of dialogue that aren't there. He's radically changing scenes in his. And this is the scene where, oh, wait, that, that that's not this. It's like, where the hell did you get that from? How drunk yeah. are you? Wasn't in the sequel, bud. It wasn't here. What? What are you thinking? Yeah. Well, and he's got that—he's got that famous where he remembers a line going. And now Sven says, "I could not uh, masturbate them at all, master." He said, "No, it's that I, I could not harm them at all, master." <laughs> you could not masturbate me, master. Oh wait, wait—that's not the line. What the fuck was that supposed to be? <laughs> <laughs> and he's got that kind of like weird, like homophobia thing going on at times too, where it's just like. What is the, that the kid? Is he wearing lipstick? A lot yeah. of homophobia in it too. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. It was just bizarre. It just it, it was so disruptive. I was like, after a while, I was just like, all right, I guess I'm in this for those few little milius nuggets that he gives us, and he does speak in some poetry here and there. But oh my god, it was just too much, Arnold. Man, just all over the place. Oh no. I can't believe it. <laughs> he is so sick, John. That is so funny. There is one moment in the commentary where he does make an interesting point when he was discussing the scene where after he had, Conan had been resurrected and, you know, he's drawing his sword and he was commenting, I believe he was saying that he was influenced on by that on that scene from a Humphrey Bogart movie. But it was a man who was, you know, had gone through a pre, uh, similar situation. He was drawing his gun and get learning how to use it again. So it was showing that he did put some thought into some aspects of his performance. And the funny thing is, when you learn about Arnie, he is a very smart guy. So oh, you yeah. wonder how much of his stuff he did in the commentary was him just put, doing a put on. That, you know, people expect him to be dumb and he's not taking it very seriously. So he's going to have a good time with it. But there is so much more going on in that guy's head than a lot of people give him credit for. Look at Charlie Lopez's hairstyle. What happened to him there? Well, yeah, he was such a driven individual. I mean, this guy, you know, just he make he's very much like Conan. Again, he makes himself, you know, he, he has crafted his body. He has crafted his career, his all the movie choices that he has done over the years, some of them have been missteps, yes, but he's always come back with what needs to happen next. You know, he's when he knows that he's got a good thing, he keeps doing it. I mean, to have this poor Austrian immigrant guy coming over and becoming the governor of California, I mean, this is just amazing that this guy could do this. You know, it just. If they were to do a new commentary, 
with say maybe just John Milius. Would you want just an informational one? Because I've noticed the best kind of commentaries are like John Carpenter's The Thing, where Kurt Russell and John Carpenter get together. They obviously haven't seen the movie in a long time, and they're sitting there just drinking beer, sharing anecdotes, and watching a movie that they made together 30 years ago. That's a good kind of commentary. That's kind of what I wanted for Conan. I agree with you, Mike, that Arnold kind of does dominate it. Yeah, I mean, I don't want some journalist there sucking Milius's dick throughout the commentary like oh that was such an interesting shot yo can you tell me more about yeah i don't need that but yeah maybe just putting Milius with i don't know somebody else maybe hell put him with pressman put him with uh put him with roy thomas give me something else you know just give me a little something well hell put him with uh sven ole thorson i mean that guy (laughs) very well spoken guy so actually on that note let's go ahead we're going to take a break and play an interview with sven ole thorson who is thorgrim himself wow i remember now this scene also how did you get into bodybuilding when i was about 16 I was uh, invited by my cousin and a friend, uh, 17 I was, to a gym in Copenhagen called Club Roma, where they worked out with weights. And until then, I had been uh, playing handball and soccer and track and field. Uh, I was always uh, <clears throat> uh, had a problem with, you know, teammates that didn't show up on time, that didn't have the same energy I had, etc. So after being in that gym for three hours, I fell in love with weight training. And uh, I remember when I left the gym there, I could barely walk for a whole week. I was lying in bed because my whole body was reacting. Mm -hmm. And I said to to myself, I want to do this. So I made a decision there when I was about 17, 18, that I want to commit to this and spend 10 years to be the biggest and the strongest and the baddest ass in the world. So in 10 years, I was able to go from 181 pounds to uh, 340 pounds. When did you start competing in, in competitions? I never competed in, in, in bodybuilding. I was uh, competing in powerlifting because uh, those three uh, uh, exercises was the basic of my weight training. You know, powerlifting includes, as you know, squat, bent press, and deadlift. And that was my basic stuff. You know, I lifted about 50 tons a week. Uh, you know, I was really focused on being <clears throat> the biggest, the best, and the strongest. Bodybuilding got my interest based on magazines from the United States. I lived in Denmark, and uh, of course, Arnold was on the covers and stuff like that. So he became an inspiration. So uh, in the uh, uh, in around in '77 or so, when uh, I invited Arnold to come to Denmark for the premiere Pumping Iron, we started the next year the Danish Bodybuilding Federation, which I ran from 1979, 80, and 81. So I was, in, and also then I became an international judge in bodybuilding. I was judging uh, Mr. Olympia, Mr. Universe, Miss Universe, and the first Miss Olympia, which uh, at least one, busy traveling the world. So my heart had all those years, you know, belonged to bodybuilding, but that was not my agenda. My agenda was the strength. How did you end up getting into movies? That was based on uh, when I had my 40th birthday in Denmark. Having uh, built up three sports federations, I was a champion in martial arts, Shogun Karate. I was one of the strongest men in the world. I decided to come to America. So uh, six months later, I, after my 40th birthday in '84, I came here in '85. And the only person I knew was Arnold, because as I told you, 
years earlier, I invited him to Denmark, and we created some kind of a friendship. So I called him up and said, I'm in town. I had no plans. I actually came here to retire because I had been in the gym business and martial art business and publishing business you know, for so many years, over 25 years in Denmark. He said, I'm shooting commando in Griffith Park. Come and say hi. So when I came up there in Griffith Park, the producer, George Silver, was so impressed by my size because I just came from Denmark where I become the strongest man in the world in bench press as a 40 years old, uh, lifting uh, 530 pounds. And I was, uh, you know, a monster. He said, you know, would you like to work in the movies? Because you just had to be a member of Screen Actors Guild and have a social security number. So uh, in 80, 81, and 82, I had worked with Adam on the three Conan pictures, Conan the Barbarian in Spain, Conan the Destroyer in Mexico, and then Red Sonia in, uh, in Italy. So I became a member of SAG, and then when I wrote a book called Strong Men in Hollywood a couple, four or five years ago, I realized that in 25 years here, uh, I had uh, worked on 150 uh, movie and TV productions. So it was a coincidence I ended up in the movie business. It was not nothing I had planned. I just came here to uh, pay lesser taxes, enjoy the weather, and just having a good time. So kind of semi-retired. So only based on that phone call and meeting Joe Silver, uh, I ended up in the movie business. That was not something I ever had thought about. Before you did Conan, did you work on a movie called Mind Your Back, Professor? Yeah, I did some small stuff in Denmark, and that was one of them. That was one of them, yeah. But that was more based on my size. I was high because I was a monster, and I was just there and stuff. But it, it didn't really appeal to me. Even though when I did the first Conan pictures in 1980-81, I was impressed by by the enormity of a big movie production, the camaraderie, uh, all the fun, you know, being on a horseback, uh, falling off a horse and sword fights and stuff. So I said to them, oh, wait a minute, this is fun. But when I came here, that was not my intention. It, it was just, it just happened like, like that. What was your experience on Conan like? That was an experience based on, uh, there was 10 American stuntmen, there was 10 Spanish stuntmen, and then uh, John Mears asked me to bring 10 big guys down from Denmark, and we were called the animals, because we were all monsters. But the experience was that, for example, we had lunch, you know, we had printed menus, we had waiters in, uh, in white coats and, and, and gloves, and they served uh, red wine and white wine, and we had uh, three meal courses, we had, uh, you know, dessert, uh, you know, cheese and uh, food and stuff. So I said some said, wait a minute. Well, I mean, this is fun. This is fun. And then, of course, being active all day long, being physical. And uh, so it was like I was there. I was. It was not a movie. It was just fun, you know, 30 guys having fun. What was it like working with John Milius? John Milius, I had made earlier. I was in uh, Los Angeles for the World Championship in Martial Art in Long Beach. And Arnold said to me, let's go and visit John Milius because he's writing a picture for me. So I met John Melius, and the picture was Conan the Barbarian. And when he saw me as a monster, he said, wait a minute, give me a good name for a big, big guy, you know, a big Viking guy. I said, what about Thorgrim? Oh, that's a great name. And a year later, John called me and said, hey, Sven, I want you to be in Conan the Barbarian and play Thorgrim. Bring 10 of, 10 of your friends. You guys can work in Spain for five, six months. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, John is really a colorful, fantastic person. He's the best storyteller. I remember in Spain, uh, every night he was telling stories from his movies, working with Sean Connery and all those big people. 
And he's just a big boy. I remember one day we had a, we were sitting in John's trailer, me and Arnold and John, and John was playing with model airplanes. And the second thing you know, director came in and said, hey, Mr. Mears, we're ready to shoot the shot. And John said, can you see I'm busy? Shoot the shit. I'm busy. So he was like, he's like a big boy, you know. He's a fun guy to be around. And you got to work with uh, James Earl Jones uh, quite a bit on that movie, right? Oh, yeah. That was a fantastic thing. I never knew any, anybody, you know, from the movie business. So working with Ben Davison was an experience. In particular, James Earl Jones, a gentleman, great voice, fantastic actor. Later on, I learned about his work and stuff. And one thing that impressed me was that on CNN, that's his voice. It's a CNN. You know, he had a subtle voice. So he was really a, a fantastic person to meet. Did you just kind of naturally go into the sequel, even though your character was dead from the first one? Yeah, I mean, that was based on, you know, I became friends with Arnold, and uh, he pushed for me a little bit, so that helped. Even though Richard Fleischer, he didn't want to have me in the picture because I had been in the first picture. So I grew, grew a beard, and they put a helmet on me, so that helped a little bit. Actually, the sword fight me and Arnold have in that movie is one of the most spectacular sword fights of all time. And I was also lucky to have a fantastic horse. I didn't know horses, so before I went to Spain, I took some lessons. But I was scared shitless because when you sit on a horse, I mean, that's a long way down to the ground. But I became quite good at riding horses. So my horse was so fantastic. So when I pulled it a little bit, I, it could stand on the back legs. And I remember seeing where the whole team from Los Angeles was down, all the big producers, Peter De Laurentiis, Laurentiis, Laurentiis. So I want to show off. So when I had my uniform on, I was ready to do my scene. So I went right in front of them and I tried to lift my horse up. But then the saddle got loose and I fell on my ass <laughs> with the horse on top of me. I was so embarrassed, but, uh, you know, that's, that's what happens. And then with Red Sonia, you're credited for doing some stunt work too. Is that right? Yeah, I did some. I had a character in there. I'm not seen much, but I was there for four months. And what do you like better, the acting, the stunts? I mean, you've you've done so many things. You've even been a producer. Yeah, I, I've, I've been very active. You know, I like the physical aspect, the preparation. You know, for example, uh, for Conan, we spent a whole month in Madrid, and, you know, having uh, sword fight lessons from Yamagata, the uh, uh, stunt coordinator and sword coordinator. And based on my martial art background, I became an expert with weapons. I remember in Conan the Barbarian, we were, we were in Segovia waiting for snow. So 30 stuntmen was hanging around, and they were all trying to, uh, you know, there was a big tree standing in the middle of the area. They were using all their weapons, trying to, you know, have a stick in the big tree. So after lunch, I was a little tipsy, so I called them all together and said, listen, guys, let me show you what a Viking can do. So I've seen them now try to, uh, you know, use their weapons to hit the tree. So I took a two-handed axe, took a few steps. It was about 30 yards away. And I sent the axe uh, away, and it was like, boom, boom, boom. And it hit the fucking oak tree. So the ground was shaking. So they were all like, wait a minute. It was fantastic. And I was so surprised myself. So they said to me, do it again. I said, fuck you. I only do it once. So from that day on, I got so much respect from the other stunt people, you know, because when you're a big guy, they think you can move and stuff. But I can move, and uh, I became quite skilled with weapons. What have been some of your favorite roles to play over the years? Conan the Barbarian, based on the enormity, I was seven months in Spain. It was like seven months vacation, playing uh, 
rob and robbers, cowboys and Indians during the day, having fun. We have 17 different locations in Spain. It was fantastic. But then the, the job where I really had to use all my physical skills was Gladiator. I have heard about the movie. I have sent all my reels to all over the world, tried to get a job. One day I get a call from Franco Lustig, one of the producers. He also produced Sinter's List. Franco Lustig is his name. And he said, hey, we want you. Come down here. We need you. They had actually hired Lou Ferrigno, uh, you know, you know Lou Ferrigno. They hired him three months earlier, so they fired him. So with two days notice, I had to go to Malta, and I was giving a 30 pages uh, uh, screenplay with all my moves, all the camera angles. So I was like, wait a minute, this is a big job. So I practiced the, the job for four weeks, and we shot it in three weeks. I spent seven weeks there. So that job was really, later on, I won two uh, Stun Oscars, two Towers Awards for my job, best work with animals and best fight. So those two movies make a big impression on me. It was the most pleasant movie to work on. You mentioned your autobiography, Strongman in Hollywood. Is that ever going to come out in English? I have actually have it, uh, my wife, who's now my manager also, I have a translation of the book and we are working on to have it to come out here. And also, when I wrote that book, it was based on pressure from uh, the publisher. Uh, you know, I was I didn't know I had a story to tell. But then I uh, worked on it for two years. Uh, I got a co-writer who was fantastic, did a lot of research. And uh, it was really uh, a good thing for me to do because we all have stuff in our life we're doing. We forget we have been doing or we have made some regrets or whatever. So after I delivered the book, it was like, I took uh, two tons off my shoulders because there's a lot of stuff I've been carrying all those years based on I was told as a kid from my parents, from my teachers in school that I was a piece of shit. I would never be anything, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, that was really a good thing for me to do, to do the book. And also became a bestseller in Denmark. I got five stars from the critics. So And they asked me to write another book, but I haven't thought about that. What kind of stuff are you doing with Artistic Group? Now, we have a management group here. You have, I'm sure you have seen our websites where we are representing uh, artists in general, musicians, actors, etc. And so I'm a part of that. Can you tell me a little bit about um, Jackie O? Jackie O is based on... Uh, I have I got a partner some years ago. His name is Dennis Hagen. He uh, wrote Bronco Billy, amongst other screenplays, you know, the picture with Clint Eastwood. So we got a friendship and we produced uh, about 30 screenplays. And that's one of the screenplays. It's supposed to be a true Hollywood story told to Dennis on his way to uh, Vegas, where he stranded his car on a big on a little motel down there, a rainy day. And there was a guest sitting in the bar who told that story. I've heard that you're a big fan of cigars. Yeah, that was based on uh, uh, John Melius was smoking cigars. Uh, so I asked him one day, you know, I like to smoke cigars. Which one should I start smoking? He said, let me tell you a story. He said, I did a movie called The Wind and the Lion. With, uh, Sean Connery and John Houston was in the picture also. He played one of the, he played the senator, if you remember that movie. And uh, he said, you know, I was in the same situation uh, as you now. I was a young director. I was supposed to direct, you know, Sean Connery, Candice Bergen, and John Houston. So uh, the day before I was supposed to direct John Houston, I went to his room and John was lying, uh, John Houston was lying on his knee, you know, sorting cigars out on his bed. And John, like trying to start a conversation, said, you know, I like to smoke cigars. Which one should I smoke? 
Sergeant Houston said to him, you know, young, young man, listen to me. Come here, sit down. Let me tell you a story. Once upon a time, I was in Paris. I was in my room. I was watching TV. I put all my money on a certain horse race. I had a girl bit, uh, uh, on, my, on her knees between my legs. And when my horse won, I took a pop of my Monte Cristo number two, and I came in her mouth. That's why, John, you should smoke Monte Cristo number two. So that became my favorite cigar. And that all happened in Spain there, smoking uh, Cuban uh, cigars. upon his family by driving the evil serpent men back into another dimension and vanquishing their leader, the cruel wizard Rathamon. All right, thanks to Mr. Thorson for taking the time to talk to us. I'm hoping we can get him back on the show one of these days because he's got some amazing stories. So, are you going to have? Really, are you going to do one on Abraxas? That would be awesome. <laughs> Only if I could get Jesse Ventura, who we tried to get for our JFK themed episode, but unfortunately never got a response on that one because I thought he could really kind of lay some knowledge on us about what really happened that day in Dealey Plaza. <laughs> well, I really hope you do get to, to talk with Sven more because he has become one of my favorite guys to look for in action movies. And anytime I see him pop up, it's always the same. It's me going, Sven! Because <laughs> there was a run that, that it seemed like every single movie Arnold Schwarzenegger did, Sven would have a role. It would be small, but Sven would be there. And outside of Arnie, he's one of the few guys that had shown up in all of the Conan movies, including Red Sonia. Yeah, you got to look for him, though he's not necessarily as present as you would like him to be in these films yep nope. though in call the conqueror he did have a rather pre- a prevalent role as the king that cole uh, <laughs> uh supplants i'm sorry i can't hear you must be the steroids Let's go ahead. I'm going to play the rest of the interview with Roy Thomas before we get into the sequels, because he kind of uh, lays out some of the stuff that happened with Conan the Destroyer. I read the script, the first draft of the Conan 2 script that you and, and Mr. Conway wrote, so completely different from what ended up on screen and so well done. It just had me at the edge of my seat as I was reading it. Yeah, it had its fault, but it's... But it was the uh, a script on the base of which we got two or three more movies in the next year or so. And over and over again, when people read this, as the movie came out, people asked us, you know, uh, they, they liked this script. And they said, why did they make that other movie with it? You know, why were they making this other movie out of it instead of something close to the script we wrote? And we said, well, you know, you'd have to... That was that that hap- that happened whenever uh, Ed Pressman sold his rights for the second movie, basically, uh, while we were writing the screenplays, the several drafts. Each one, I think, maybe getting a little further from what we really wanted to do because uh, Dino had no knowledge whatever of Conan and didn't want to learn anything about him. 
Uh, he just wanted to do his own movie. Dino had a great uh, ability to know what kind of pop art properties to get hold of. Uh, Stephen King's Firestarter, King Kong, Flash Gordon, Conan. But then he had no concept of what to do with them, and, and none of the movies made from any of those were particularly outstanding. And I just I think it, the thing was denoted to death. <laughs> you know, the first draft was prepared entirely under Ed Pressman. You know, we were proud of that, and that's the only one we ever would show to anybody as a, as a sample of our work because we, we felt it was superior to our later drafts, and it was you know, and of course superior to the final movie draft. Although they they did add a couple of nice one or two nice things to the movie. I'll give them credit. Uh, director Richard Fleischer came on just at the end of our tenure. In fact, he's probably the one who got us kicked off. And then uh, Stanley Mann, whom we never met, who wrote the, the uh, several last drafts, they wrote a really nice scene for how to introduce Zula, who was our character, but they wrote a nice introduction scene to her. And uh, they added a, uh, a, the motivation of uh, Conan trying to bring Valeria from the first movie back to life. But that was added because I told Richard Fleischer uh, that that was something that I had wanted to do in the movie, that Jerry and I had wanted to do in the movie, because it was based on something in an actual Robert E. Howard story. And I gave him a copy of... I think it was coded number 110 or 115, the last color comic I did in that series, which utilized some of that same plot. And uh, so Fleischer liked the idea of Conan trying to bring back his dead girlfriend. Uh, however, you know, he kicked us off the movie and had somebody else write it. You know, and I didn't even get the comic book back that I loaned him. But then I've never, I've never loaned anything to a movie producer or director that I ever got back. You said that the script helped get you a couple gigs after that. What were some of the things that it led to? Oh, uh, there was a movie script we wrote for, I can't remember the studio right now. It was a, which major studio was it? 20 of me? Uh, that was called, um, Haven was one of its names. It was basically like the Magnificent Seven or Seven Samurai in a more science fiction setting. Let's see. There were I forget, there were one or two others, and of course there were other things that were in the works that didn't quite eventually come to fruition. But we were getting a lot of work and a lot of meetings and so forth on the basis of that script because people people liked it. It's not like people you know said it was a work of art or anything, but they thought it was a good solid script. And you know, as they were seeing other versions of the scripts going around, they thought, as I do, that that basically our that our first draft was superior to what came later, either by us or by anybody else, except for the one or two scenes maybe. And you, uh, a few years later, turned what you did with the screenplay into a comic book, correct? Yeah, Jerry Conway had had the idea to do that uh, while I wasn't working for Marvel, right before I, my contract at DC was up. And he was about to work on it when I, because with, with my blessing. And then I, when, I, when I was uh, no longer under contract at DC, I came in and said I'd really like to write it with him. So uh, we, we ended up you know, co-writing it. I think he what he wrote the first half and I wrote the second half or what, I believe that's it. We never worked together on it. You know, it was just that one of us wrote the first half and then the other one took over and wrote the other half. I'm curious. Did you see the Conan reboot that they did a few years ago? Yes. What did you think of that? Well, I thought the actor was okay. Although, of course, it's hard to uh, compete with Arnold in that thing. There was just something so larger than life about Arnold, but I just felt, that, uh, once again, they didn't have the uh, the story right. For one thing, it seems to me like they took like 45 minutes or so with him as a child. They extended that origin, just why, why do the origin over in the first place? The only thing to me that worked well is I think there were these, what, these sand creatures or sand demons he fought? And that was the kind of fight that, uh, you know, that I think Robert E. Howard would have come up with some kind of uh, creature like that, and and 
it was pretty much the only good thing about the movie. I wanted to see it be good. Uh, for one thing, if there had been, if that movie had been a success, uh, there probably would have been a Red Sonja movie, and I own a little piece of Red Sonja, <laughs> so I, I would have benefited, you know, financially, and I would have liked to have seen a, 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 a second and even better, uh, be, better uh, Red Sonja movie come out. But unfortunately, the the problems with the uh, the third Conan movie made that impossible. But I just thought it was wrong-headed all the way from calling it Conan the Barbarian, reusing the title, to re, to, to redoing his origin, and, and at such incredible, noxious length. And then, uh, you know, he just, that, that actor somehow, he did all right, but he just never seemed, they never let him seem like the larger-than-life character that Arnold Schwarzenegger was. I think he could have come close to it if they'd had a better script but it, 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 the whole script, I mean, you know, with all the feelings our scripts may have had or Stanley, you know, or Milius's might have had for the first one, you know, uh, I think that the third movie, you know, had a ball beat as far as uh, missing the point. I think a lot of people realize, going back to Red Sonia, that she was kind of a Robert E. Howard creation, but kind of a your creation as well. Yeah, it was sort of half and half. I like the idea of, of taking the character from Howard and putting her in there. It made it seem more like it was, you know, part of a Robert E. Howard. If it wasn't part of the Conan mythos, at least it was part of a Robert E. Howard mythos. And so I kind of liked that. I was looking for a character that would be a, a woman to uh, encounter Conan, and I, and, uh, I became aware of that story, and the one story in which she appears, you know, with her name spelled differently, and of course said in a different era, and not with Conan. And at that point, it was just easy to take that story and turn it into a Conan story. It, it worked flawlessly, and uh, I've never had any reason to think that that was anything but a nice idea. I sort of lucked into it, but it was a nice idea. I have to ask, what did you think of the movie? Well, not that much. We, we, <laughs> we um, uh, again, it was Dino to death. Dino took over the property. We, we were, uh, we, uh, my partner Jerry Conway and I were offered a chance at writing it after uh, at a certain stage, but our agent. Uh, wouldn't let us do it because there was no back-end money, and it wouldn't make any difference. It wouldn't have been any good no matter who wrote it. It wasn't allowed to be uh, to be good. What the worst mistake made was they wanted to bring Conan in for just a little cameo. My understanding is that El Sprague de Camp insisted that if Conan appeared even for five minutes, he had to be paid you know the the whole amount of money as if Conan was in the whole movie. And that wasn't going to work out uh, because Dino, you know, worked on uh, always keeping his budgets down uh, as much as he could. So uh, they just ended up making Arnold, having Arnold play a character who was not named Conan, but who obviously was Conan and everything except his name. Then he could be in the movie as much as they wanted, and he was in the movie so much that he steered it away from being a Red Sonja movie at all. It became more like a Conan and Red Sonja movie than it was a Red Sonja movie, and not a particularly good one at that. Yeah, I've seen uh, posters from Germany where it's just Arnold super huge and then Red Sonja just tiny, yeah. and they named the movie after yeah. his character. Yeah, no, it was, it was warped. <laughs> it was warped by that. It, it was, again, it was wrong-headed. It was just Dino getting a good property and not knowing what the hell to do with it. He did this over and over again with popular things. I mean, he's King Kong... His his Firestarter I haven't seen, but I understand that was not, not one. It obviously wasn't one of the better Stephen King movies. Flash Gordon was not very good. I saw that one, and and and, and that wasn't right. The, the best thing about the first Conan movie with Schwarzenegger was that Dino wasn't very involved in it, <laughs> which is why I think it was as good as it was. What are you working on these days? Well, I do my magazine, my comics history magazine, Alter Ego. I work with Stanley on the Spider-Man newspaper strip. I write a couple of. Uh, about three strips, really, for Edgar Rice Burroughs' online 
site, which is fun. I've just put out this book you may have seen that came out right before Christmas, uh, this $200 book, 75 Years of Marvel, from the German publisher Taschen. And I'm working on a book now about Stan for them, which will also be a large, uh, humongous, uh, and very art-laden book. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, those Taschen books look so good. Yeah, yeah, they're nice. So we had to rush that one out because I, I, I wasn't supposed to write but half of it, and I ended up writing all of it. But I'm, I'm glad that I did end up writing all of it and, uh, and everything. And uh, now I can get back to the Stan Lee book. You famously helped create characters such as Ultron and Vision. What is it like now, all these years later, to see them kind of coming out in these Marvel movie forms? What are you thinking of the Marvel movies? I like them, most of them. Uh, I've seen almost all of them, and uh, I've liked almost all of them in varying degrees. Uh, the X-Men movies just sometimes got a little convoluted for my taste, but I, I, I really like them. Uh, the recent spate of movies uh, that Marvel, the Marvel Studios have been making, uh, starting with the Iron Man and then culminating in the Avengers, you know, has, I think, really been outstanding. It, and it shows a real mastery of, uh, of how to put these things together. They, they sort of, I guess they reverse-engineered what Stan Lee was doing over those years by tying together all the various comics he was writing with Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko and so forth. And they uh, decided, well, you know, if you can do that in comics, why can't you do it in movies? It must have been a, a, something of an amazement for a lot of people who are seeing individual movies like Iron Man and Captain America and Thor and the Hulk movies. And then suddenly to see the, the, the see, uh, to find out that the four of them were going to be in a movie together, because that kind of thing is something pretty close to without precedent in movies. I mean, there are very few cases where you can find that two or three or four movie franchises, and that's what they were. Each was a separate movie franchise, just like Spider-Man or X-Men or Fantastic Four or Daredevil that they made separately. You know, and to suddenly take those several franchises and put them together, because, of course, the general public didn't really know anything about the Avengers. They didn't know those guys all had been part of the Avengers at one time and that there was a precedent for having them in a comic together and therefore in a movie together. It was just luck that, in, in a certain sense, that all the properties that Marvel held on to, as opposed to the ones that had been already licensed to others, like Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, and X-Men, that all the ones that Marvel held on to of those early ones uh, led themselves to, uh, you know, being members of the Avengers. You didn't have to bring in characters who hadn't been part of the Avengers because everybody in that movie had actually been an Avenger. It was just a, a natural to say, hey, let's do the movie equivalent of, uh, of the comics. And, of course, I think it's fascinating because, you know, it, it's, it's always amazing. It's not that the movies are the ultimate form of characters like Ultron and the Vision and, and, for that matter, Thor, Iron Man. The ultimate form of those characters, in my mind, is the comic books themselves, the ones done by Stan and Jack and Steve originally and later done the ones done by me and John DeSemma and other people. While we, I don't consider us as having been really just some opening act for uh, for the movies, I do think that it, it's wonderful to see them expanded into this, uh, you know, even more popular uh, art form and to see them be so successful. And without any changes they make, they're still to be so, uh, so well done. I'm especially uh, pleased to see that the vision and uh, from what little I can see of them and certainly Ultron seem to be so true to the, uh, the roots. Ultron even looks like the... Uh, you know, some of the characters look more, look more or look less like the Marvel versions, but Ultron looks pretty much like the uh, the first Marvel version of him. 
I suppose in some ways I'd have rather seen a slightly less humanoid body like the second one I made up near the end that Sal Buscem and I designed. But, you know, the original Ultron was that, that looked like a big bulky guy and that evil smiling face, and that's what they've done, and I think it's great. Yeah, it must be nice to, to see these creations of yours kind of come back, and what I'm really hoping is that it helps push people back into the comics to see what these origins are and to see the stories kind of evolve that way. I'm hoping that it's not just a one-way street. Marvel will, you know, put some of those stories in print. I guess some, some of these things are have come back into print in the last little bit, and probably more are going to be coming out in the next few months. Uh, I, I wish they had uh, done a book that would have put together the handful of relative handful of Ultron stories I wrote, but I didn't even think to uh, to suggest it to them. And they did, you know, I did about a total of five of them back in the original incarnation, and then uh, two stories with, you know, the first one had two issues, and then the second one had three. And then in the 90s, I did about four or five more issues with Ultron in the Avengers West Coast book. I, it would have been nice to see those collected. That would have been an, uh, a nice book. But, you know, these things will... Uh, coming to print one way or the other, and the vision, too, is, is in those stories, so it'll be nice to, to see them. It's kind of funny now of seeing the Hulk counted as being a, you know, inter, as being integral to the Avengers when he was actually only in the first few issues, and then he was gone, you know, and never to come back for decades. And we, we didn't get Ant-Man in there quite, but uh, maybe he'll get in later, you know, backward instead of forward. And, and the whole idea that, you know, uh, Iron Man, rather than Hank Pym, has to have created Ultron now, well... If Hank, if Hank Pym isn't around, I guess, you know, Iron Man makes a lot of sense. The, and what little I know and what little they'd given out of the story certainly seems to me like a, a very sensible and almost inspired way to go uh, to keep it reasonably faithful to the comics within the context of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, as they term it. So Conan the Destroyer read the script for this one, and if Roy Thomas's vision uh, had gotten on the screen, um, really you, you can't ask for somebody more versed in Conan lore at this particular point in time than Roy Thomas. I mean, and he's writing the script. The The first draft script was uh, January of 1983. So it's right after Conan the Barbarian has been released. They are right on the sequel. Okay, let's get this. Because, because we, we forgot to mention, this movie was a fucking monster hit. Oh, yeah. Oh, theaters. yeah. No, we wouldn't have got the films that we've mentioned so far, like Sword the Sorcerer and, you know, Yor, the Hunter from the Future, all these kind of things. We wouldn't have got that had Conan the Barbarian tanked. This was a huge hit. This is what really put Arnold on the map. I mean, he, yeah, he was great in pumping iron and stay hungry and all these kind of things. He was amazing as the you know, third baddie from the left when it came to the long goodbye, but he's not making his bones with those things. He's there for Conan. 
monster, monster hit. This thing really did great box office, and they were geared up and ready for that sequel, man. And they got this guy on here, and very strong Conan script, and a lot of the elements made it into Conan the Destroyer as far as, like, black warrior woman, a horn of a god that um, is going to bring him back and try to conquer the world, uh, a protector of this uh, younger virginal princess that has to go and find the horn. All these kind of things are there, but talk about watered down. You know, we mentioned that as far as the score goes. Everything that I just talked about is still there in Conan the Destroyer, but it is so perverted and just so gone. I mean, Conan the Destroyer basically feels like what the sword and sorcery, like the the third or fourth tier films that came out after Conan the Barbarian, this feels like it belongs with those guys down in the gutter. I mean, this thing, it just does not work for me. And I know some people love it and they grew up with this film and there's this nostalgia factor and everything. And I can understand that. And there's a couple moments here and there. It's just not good. You know, I, I love Tracy Walter and he's no Subutai though. I'm sorry. In the beginning, it was kind of weird. The beginning of the Conan the Destroyer script has Subutai basically being killed off. So, you know, Valeria has gone. Mako, for some reason, nowhere to be found. Subutai's there. He gets hung right away in the original script. Then that's it. You know, like so Conan is free. He doesn't have the the Tracy Walter kind of uh, side piece, you know. And yeah, I mean Grace Jones, her character, the way it was written, would have been fantastic. Wilt Chamberlain would have been a albino. <laughs> <laughs> an albino eunuch because you really don't want wilt chamberlain protecting the virginal princess no you I'm really just don't that, that's kind of an in joke right there but yeah grace jones i don't mind her as an actress she's been in very good she annoyed the piss out of me in this movie every time her character appeared on screen i went oh my god just kill her already I don't know. It, it to me, it, it had reached a point that it was just so over the top. The w- one way I can engage with this film is as a piece of camp, as a piece of kitsch. Now there are some there are some scenes where it just doesn't work. And as much as I like Tracy Walter, I think his contributions to this film definitely ruin a lot of the tone for me. But when it when you have a character like Grace Jones's that is just so exaggerated and so over the top, perhaps it's a cinematic self defense mechanism. But I find enjoyment in it by just how terrible it is. All right, I, I'm going to I'm going to say this. I'm probably going to lose a lot of credibility. Rob Schneider was less distracting as comic relief in Judge Dredd. Whoa, wow. that's I would put them on the same level, but I wouldn't necessarily say that Rob Schneider is better than anyone. Because the, the, the comic relief in this this Conan the Destroyer seemed like it was trying more to be funny than it was to be an adventurous. And that, I mean, even Sarah Douglas, the costume they give her is so, look at my cleavage, look at my cleavage, look at my cleavage, that it almost comes across like a parody of what Conan was supposed to be. That's what I find so goddamn insulting about this one. 
And again, I think some of it might be attributable to the fact that they got Richard Fleischer to direct this. And you know, you know, again, you look back on his filmography, the closest thing to Conan he did was The Vikings, but a lot more of his other movies were stuff like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea or The Fantastic Voyage or, you know, Dr. Doolittle. So I don't necessarily think he was the great greatest pick for this. But then again, he was such a jobbing director. You know, he did so much, so many disparate films that it's hard to even peg a style for him because at the same time where he did all those adventure movies and lighthearted movies, he also did stuff like uh, Soylent Green or Tora Tora Tora. So uh, it's hard to get a really good uh, bead on Richard Fleischer sometimes, well, but I have to feel that movie- his sensibilities were way different than Milius. Yeah, cause, but this whole movie is shot so flatly. It's shot like it's a TV movie. It's shot so flat and uninspired. And you've got some really inspired set pieces like the Mirror Demon that is totally ruined by the horrendous special effects. I mean you can see the guy is wearing a Halloween mask. You can <laughs> see where the mask stops when his shirt moves and you can see the actor's white skin, his Caucasian skin under it. And I'm like – Really? That undercuts how awesome the concept of the scene is. It It's terrible looking. But then, then you've got the awesome visuals of like that smoke dragon that carries the princess away. You go, that looks so amazing. And then the mirror guy, you go, oh my god, did you go to a Spencer Gifts for this? Is that how <laughs> low the budget was? And especially since you had cast Pat Roach, that I have a uh, gentleman I have a certain a great deal of affection for, as you know this e- evil wizard, and then you have the climax be that horrible special effect. I mean, at one point he picks up Arnie and does a giant swing with him, which it's fine when you see it in a wrestling ring, but you don't necessarily want to see it in a Conan movie. And we get that same camera movement that we just saw in Saturday Night Fever a couple weeks ago where you see Arnold zooming around the room. It's just like, really, am I watching this right now? Is that where we're going with this? And was I the only person that during that mirror sequence uh, had flashbacks to Enter the Dragon and half expected to hear that horribly dubbed sensei say, the enemy only has illusions and images to hide behind? Actually, I I, I will say one thing about that that is that whole sequence that is well-directed. And I was looking. You can't see the cameraman reflected once. So they did a good job of actually because you're in a room surrounded, you know, in a complete circle with mirrors. You had to hide the cameraman pretty well, I think. I think they did a good job with that. Do the credit. That part, you can see how fake the mask is, but you can't see the cameraman. So that's something. Well, and I, I think some of that is the experience of a guy like Fleischer. That yes, he's a very flat director and yes he's very workmanlike in his approach but at this point you know he had been working in the industry since the 50s so the guy definitely knew his craft it's just in comparison to some of the newer energy that milius was bringing up you know it's it's new hollywood versus versus old hollywood and we see the effects and part of me wonders, is this the movie that De Laurentiis wanted the first Conan to be? Because it definitely feels more of a piece with a lot of other De Laurentiis-produced stuff. If you take out Manhunter, almost everything DEG made feels more like in line with with uh, Conan the Destroyer. Manhunter's the only arguably really serious film from DEG that, uh, that kind of makes you go, wow, Dino, really? I can't put it in the same category as Flash Gordon because I think that Conan the Destroyer is sillier than Flash Gordon. <laughs> that's, that's saying yeah. a lot, especially when you have uh, you Lorenzo know, Semple Jr. writing Flash Gordon. Or the Hawkman. Die! Die! <laughs> but, um, 
just like what just like what they had initially wanted this one to be more family friendly and more open to the public the public didn't think so this film was a major disaster at the box office but much like beastmaster had a long long run on television her courage was forged out of fire her power a gift of the gods her destiny to become a glorious new hero Red Sonia only one man on earth is man enough to win her don't be a fool try it to love her to join her great adventure Arnold Schwarzenegger is Lord Calador Kill them. Two legends unite to destroy the Earth's greatest evil. God, Majesty, what you want? The world, Eichel! We must find a way in. Your Highness learns first. I make it a rule never to take a woman unless she can beat me in a fair fight. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Why not? Brigitte Nielsen. A warrior. A woman. A magnificent new legend. Well, let's get to my favorite of the Conan sequels, which was not a Conan movie. It was uh, Red Sonia coming out the next year. We got the same director. We've got Arnold back as Calador, not Conan, Sandal Bergman coming back as the Sarah Douglas character, basically. As Queen Evil Lesbian. Yes. Oh, God. Yeah, there's so much lesbianism in in this film. There's so much gay terror, you know. It's the fact that she's evil because she's a lesbian. That's basically her character. And then uh, the Beast Raban, uh, Paul L. Smith as Falcon, who is protecting Ernie Reyes Jr. as the insufferable oh Prince God, Tarn. Oh my God, I to step on that kid so bad. Is it just me or does that kid look weirdly proportioned? I mean, I know he's a small child, but he almost looked like he took a small child and slightly squished him. Well, the outfits don't help either. Like the way that they have that thing that goes over his yeah, legs at times. And, and then Bridget Nielsen... Oh my God. I remembered Bridget Nielsen as like the hot blonde from Beverly Hills Cop 2. I forgot just how awful she is as Red Sonia. You got to look far for bad acting this bad. I mean, by this point, Conan being kind of Arnold's, you know, first major film, by this point, three years later, Arnold's like winning Oscars compared to this lady. This is insane how badly she delivers her dialogue. It is just 
Oh, it, it hurts. And to again, watch. But again, but, though, but then, just much like Conan the Destroyer, it might be my cinematic self-defense. But there are so so many scenes where the awfulness of the film, particularly the dialogue scenes between Brigitte Nielsen and Arnold Schwarzenegger, where you just have to laugh at it, and it becomes enjoyable in its own right just by how terrible it is. Okay, think about it like this. You, okay, the dialogue scenes are that bad, and those are the takes they used. You must learn to like men a little better. They are not all evil. We must judge by our own experience, Grandmaster. I know. But in life, all is not swordplay. Hatred of men in a lovely young woman. It could be your downfall. I don't hate all men, Grandmaster. We did twenty ticks, and that was the best one. And but Mike, I sent you that art, that uh, review that comic writer Peter David gave of Red Sonia. Before I read that, I'd never quite put that together. But he's right about why this movie feels so almost hate-filled and wrong, isn't it? About how she was raped, so unless a man can conquer her, no man can have her. So you kind of have to re-rape her to break her. That's a sick-ass message. You won't find happiness unless you learn to love men. That's essentially the plot. Well, and I know there had to have been more of the beginning. Just the way that this movie starts is just so abrupt with the way that, like, her, you know, her family's dead within seconds, you know. And, and I just, I know there had to have been more there. But it just feels like it was all on the cutting room floor or something. It's just like, what happened here? Was that too violent? Because again, it feels like Red Sonia, fun for the whole family. Look at, we have Ernie Reyes Jr. in here. This is a kid that we can all relate to. He's kind of like short round, right? He was popular. Well, yeah, and you got Pat Roach from the Indiana Jones movie, so that has another connection. Bring them in. Bring in the kids. You know, it was safe enough for me to go see over at the Southland 4. And it's a movie about rape. <laughs> you know, when I saw this movie when I was six or seven, rape I, didn't, and lesbianism. I, I didn't understand a lot of the stuff that was going on in this movie. And yet I admit it. I admit as a little kid, I liked this film going to it as an adult, uh, albeit a emotionally stunted adult like I am. Yeah, it's not so good. There's enjoyment to be found from a strictly kitsch uh, perspective. But if you compare it to uh, Conan the Barbarian, oh, it's painful. And the audiences said the same thing, because this was also a fucking bomb. <laughs> yeah, we wouldn't get another Conan film for quite a few years, and it's kind of weird. The next Conan film we got was actually a call film. There was a script written by Charles Edward Pogue. Um, the draft I have is uh, June 5th, 1992. And basically, they just did a, a find and replace, and that ended up becoming Call the Conqueror with our good friends Kevin Sorbo as Call. This was also a disaster as well, both oh, yeah. on film and financial. They're, they're, you're noticing a theme here. Everything after the original didn't strike a chord. But but then with Call, after that, you did get two moderately successful Conan properties, but they weren't movies. You had the Conan the Adventurer cartoon, which lasted for a full season of 65 episodes. and was Actually, it might have lasted two seasons, which was actually surprisingly good 
kids cartoon, surprisingly violent for a cartoon. And then oh, yeah. you had the the Rolf Mueller nineteen ninety seven, I think, the live action TV series that just kind of got lost and it it was written off as a Hercules: A Legendary Journeys ripoff, ironically enough, because of the Kevin Sorbo thing. It wasn't bad, but it wasn't good. It was. Yeah. That's the best thing you could say about it. I mean, take nothing away from Ralph Mueller. You put him in the right role and he can excel. But he really wasn't bringing much to the table as Conan. But he wasn't terrible and the show itself was not terrible. It just was – it was. It was better than Beastmaster the series. Yes, I will give it that. The biggest problem with Conan the TV show was its budget. They they shot over in Eastern Europe to get some of the locales that they needed, and probably for tax reasons. But the the effects were terrible. There was that there was that late '90s TV CG. There was one scene where he's fighting a spider that looks so fake—a giant spider. This movie, the stories and characters were were cliched, but they weren't bad. What drugged the show down was. Their aspirations were larger than their budget. This film needed, you know, instead of being a million dollars an episode, they required two million dollars an episode to make this decent. That was part of the problem of the Conan TV show. And it wouldn't be until 2011 that we would finally get another Conan film. Before we get into that, let's take another break here and we'll play an interview with Sean Hood, who is uh, one of the screenwriters for the 2011 Conan the Barbarian. Some of your early credits have you as a swing gang. Can you explain to my listeners what a swing gang is? Well, in the art department, there's a whole gang of guys usually, although um, there's some female members as well, who basically dress the set. In other words, the walls are built, the structure is built, but then it has to be filled with objects, whether it be furniture, chandeliers, I don't know, uh, dungeon torture equipment or whatever. So what set dressers do is uh, they run around town in a truck to different prop houses and and stores or whatever. You, you, you buy up all the stuff that's going to go into the set and you bring it and then you set it all up. And then when they're done shooting, you pull it all down. There's also something called an on-set dresser, which is like a prop person. And, and it's all part of the um, also very closely related to the props department where you just are on set and moving things around the camera depending on the shot. So the set dresser, if the set is like a like a person, uh, the set dresser is the costumer for the set. I heard that you have a double major in mathematics and studio art. Is that right? Uh-huh. Yeah, that's correct. You know, I always tell people that I, I what I really majored in was everything that had no possible application to the uh, the real world. Because in mathematics, I was just interested in mostly multidimensional geometry and other pure mathematics that really had no particular application. And in art, I was a painter of mostly abstract paintings, um, which also didn't have any particular relationship to the real world. The other things that I liked to study in college were philosophy and some literature, you know, all the stuff that they list as you know, the majors that uh, will not get you a job when you get out of school. So I did the only thing I could think of when I got out, which was get into the film business. How did you go from being a set dresser, member of the swing gang, all this, into writing films? Well, one thing that's interesting about set dressers and pop guys and and uh, some of the other sort of grunts like grips and uh, electricians, and they're a really interesting group of people because a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them are people who are younger and, this, remember, this was in my early 20s, who have aspirations for bigger things. As a set dresser, 
I, I mean, I first got into set dressing because I thought I might want to be a production designer and move my way up to the art department. But as I started set dressing, I met these aspiring actors, these, these aspiring filmmakers, these aspiring writers. And as a result, very quickly, um, I got involved in independent film and in independent film groups in which we would all come together. We had no money, but we would all come together and we'd collaborate on making films, uh, usually shooting on anything we could find, Super 8, High 8, sometimes 16 millimeter. And uh, after a couple of years of doing that, I saved my money. I worked on the set dresser. I worked on some big Arnold Schwarzenegger movies like uh, True Lies and Last Action Hero. And uh, uh, I was young, so I didn't have a, a, a lot to spend my money on. So I saved it all up. And uh, I knew from working with these independent filmmakers that I wanted to be a writer and a director and, and, and uh, to work on that side of things rather than art department. And I saved my money and I applied to film school. And I ended up going to USC as a uh, production major. Um, in that case, I was on sort of a director's track. But as I was there in school... Although I was directing films, I found that uh, I really enjoyed writing them. And I, until that point, I really didn't see myself as a writer at all. And then when I got out of school around 98, I had a couple of short films, and I started to get some jobs working on things like promos for NBC and other networks, you know, writing and producing those. And then around 2000, I sold my first, I sold my first feature script in 2000. It was called The Dorm, and it was developed for 15 years and came out well, 14 years, and finally came out as the TV movie on MTV just four months ago. Development can take a long time. And believe me, over 14 years, that script changed a lot. I bet. I bet. <laughs> just the, uh, I mean, technology and everything has just changed so much over the time. Yeah. And, uh, and also, um, it, it, it went from being, it started out as a TV movie in 2000, but then it was going to be a feature film with Paramount um, for a couple of years, around two, um, 2004. Then the executives turned over, and then it was going to be. Well, we talked about it as a uh, an alternate reality game. It was uh, a short story. It, it went through a lot of different phases, and, and in a lot of those phases, it had a different cast of characters, a different um, primary storyline, and then it would uh, then sometimes we'd go back to an earlier idea. It's interesting because the the final film that came out was something in some ways, very, very different from all the, the things that happened before. But in uh, in terms of a few scenes and a few particular ideas, it, it came uh, it, precisely from the original script that I wrote, I think, the first draft of in like 1999. How did you get involved with Halloween Resurrection? I sold that script in 2000. And I also started doing, you know, some writing assignments for some of the movies that never came out. But they, they tended to be because the dorm was a genre piece and in the sort of that horror world, some of the other projects that I um, that I was getting um, were also um, in the horror genre, or at least in the thriller genre. So I had all these samples that were horror, and uh, my uh, my agents at the time sort of worked in that world, and they sent a lot of my stuff over to Dimension, and I ended up getting in contact with a executive there named Louis Spiegler, who I guess liked my work, and another um, another fellow named Jesse Berdinka, and they wanted to pull me on to something. And they pulled me on to Halloween Resurrection, and what happened was I ended up getting a what's called a rewrite deal with Dimension Films, which was I basically had a contract that I would rewrite, I can't remember how many, it was either four or five projects at you know a set rate. And so Halloween Resurrection was really the first part of that, the first one on that deal, and I ended up doing rewrites on all sorts of other 
projects of theirs. It was kind of a, a almost always a case in which, like in Halloween Resurrection, where they were going to start shooting very, very soon, and they needed somebody to come in and do a pass on the screenplay before they started shooting. And then inevitably, I would end up doing production rewrites, which are rewrites that are done during shooting to adjust to whatever else is going on. And that's what, that's what happened with Dimension. I also did a draft of Cursed. I did, a, um, I did drafts of oh, the, the Crow, Wicked Prayer, a lot, of, a, a lot of crazy Dimension films I don't think I would have chosen to work on and uh, you know, weren't necessarily the, the finest films when they, they came out, but the experience was great because I was forced to write very quickly write very practically and you know it was a, it was a, a great way to get a, a lot of experience screenwriting even if the end result i kind of had little control over with that kind of a deal do you necessarily always get screen credit or what is uh what's that no like? no the uh, uh the way the way screen credit works especially now when there um when there are sometimes between you know as many six eight ten writers who have written on something the WGA decades and decades ago decided that they, that they wanted the writing credit to be to carry weight. They didn't want um, there to be one director and eight credited writers. Um, and so the the way it works now the is that only two writers or two writing teams can get credit. Sometimes the, um, the screenplay the screenplay credit can be split in between screenplay by and story by, but in general, in one of those categories only two writers or two writing teams can get credit. And a writing team is usually joined by an appersand. And if it's two different writers who worked on the screenplay at different times, it's separated by the actual word and. And then there's, uh, at the end of production, when they try to determine credits, either all the writers agree or when they disagree over who should get credit, it goes into arbitration. And what's interesting is that uh, something like most films go into credit arbitration, a period where, and I've gone through several of these arbitrations where each of the writers has to write a statement about why they think they should get credit, um, outlining um, how, how much uh, they, uh, what their contribution to the final shooting script was in terms of dramatic structure, dialogue, characterization, and new and original scenes. Then a, a panel of three anonymous arbiters who are all experienced WGA writers then read all the different drafts of the, uh, that were written go all the way up to the shooting script, which can be an enormous amount of reading. There, it's, you know, movies are often based on a book. So the, that panel has to read the original book and then maybe 9, 10, 11, 12 different drafts of the screenplay you know, with their highlighters out and try to figure out who contributed most to the, the final screenplay. And as you can imagine, you know, all the different writers have the very different opinions on you know, what they contributed and how much weight should be given. And so what happens is on many films that I worked on, I, I came in last and did a lot of rewrites um, right up toward um, uh, uh, to the eve of production. But in some cases, all I did was fix up one, uh, you know, address some dialogue or fix up a character. Or, you know, I've had a writer's um, assignments where all I did was just cut, cut the script down from a length of 140 pages to a length of 85 pages or, you know, different kinds of, of script doctoring. Uh, and a lot of that goes uncredited. Um, but in the case of Halloween Resurrection, and as it turns out, in the case of Conan, um, there, uh, enough change based on my contribution for me to get credit on the final film. With Conan, I'd worked on previous projects with the producers at Millennium, in particular Joe Gatta, who at one point was uh, for in the first years of me working as a writer was actually my agent, but then he turned producer. I'd worked with them on our pre pre previous projects 
uh, I'd written a, a draft of the movie Hercules, The Legend Begins, in like 2007. And they eventually made that only, you know, two years ago. But the original script that I wrote for them, they liked very much. And so it was also in this, and because it was also in the short sandal genre, they were interested in me um, doing rewrites on Conan. Uh, I'd also worked with Marcus Mispel earlier on a, of all things, it was like an underground zombie project that never got made, but that was being developed. I wrote a draft of that for him. So I was familiar with all the people. And, you know, it's, another thing a lot of people don't realize about the, the process, the screenplay development, is that it's, it's not as if one writer writes a draft and everyone dislikes something and somebody comes in and fixes it. A lot of times, most of the time, actually, writers come in and have a very strong vision, write what is, from an objective point of view, a, uh, a, a fine screenplay, but it's, it's uh, you know, they had a particular vision. It was developed in a particular direction. And then new people come on board on the project and they want to take the project in a different direction. And they often hire different writers to, to do that. Um, this is sort of the way the, um, the, uh, the, the, the development process works. But the uh, one writer being replaced by another um, is not necessarily an indication that the first writer or the, the second or the third or the, all the writers who came before didn't do a, a stellar job. It often, more often, it means that some, somebody new to the project um, wants to go in a different direction. And that's what happened with Conan. There was an original draft that, that was developed with the producers over many years, um, written by Thomas Donnelly and Joshua Oppenheimer, which, and it was developed in a lot of different directions. They, uh, they wrote a, a number of drafts um, that uh, explored different things. And uh, it was a script that was really highly regarded by the producers. But then when Lionsgate got involved and when Marcus Mispel came on board as uh, the director, there were a lot of different ideas about where it should go. And that's what always is a dangerous place for a screenplay because, you know, uh, especially for writers who have been involved in a project for a long time, suddenly new people come in and they want to, you know, to do the kind of the opposite of what they had in mind and scripts, and then the script starts to get pulled in a bunch of different directions. And that's when the problems start. It's not, so, um, uh, you, you know, suddenly you've got a bunch of different people who have maybe different visions of what the ultimate product could be. And it becomes very difficult for the writer to writer or writers to to make sense of that, and then the script can start to come apart at the seams. And that's what I think was ha- happened with Conan. There was a, a writer after the, the credited writing team, Donnelly and Oppenheimer, who worked on the script as well, who did a good job, but he took it in, in a very um, particular direction that the director didn't agree with, and then it went in another direction. And uh, all those sort of tidal forces working on the screenplay in different directions meant that the screenplay that they had going into very close to production was ungainly because it had, it, it was a, a sort of a Frankenstein monster of a, a bunch of very different ideas of what the movie should be. Even though the writers and the people who came up with all these individual ideas were, were, uh, were talented and had good ideas. It, it was like the whole thing just didn't fit together. So when I got on board, it, um, my job was more than anything else was to try to, make sense of all these different ideas and and sew the script together in a way so that it felt whole and it felt like a single vision. So I'm sorry, that, that, that's um, how I got involved on Conan. But when I when I was hired, it would, there were only two weeks before principal photography was about to start. And in order to get credit, 
you have to have, you know, uh, I ended up changing about 40% of the screenplay um, just over the course while the, the, the movie was being shot. And a lot of that was just necessary um, in terms of what was going on in production, what was going on in, um, in terms of what different people involved in the production wanted, and also me trying to just make sense of these different ideas, but also try to, my own particular vision of, of what I thought uh, Conan should be, try to give it some sort of unity. You were the one that had kind of final say on the the screenplay. You were the guy who was doing the actual writing and rewriting while the, the production was going on. From the, at least the final say in terms of uh, the the string of writers. In other words, the the other writers were done, and then so I was the last person to have my fingers in the screenplay. But final say, really, that's an interesting question all in and of itself, because the writer in a, is in a position in these types of films, like Conan, where it's based on very particular underlying material, and when there are very prominent producers and prominent executives involved who are making an incredibly expensive movie that will determine their careers, and when there's a very strong-minded director who comes on board, you know, all these people are going to throw their considerable weight around, and they're all heavier than the writer, in order to sort of shift the screenplay according to, you know, the direction that they want. So the writer doesn't always have final say, but yet when he or she is writing, you're also in the position of ultimately you have to take responsibility for whatever's put on the page. So it creates a lot of friction. There's a lot of, there ends up being a lot of passionate debate about what should be put in there. The writer doesn't often win those battles um, in, a, in a case like Conan. But, but that said, you are correct in that uh, the last writer does have ultimate responsibility for the, sh- the shooting script. Now, when you said that you brought in like maybe 40% uh, changes, what kind of stuff were you, you know, bringing to the party with this? There were a number of elements, um, and some of those elements had more to do with what ended up in the shooting script than necessarily what happened, in the, um, uh, what, what came together in the final film. But uh, the writing that I did, the first part of the writing I did was actually pretty technical, which is just taking a script in which there were a number of pieces that didn't quite that didn't really fit together and figuring out a way um, for uh, for those things to fit together for character arcs to, to feel whole for um, a story that sort of makes sense as it goes from A to B to C uh, that, that turned out to be very difficult just in a practical sense because you know new ideas came along that they had to be as I was rewriting I couldn't change like you know sets had already been built special effects had already been worked on um, whole stunt stunts had been choreographed, you know, in preparation. You know, there were there was like six months of preparation coming into this, so I had to work within certain parameters. There was a lot that I couldn't change. What I tried to bring to it was I wanted to make sure that the movie had a tone that was consistent with the character as he appeared in the original pulp novels and um, in some of the original comic books. I also, when I came to it, I was very interested in, the, in both the villain and the female characters. I spent a lot of time writing out the characters of Tamara, the leading lady, and Marie, who was eventually played by Rose McGowan. All of that was ended up being cut out of the final film. Um, and again, that had to do with differing visions of what the, those, those characters should be. I was very, very interested in, in creating very complex villains. I wanted to give uh, the, the villain a big backstory and a motivation for why he was doing all the, the bad things he was doing. Um, I also wanted to create a dynamic female character to go along with Conan so that she would have her own, her own battles, her own kills, her own, again, motivations, her own reasons to be in conflict with Conan 
and that sort of uh, that sort of thing. When I was rewriting Marique, the uh, a character was originally written as for, um, for a man. I came up with this. Uh, we developed a really pretty perverse sort of subtext for this character and a very complex sort of conflict that she had um, with her father that uh, uh, where she in many ways undermined him. And a lot of that just so I, I brought a lot of that, and so you can see a little bit of that peeking out in the movie. Uh, but uh, most of it was was cut out, so that it, you, you don't really see it, and, and that had to do with I think differing ideas with some of the producers and the director in terms of they were worried that some of that work might weaken Conan as a character. I didn't think it did, but they they wanted the Conan character to be constantly front and center. They wanted to make sure that the villain wasn't uh, that the audience wouldn't empathize or sympathize with the villain in any way. Um, and I had sort of different ideas about whether that was the right idea. But anyway, I brought some of that, that kind of character work to it. And then uh, other parts of it were, were just um, had to do with, in any movie like this, you have to create a mythology around all the different characters and the backstory of what the, the, the things that they're pursuing and uh, getting that mythology straight so that it, it, it makes sense and that everyone can agree on it was another whole chore, figuring out what it is that... Conan is ultimately going for what it is that uh, the villain is ultimately going for. There's a whole mythology surrounding the, um, a, a mask and a, a resurrection um, ritual that happens at the end. Uh, I was sort of brought in to, to try to make that all work because, it, it, because that, believe me, in, in the earlier drafts was completely different from what ended up in the final film. And so for better or for worse, I, I came in to change all those things. This whole idea of you getting there two weeks before you know shooting starts, and then you've got, what, at least seven listed producers plus the director who probably all have their own opinions. This sounds just incredibly stressful. It was. And, you know, it, it, it was a very stressful shoot. I, I was brought in two weeks before production. And, you know, after two weeks of writing, I was, I was put on a plane and I went to Bulgaria. And the atmosphere in Bulgaria was one of extreme stress. And there was a lot of stress surrounding the script because ultimately, when you start production on a movie that expensive with that many moving parts and that many different crew members, the script is your center of gravity. Your script is the blueprint that everybody is working off of. And if there's this sense that the script is going to change at any moment or that there are whole points of the script that are going to be subject to change, this creates a lot of nervousness all the way through production, all the production heads are suddenly going, what are we doing? Are we, are we building the set? Or are we not building the set? Are we prepping this location? Or are we not? You know, actors are saying, you know, what is my character's motivation? What are they doing later? What is my backstory? Are you changing it? And so uh, the writer is really at the middle of this maelstrom. I mean, this, the, uh, all these different forces spinning around and you know, I was lucky in that um, I had a good relationship with one of the producers who acted as a little bit of a front so that uh, in order to get to me, they had to go sort of get through him first, which made things a little bit easier, even though, of course, there's, there, I'm still dealing with all these different visions. But at least I didn't have 30 people calling me every day with a different um, idea of what to put in the script. But Conan was one of those movies where you had a, a lot of people with incredibly strong ideas about what the movie should be. And those ideas ultimately were uh, were at odds with each other. So I found myself as a writer often in the position of trying to get, negotiate those uh, the, the, between different people who had, had different visions for the script and to try to keep everyone involved and just try to advocate for whatever I thought was the best solution. 
but it's it's not what people think of sometimes when they think of screenwriting. They think of it's like a playwright. You just go away into a cabin somewhere and you write. Um, but that's not what it was like. It was more like, you know, something's uh, you come up with a scene in the middle of the night on a Tuesday and they're shooting it on a Wednesday. You know, you're changing dialogue for something that's going to be shooting tomorrow and literally slipping it under the producer or under the actress's door in the middle of the night so that they have sides for the next morning. You know, you have people coming at you from all different directions with, you know, I, there were a couple of producers who were very, very interested in sort of the authenticity of the character um, to make sure that it was true to the traditional character that was in the, um, in the magazine, but especially that the world that Robert E. Howard created was represented in a way that was really authentic. But then you had other producers who were just very, very concerned about it being this sort of, you know, I guess you would call it a kick-ass action movie and that it would appeal to a, a very wide audience, many of whom had never heard of uh, of uh, Conan other than maybe they, they might have seen um, an earlier film or maybe they might have heard of him but uh, not really know any of the, of the details. One of the things that Marcus Mispel said in an interview, I was sitting with him in an interview after the movie came out, and he was joking that he was a dog of many leashes. And what he meant by that was that sometimes I think people have this idea of, a director being this all-powerful force on set who just creates the, the movie according to his vision, um, I think he, by contrast, felt like he was there and he, uh, he was a dog with like six leashes around his neck and he was being pulled constantly in different directions. No, we want it this way. No, we want it this way. And he had a, a completely different um, version. I think his vision of Conan, um, I, I certainly don't want to put words in his mouth, but uh, the vision that I got from him as I was working on the film was much more violent and sociopathic than the way the movie ultimately came out. The original Conan, um, the, the one from 81, that movie, uh, was reviewed once as Star Wars as if it were uh, written by a, psych um, by a sociopath. And he thought that was the greatest thing in the world. He often would direct the film towards the, the direction of this very violent sort of sociopathic sort of feel to it. Like uh, different other producers want, went in the other direction. And as you, and you, as you can imagine, that sort of conflicted with a lot of the more complex sort of character -y scenes that I was writing that uh, he thought were a waste of time. So he would sort of zip through those so that he could get back to the war scenes and more beheadings. And that was just part of his vision of the world that was just at odds with other visions. And I think that ultimately the movie that came out, I think there are a lot of good individual pieces of it. Um, but I think one of the reasons that it, was, it wasn't always well-reviewed or more often than not poorly reviewed was because the movie that ultimately was stitched together, in, in order to give it some sort of unity, a lot had to be left out um, because it just didn't fit anymore. And, uh, and a lot of, even the pieces that were there, everyone's work wasn't fitting together um, the, the way it should. Because it felt like when everyone got to Bulgaria, um, and there was that sense of enormous tension that a lot of the departments and a lot of the people involved in the film were working on different movies. And that was the major problem. It wasn't so much that anybody, um, at least from my perspective, um, and the people I worked with, it wasn't that anybody was doing bad work. It was just that everyone was pushing in different directions, and those pieces didn't always fit. Were you familiar with the Robert E. Howard stuff before you took this gig? I was. It's funny. My father was uh, uh, was really into the horror, fantasy, and science fiction films. He used to take me to a store in Hollywood in the late 70s. There were two. There was one called the Hollywood Book and Poster Shop. And the other one was called Bond Street Books. I can't remember. No, um, that wasn't it. But, but uh, both those places had all these, the actual pulp magazines. 
you, know, you could buy for only a few bucks. The amazing stories and the, all the the weird tales magazines that uh, where Robert E. Howard was originally published. Well, I was a little kid at the time, but I just I loved the the really lurid covers that they had. So I would buy all these these magazines for a few bucks, and they were falling apart. You would open them up, and uh, the pages would literally crumble in your hands because they were so old. They were you know from the 30s. Um, but I started reading them, and there was something really subversive about the stories. They were very violent. They were very sexual. They were very sort of perverse. I was also very taken by H.P. Lovecraft. Those uh, stories had a big effect on me. Um, I didn't really think about them or uh, come back to them until the Conan Project um, came up. But I was already aware of Robert E. Howard's work, and I remembered like Queen of the Black Coast and Red Nails and some of the other stories very, very, very well. Now, we're roughly about the same age. Did you see Conan the Barbarian when you were growing up? I did, and it was... Uh, it was funny. I remember seeing it on the one hand, I remember loving certain aspects of it and then other aspects of it seemed so campy to me. Things about the original that I really liked and other things about it that, uh, uh, that film that, um, I don't know, just, uh, I found really funny, I guess. It was something about, especially Arnold Schwarzenegger at that moment was much more of a comic or, or, or silly um, person to me um, with his, his thick accent couldn't quite navigate English at the time, yet he was such a specimen to look at. It was a, it was a very different movie, but, but one that I certainly enjoyed. Now, after Conan, your Conan came out, you famously went on and um, wrote a, a little article for Quora about what it's like to kind of be behind a flop, you know, when your movie flops. Uh-huh. Did you get any shit for that? I got lots of shit for that. You know, it's funny. I'd been writing a lot on Quora. Quora sort of just came out. I met the, the people who founded it, and I, I really liked a lot of the writers um, who I met writing on that. But there were also a group of screenwriters who answered, asked and answered questions on the site. Um, I'd already answered a bunch of the, of the questions, and there were about like 30 regular screenwriting hopefuls and semi-professionals who were on the site. And when the movie flopped that, and that question came up, uh, I decided to write it. And I really thought I was only writing to an audience of about 30 uh, screenwriters. You know, you always in the back of your mind think, oh, there's a possibility this might go viral. But you don't really think it's it's possible. You don't really think of that as a real possibility. And so I wrote that and it, it came from a very sincere place. I was just um, and a very um, also unedited sort of place. Like, in, in other words, I wasn't writing this to be broadcast everywhere. I was really just r- relating some of my thoughts upon th- uh, things flopping the, the day after to a group that I thought was going to be very, well, mostly very small. But I wrote it, I sort of posted it, and I didn't think about anything. I didn't even turn on my computer until the next day. And that's when I realized that it had been picked up by Reddit and it had been picked up by a, a bunch of the Hollywood blogs and Hollywood sites that are um, where everyone reads everything. And I think on, uh, what ended up happening was, I think the people who are one step removed from um, the business and the the, and the project in specifically uh, it gave me a lot of positive feedback for it because it was an interesting, you know, people don't often write about what it feels like when a movie flops. Everyone kind of runs away from it. And I tried to, and I, I tried to write something inspirational for other writers who might be um, experiencing failure or a failure of expectations. And in that sense, it was fairly positive. The thing that I regret ultimately was that I think this one sentence in, in there I'd written that I, I thought I, I'd done a good job on my rewrite and that I thought I had improved things from the script that I was handed basically going into it, which was true. There, was, there were a lot of problems with that script 
that uh, were the result of, again, what I was talking about earlier, there's these tidal forces. But a lot of people took that as me throwing the other writers under the bus. And, you know, that made me feel terrible because, first of all, that, that was not uh, my intention. As I said earlier in the interview, the, um, uh, the, the other drafts, the other writers were certainly as talented as I am, and they, and they wrote some really good drafts along the way. But when you're forced to rewrite in a completely different direction than was your intention, and when you have a, a bunch of people giving you um, sort of conflicting ideas about where it can go, you know, a screenplay can get really messed up. Through no fault, it wasn't their fault so much it was as it was the fault of the process. So, and again, because I thought I was talking to 30 people, I didn't write up, uh, explain myself any more clearly than that. And besides, also, it wasn't really my subject. Uh, I was just writing a uh, an account of how I felt after the the, uh, the movie didn't do as well as at the box office as I had hoped. There were some people in Hollywood who took it very um, cynically, who thought I was trying to somehow blame other people for the flop, which is uh, which I didn't at all. Uh, I, I didn't I didn't blame the director. I didn't blame other people for it. I just talked about how it's precisely what we talked about the uh, the idea that when Different people have di- um, different ideas about what a movie should be because it doesn't turn out that well. But again, that, um, just saying that, that sentence I just said now could be interpreted as me saying it was the director's fault. Oh, it was these producers' fault. Oh, it was these executives' fault. You know, writers love to blame executives in the studio for changing their screenplay. But that wasn't my intention. My, uh, my intention was, number one, to, to indicate that when everyone can't agree on what movie to make, it usually doesn't turn out that well. But also... The fact that, you know, you work for years on these things. And when you're working on them in Bulgaria, you're working for 20 hours a day, getting no sleep for weeks and weeks in a row. You're putting all your best efforts in, into it and you're throwing all your passion into it. You're, uh, regardless of how, um, how it ultimately um, turns out, you're bringing your A game every day. And so are other people. So is the costume designer. So is the, um, is the stunt coordinator. So, is, um, uh, so are a lot of the actors. And of course, nobody sees that uh, when you see that. All you see is the final film. And so it's, it's heartbreaking when you see the final film. It gets bad reviews and you realize, okay, those reviews are pretty accurate, but there's nothing you can do about it. That's just, and I, I drew the, the uh, comparison to a political campaign where a bunch of people can all um, work on a campaign where they feel they're right on the issues, where they feel, uh, you know, they, they put in everything that they have. But sometimes, for various reasons, the, the the campaign doesn't work out, and your your guy loses, and uh, that can be heartbreaking. But when you're a filmmaker and when you're a writer, what you ultimately do is you go on to the next campaign. You get up the next morning and start working on whatever it is that you're working on next, um, and you continue to bring your A game to whatever you're working on, whether it's a little independent film, whether it's uh, a movie that you have complete control over, whether you're the writer director, or whether you're just doing rewrites on some straight-to-video uh, sequel. You just have to keep coming back to the work with a renewed sense of, uh, you know, this is my craft, and no matter what I'm working on, I'm going I'm to bring everything I have to the table. And, and, and that's why it uh, really appealed to everyone outside of a very narrow circle of people in Hollywood, that particular article that I wrote. What are you working on these days? A lot of feature writers, like myself, over the years, I've been watching a lot of what's happening on television. And while at the, at the same time, uh, while working on features, and I'm working on a feature spec right now that's actually that's in a little bit of that swords fantasy space, um, different than Conan or Hercules. 
but we're also working a lot on TV projects because the opportunities in TV, because there are so many channels and so many venues and so much stuff being made are just much wider. You know, the problem for a lot of screenwriters right now is that movies, the movies that are getting made are, are, are either in these $160 million budgets where only a few writers can work on it, and they're usually the A-list writers, or they are, you know, $1 million movies, micro-budget movies, in which there's no real way for the writer to make a living. A lot of us made our bread and butter writing projects and selling projects that were in that sort of $10 million to $30 million range. This is, you know, 10 years ago. And that sort of middle class of filmmaking, whether it's art house cinema or even genre films or dramas, um, in that middle um, range has completely disappeared so that there just isn't the opportunity in films to do what you, uh, um, what you used to do. And we're looking at TV and, and seeing these amazing character-driven shows being produced that have these long arcs, and you're seeing all sorts of different types of shows, um, some of very small budgets made for um, uh, smaller platforms and sm- um, smaller networks, and others ones for bigger ones, and are constantly more and more people... Uh, more and more companies like Amazon and, and Netflix and and even uh, other digital pa- platforms like Xbox and, and others that are keep coming to the table. So there's there's this sense of television series being this larger world with, that keeps expanding, while there's the sense in movies of the pie sort of sh- constantly shrinking. You know, the movie business is always seems to be making less mo- uh, money every year. And there's more and more emphasis on these sort of tentpole blockbusters. Like a lot of screenwriters, I'm I'm uh, becoming more interested in, in TV. I, and I wrote a, a pilot that I sold to the CW with uh, a partner of mine last year. And this year, I you know I have another spec pilot that I've written, and will write more throughout the year. So those are the types of things that I'm working on now. And then you're also teaching at the same time, right? Yeah, I teach at uh, uh, USC Film School, where I went. I, 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 I came back to teach. And that's always a real treat for any writer to, to go back. And I, I only teach one class a, a week, um, and it alternates between a class on writing the feature script and then a class on rewriting. You know, one of the, uh, one of the reasons I got so much work over the last 15 years, and I, I've been steadily um, employed every year of my life, and I'm very grateful for that really has to do not with the movies that were, were made that you see on my IMDb list, but a lot of original spec projects or smaller writing assignments where I really got to write the kind of material that um, I'm most passionate about. What can be frustrating about the, the real world and, and the entertainment business is oftentimes none of those movies actually get made. But when you're teaching, um, you can stay a little bit, it's a little bit of an ivy tower and you can stay in that world of okay, let's just all get together and write up the stories that we're most passionate about, the things that we know the most about. And let's look at um, screenwriting from this idealized um, perspective of, you know, what's going to make the best movie? We're not going to worry about budgets. We're not going to worry about what the star wants or what the feud between the director and the studio. We're just going to um, concentrate on on making the best screenplay possible. And that's a wonderful place to be. It keeps me in touch with what inspired me to become a filmmaker in the first place. And it also gives me a chance to help developing writers who are just emerging because some of them are incredibly talented. Um, there are students who have come through my class that uh, it's just been a joy to read their scripts and to um, give them a bunch of tools to uh, make their scripts better. 
screenwriting as a craft in terms of like the actual tools that you can teach or the actual practices that you can give to students, it's, it's not rocket science. It's not as though I'm teaching atomic physics. So most of those things are very simple. And a lot of things I teach have more to do with just the, the discipline of, uh, of how to approach and reapproach things. And then it's just about trying to identify students who are really talented and inspiring them and saying, you know, you're really good. I know this is really hard and most people fail at this particular world and it's really scary to go out there, but you need to keep trying because you're really good. This is what's really good about your writing. You need to do more of it. And this is where you need to improve. If you can just fix this, it'll be even better. There's something really inspiring about that. It keeps me in touch with anybody who want, who gets into um, the filmmaking um, and lasts and stays with it for, um, for a, a long career. Got into it because something about films lit some, uh, some sort of very deep passion in them when they were younger. And it's something that's burned throughout their lives. You always want to stay connected to that original inspiration and that original passion. And one of the ways that I'm able to do that is to, to work with emerging writers because they have that passion and also because I can be of genuine use to them. They may be talented in a hundred different ways, but there's also stuff that they don't know. Uh, there's also um, horrible mistakes that you can make as a screenwriter that I've made <laughs> over the last 15 or 20 years, and I can teach them ways of avoiding those pitfalls. And so I, you know, it gives you a sense of, um, okay, I made, I made a difference. Even if my movie flopped, I made a difference in the, uh, this person's career. Even if the, the movie that I wrote was completely overhauled and changed into something that I, I now hate, uh, I can go back to, to USC and go to my class and see somebody else's passion get, get whipped up into a frenzy and, and watch them rewrite their script over and over again and just gets better with each rewrite. And that's exciting to me. So thank you to Mr. Hood for coming on the show and talking to us about uh, the secret life of Conan the Barbarian 2011. I took a long time before I saw Conan the Barbarian 2011, and I don't necessarily know why, but then when I saw it, yeah, I can kind of see why it took me a while. I definitely didn't see it in theaters. I think I might have rented it on DVD, and I wasn't really impressed. What about you guys? You are a stronger man than I. I, I, I caught it on cable one night, caught it right at the beginning. 20 minutes in, I went, nope, I don't hate myself this much, and I turned it off. So I've yeah. only seen the first 20 minutes, and I just I couldn't do it. I'm like, this is not Conan. This, this, just, this is not Conan. Yeah, for me, I actually uh, did see it in the theater because I was such a Conan fan. And honestly, look, going into this, it felt like they were getting so many things right. And then you heard it was going to be PG-13 and you're like, OK, you know, but, you know, maybe they can still get away with it. And I remember after seeing it in the theater, 
Thankfully, I didn't see it in PG, in uh, 3D because, as a friend described it, you know how they'll uh, the in the post conversion jobs they'll try to layer uh, flat shots to make it look 3D. They said that one of the layer effects they did was Ron Perlman's beard was actually on a separate plane than the rest of his face, which is kind of hilarious. I heard that same complaint. I heard that same <laughs> complaint. Honestly, I heard Liam Neeson's. They did the same thing in Clash of the Titans to Liam Neeson that they're like his facial hair is going to kill me. <laughs> but having seen it in the theaters, I was tremendously, tremendously disappointed that I went I went in with high expectations because I love the character. And I've, I do feel it's a character that you ca- that does lend itself to remakes. You know, there have been a lot of different versions of Conan's o- Conan over the years. I was OK with them retreading this ground, telling a new Conan story. It's a serialized pulps character. You're meant to keep telling stories with this character. And it was just so incredibly disappointing. Now, later, I would go on to view it on home video, and my opinion of the movie softened somewhat. Maybe it's because I've seen so many truly goddamn terrible sword and sorcery films. But the thing is, there was actually more craft into these things than a lot of the other crap that I've seen. Because when I've seen, I say I've seen a lot of bad sword and sorcery movies, I'm not kidding. I've seen a ton of them. Everything, almost everything the Italians have made with a muscle, slightly muscly guy with a sword in hand, I probably have seen it. And this film... The worst thing I can say about it is that it's relatively uninspired. There are a lot, there are some scenes where there is potential showing through, but ultimately it just gets up its own ass and doesn't really deliver anything of true substance. There, this world doesn't feel like it has the same kind of lifeblood, the same pulse that influence that it was so infused into the Milius film. It's too goddamn glossy. Not just that, but there's also the fact that it feels too, and I'm only going off the 20 minutes I've seen, too modern. That it was full of quick cuts, modern thing, full of sweeping camera moves that are clearly aided by the computer, full of obvious CG. I'm not talking about, oh, I hate all CGI. It's obvious CGI. It seems like this was made for the idiots who just want to go to the multiplex and go, let's go see something cool for an hour's. (laughs) <laughs> and it's like, no, this – you can do that with a Matrix film. There's no depth there. Don't do that with a Conan film because I've heard people that have seen – younger people that have seen the 2011 Conan first, they call Milius's film boring. I am willing in a Conan movie to simply have a pure popcorn experience with it, but maybe it's just my own proclivities that I I couldn't have that with this movie. There was very little that actually engaged with me on that level. Now, again, I think I was when I first saw it, I was holding it to too high of a standard, and upon subsequent watchings, I'm a little bit more forgiving of the film. It's just it's not a film that I feel inclined to go back and revisit all that often. Because there is nothing too terribly <laughs> distinctive about the movie. It, it Can just I feels... ask you a question then? Go, so, go for it. After the 20 minutes that I've seen, does the camera ever fucking stop moving? No, but the entire film. No, but part of that can just be attributed to the filmmaker. If I remember correctly, it was the same guy who did the remake of uh, Friday the 13th. Uh, what is his name? Marcus Nisfell. Yeah. One of the most uninspiredly. Only in Hollywood do you get to fail upwards. Well, it it helps if you're, you know, the go-to guy for Michael Bay. 
Nispel uh, got his uh, made his bones under the uh, platinum dune. So, yeah, yeah. I have a hard time following this film just because I get so bored while the film is on that I'm just like, well, what's happening again? What, why is Rose McGowan got that huge forehead? I don't necessarily understand this. It's like this movie is filled with actors that I kind of like. Like, you know, I, I like Stephen Lang. I love Ron Perlman. I really like Rose McGowan. And, you know, Momoa, I think he does a pretty good job with what he has, but it just feels like he doesn't have enough to work with and it from the hood interview it sounds like nispel was all about shooting battle scenes and didn't want to give us anything character driven and then the character stuff just feels like it's kind of wedged in there and it's like yeah this doesn't doesn't work on any kind of level i mean the editing doesn't help no, no, there's some great action scenes in Conan the Barbarian the Milius version but those are subsequent to the building of a world, the creation of the character, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I'm even just going to the very opening of the film, they say that Conan was born on the battlefield. That could be a metaphor. It doesn't necessarily have to be literal, guys. And that scene, and then so many people complained about the Milius version, like staying on young Conan for too long, like waiting for us to meet, you know, the regular, like Arnold Conan. We don't see Momoa in the movie for quite a while. And it's like, there's so much stuff that happens before we get to Momoa's character. It's like, okay, if you guys were going to learn anything from the past, you know, one of the gripes that people had if you're going to make this modern film i mean again it's a reimagining you don't have to tell the whole origin story again it's like we get so caught up in origin stories these days but i guess this again falls into this like superhero kind of thing where it's like oh well you gotta know how you know did a radioactive spider bite this guy is that why he's so great you know <laughs> we, we gotta know it right up front there's way too much going on in in a frame like george lucas was so proud of attack of the clones where at one point he mentioned when they were when they were in the not blade runner city at the beginning he's like there's almost a thousand different things moving in the frame in any given moment and you're going that's too much stop yeah it's too noisy yeah and i i always have to wonder about this recent batch of action directors that seem to have no faith in an action sequence because they're overly edited. The camera does not let you see what is actually going on. And you got to feel for some of the performance in this because they probably spent a fair amount of time learning their choreography, but you'll be fucked if you know, because they've cut it to shit. I used to say that that 13 ghosts, the dark castle remake was the most schizophrenically edited movie I'd ever seen. I said, well, now I've seen a movie edited by a blind man. (laughs) <laughs> the, of what I saw from Conan, it seemed like it was trying to one-up that. Well, it's it's all fitting into this whole sort of chaos cinema aesthetic where one can almost understand the logic behind it. The idea that ba- battles are supposed to be these chaotic, frenetic things, and they're trying to capture that aesthetic with the editing style and the camera technique. However, I find that entire aesthetic to be repulsive. As a fan of action, I want to be able to see action. A greatly constructed action sequence could elevate a movie. It should tell a story and be more than simply the implication of emotion. 
that I think that uh, gr- great action sequences should, again, have a, a plot to them, a beginning, middle, and end, particularly if you're leading, if the entire movie is uh, barreling towards a final confrontation between a big bad guy and a good guy, you gotta be able to tell a plot in the action. And they don't. They just don't in these movies anymore. And it really does make me angry. I don't like things now compared to the way they used to be. I don't see a single vision when it comes to Conan the Barbarian 2011, which really kind of makes me sad because, you know, Milius, one of his projects was supposed to be the sequel to Conan. It was supposed to be King Conan, Crown of Iron. You know, we would finally get that thing that Mako teases at the end of Conan. We would get that story of Conan becoming king by his own hand. And, you know, that was the draft I have of that was May 24th, 2001. And unfortunately, just life got in the way. Millius ends up having a stroke. All these things happen. I mean, Schwarzenegger is one of those guys who his name gets attached to so many projects. I mean, the the Crusade film that, who was that, Cameron wanted to make all those years ago. So many different things have had his name on it over the years. He was supposed to be in one of the original Planet of the Apes remakes, all this kind of stuff. I remember stuff. that. I actually think that was the Oliver Stone one, when Oliver Stone was going to remake Planet of the Apes. I actually think that was the Arnold one. But I want to point this out. I just looked this up. The Conan 2011, and this is the reason everything is still so black committee. 16 different producers, seven of which are credited as executive producers. How you can't make a movie like that. And first of all, how do you have more than one executive producer? Isn't executive producer kind of the point that the box stops with me? If you have seven of them, none of them are really executive producer, are they? I just want to point that out. So on Conan the Barbarian, you had two executive producers. You had Raffaella De Laurentiis and you had Ed Pressman. So definitely you've got probably the purse strings and then the guy who's making the decisions. I'm not sure how much Raffaella was doing on that one in particular. I mean, I know that Dune was her baby and that was still a few years away. So I'm not sure what her role was in comparison to Pressman's. But two people versus how many executives for 2011? Seven executive producers. Yeah. Good Lord. (sighs) And I'm looking at their names, and I'm not noticing one name on this producer list that I even recognize. You know how normally you can pull up an executive producer? Oh, okay. I I know his word. I don't recognize a single one of these names without clicking on them. And even then I'm going, don't know that, don't know that, don't know that. I think Boaz Davidson was one of the producers, wasn't he? Yeah, I think so. I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm like, okay, the executive produced Expendables 2, 300 Rise of an Empire, Mega Snake. You know, it's like, okay, you, your your credits aren't exactly impressive. So I just want to say, yes, that's why I think it felt like it was made by committee because it was. And I have the feeling that the new one, because they they still talk about doing, you know, bringing back Arnold and having him in this with um, Rock as his son. That's the last one I heard. Oh, Jesus. Or, 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 or was it Vin Diesel as his son? It, it, was, it was one of them. Well, Vin Diesel would kind of make sense. I mean, you know, we talked on the, the – you did a retrospective of all the Riddick films, and that end of Chronicles of Riddick so reminds me of the end of Conan. Oh, that yeah. That whole – yeah, him – you know, The body it, it, posture, the – Oh, yeah. God. 
Yeah. And he's, he's such it. a gigantic geek anyway that you know that was what was going through his mind when he was doing that scene. But yeah, as of like February 6th, there was a new story about this Legend of Conan film where it was uh, um, new writer Will Beale will be rewriting the script. So now that's three versions of the script I think we have. So that we've got Chris Morgan as a writer, Andrea Burloff as a writer, and now this Will Beale guy as a writer. So it's like, yeah, we're probably not off to a good start. Again, no singular vision. All we have to do now is add um, Jason Blum as executive producer since he executive produced every goddamn film that comes out nowadays. What's that guy's name? Akiva Goldsmith? I think we need him in there. Oh, Akiva Goldsmith. Okay, his Academy Award is a proof of how stupid the Academy Awards are. There's no possible (laughs) way the same guy that wrote Batman and Robin and you know every in lost in space and every other bad film of the 90s also wrote a beautiful mind no he put his name on someone else's script i refuse to read the version of batman versus superman that akiva goldsman rewrote that was andrew kevin walker's um original draft it's like if i can find that original i'll read that but i do not want to read anything that that he does yeah it just he the goldsman is just Oh yeah, just you know terrible. What, Mike? I, I, I'm, I think I'm going to put a challenge out to you and me. Akiva Goldsman wrote a book on screenwriting. We should both read that and do an episode about it. Maybe he's a really, really nice guy, but I just I'm not a real big fan of his work. Did either of you guys see Solomon Kane? Yes. Nope. What did you think? Uh, it was an interesting film, particularly since it was. It took forever to be released in in the States. I mean, I think it hit Europe years before it finally uh, came over here. I liked the darker tone they took with it. Um, it did have a lot of these rather stereotypical CGI con- constructs that we've been seeing in so many films up, up until this point. But it definitely was a much more gritty approach to the material, which stands to reason because Solomon Kane is a much different character than what we would find with Conan. Yeah, no, I saw it recently. Uh, it's streaming on Netflix, and yeah, I thought it was all right, but I don't know. It felt like maybe there was a different version of it at some point. I don't know which draft I saw, kind of thing. Like, mm-hmm. but yeah, it was. Um, I like the whole idea of when he finally kicks ass. It's great. Oh, yeah. But he spends so much of the movie like not kicking ass. It's like okay. It's definitely one of those films because every film is like that these days where it was setting up a franchise. And I could have enjo- I could have seen uh, sequels if they had made them. I would have been willing to see another Solomon Kane film. But uh, I don't think that's ever going to happen. Unfortunately, I kept getting Solomon Kane and Jonah Hex. Speaking of uh, Akiva <laughs> Goldsman, I kept getting those mixed up in my head for some reason. I don't know why. That's those two word names. Yeah, and when I would see the posters for Solomon Kane, I I kept thinking of our good friend um, Kevin Sorbo for some reason. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was just the the poster. I was like, is that Kevin Sorbo? I don't recognize who this person is. God may not be dead, but his career is. Oh yeah. So I talked to probably one of three of the biggest Robert E. Howard fans that I know. And actually, I know them through you, uh, Al Goro, for turning me on to the Cromcast. 
a podcast dedicated solely to the works of Robert E. Howard. I think they just started their third season now, and they're looking, I want to say they're looking at the works of uh, their Howard's Solomon Kane character. So um, very timely when it comes to that. So let's play that interview, and then we can wrap up and get out of here with this uh, epic episode. My name is Josh Adkins. Uh, I live in Kentucky, and I'm a lab coordinator at uh, university here in Lexington, Kentucky. And uh, in my spare time, I'm a podcaster with my good buddies, Luke and John. And when you put a little bit of, of each of those three personalities into a bowl and stir it up and add a little bourbon, you get the Cromcast. I suppose you've got to add some Robert E. Howard there, too, though. How long have you guys been doing the Chromecast? Well, we started in the summer of 2013, so we're about a year and a half in. And, you know, it it all got started because we were fans of podcasts. Uh, Luke, especially, he started listening to stuff, I I don't know, uh, before John and I delved into the hobby. We were listening to stuff like the Splattercast and... uh, Word Balloon with John Suntress, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. You know, it's just something to to have on that is it's interesting. It helps the it helps time move a little faster when you're in the lab doing stuff. And we all sort of were looking for the creative outlet. And it took us a really long time to put together. Hey, you know, we really like podcasts. Uh, we're interested in uh, sword and sorcery and sci fi and fantasy. And Robert E. Howard does not have a podcast, uh, which doesn't seem fair because Clark Ashton Smith had a podcast. H.P. Lovecraft has a, an awesome podcast. The H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast is is just great. And we thought, you know, that's that's really that's really a travesty because Howard was so prolific, so good, deserves uh, to be remembered, deserves to be talked about even today. And so we put together the the plan, I guess, laid the the framework for the Chromecast and uh, put out our first episode, I think, in June of 2013. Now, are all three of you guys scientists? Yeah, yeah. We're all scientists uh, at various academic institutions throughout the U.S. What branches are you studying? Entomology. And, and so we're all three uh, bug guys, I guess. Why Howard and how have you applied the scientific method to what you've done? Howard, like I said, he was so prolific. Uh, The dude committed suicide at age 30. But before that time, he wrote something on the order of 300 stories, 800 or so poems. I'm not certain the exact numbers, but in those ballparks. And of those stories, I think just north of 100 were published. And so each of us came to Howard through Conan, much like probably everyone does. We were fans of the movie, fans of the comics, and had honestly never read any of the original stories. And, you know, I don't know if you guys have read any of the original stories in in preparation for this episode of The Production Booth. Uh, But if you haven't, you really owe it to yourself to just take a few minutes and, and sit down with a... Uh, a bourbon and a Conan story, and I guarantee you're going to have an awesome time. They just, I don't know how to describe the the energy that they give off. We talk about, you know, the the way these stories sort of are cinematic in the way that 
characters seem to move and live and and uh, breathe on their own, sort of jumping off of the page. It's something that you can really easily imagine uh, from a, a cinematic perspective, I think. As far as the scientific method goes, I, I think that our background in science sort of helps us analyze the uh, the structure of the stories, sort of helps us break down uh, patterns that we see across these stories, recurring themes, those things pop out at, at us, and, and we spend some time talking about that on the show. But one really cool thing about Howard is in a few of his stories, especially the, the Conan stories, he talks about scientific uh, processes like evolution. He talks about scientific processes like plate tectonics. And this is a time, and I guess you could still say this today, but evolution was not widely accepted, right, during the 1930s. And there are several Conan stories. Um, one that, that leaps out in particular is The Queen of the Black Coast, which is a classic. And in that story, there is this civilization of, of people that Howard describes as uh, sort of rising up in terms of evolutionary progress out of apedom and then at their zenith becoming corrupted by something and then devolving. And so that's not really how evolution works. But the fact that he he featured evolution so prominently in his fiction, I think, speaks to how widely read he was. Now, you guys have done your started on your third season how do you kind of divide these things up as far as what a season is? Is it a number of episodes or is it kind of looking at a particular topic and utilizing that as, as a, a uh, season break? We sort of organize our seasons around topics. And, and so far, uh, the first season, you know, obviously the, the best place in Howard's bibliography to jump in, the most accessible place was Conan. And so our entire season one was a discussion of the Conan stories, the uh, John Milius Conan film, and Luke put together a really awesome Conan versus heavy metal episode where we picked out about eight or so songs. And each of those songs from various artists sort of were influenced by or make reference to some Conan story. And so the entire first season is is dedicated to Conan. And after that, we wanted to sort of take a step back and think about what, you know, where to go next. And one thing that popped out at us was, you know, in a lot of the Conan stories, the female characters are just sort of cheesecakey sex objects. But in a lot of them, Queen of the Black Coast, one that I just mentioned, and several others, uh, feature prominently really strong female characters. And... So we decided, what if we focus our second season on the female characters of Robert E. Howard and females in pulp fiction, pulp fantasy from the 30s? And needless to say, that made us really nervous because we're three dudes and, you know, we don't really have that female perspective. But Howard created uh, the character, or at least the, the impetus for the character, Red Sonia. And Howard's Red Sonia is a lot different than the comic Red Sonia, who's a lot different than the movie Red Sonia. Uh, but he also created this character named Dark Agnes, uh, Helen Tavril, the pirate, uh, several compelling female characters who don't just sort of melt at the sight of, uh, of iron thews, right? 
that was pretty cool and pretty interesting. And now we're in the middle, like you said, of our third season, uh, focusing on Solomon Kane. And I think a, a lot of people, you know, if you say Robert E. Howard, if they're familiar with him, they'll first say, oh, Conan. And then maybe tangentially sort of uh, say Solomon Kane, too. So I think Solomon Kane is maybe the, the, the next most recognizable character that Howard created. And he's interesting, man. It's, you know, these Kane stories were written uh, a few years before the, the Conan stories were. It's cool to, to sort of see this uh, development of Howard's ideas, of his tropes, of his ability to set a scene and write fight scenes. He can write fight scenes like no one else. Where does Solomon Kane fit in the evolution of Robert E. Howard as a writer? Like, what did he have particular eras as far as I'm going to write call stories, I'm going to write Kane stories, I'm going to write Conan stories, or were they kind of mixed together, or how how did that work? Well, the the Conan stuff was actually later on in Howard's life, and I I think that he sort of wrote based upon what the market was dictating. Um, you know, he was trying to become uh, a professional writer and he was doing this by, you know, writing for the pulps and it wasn't always easy to, to get stuff accepted into the pulps, especially weird tales. He sort of wrote whatever would sell. Now, as far as eras, I, I believe that Cole uh, is pretty early on in the chronology uh, or in the uh, bibliography of Robert E. Howard. And then you've got Solomon Kane. You can see from those two characters how Conan sort of evolved just from the uh, uh, breakneck speed of some of the fight scenes, the descriptions of uh, both Cole and Solomon Kane. Howard used a lot of uh, sort of feline descriptors, uh, you know, panther like, tiger like, tigerish. Uh, there was an episode uh, in the first season early on where we we sort of played a drinking game with uh, 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 cat adjectives. He used a lot of them. And so both of those two action heroes, I think, sort of merge together to help form Conan, not so much in their personalities, but in the way that Howard learned to put together an action scene and to describe that and make it just jump off of the page. When it comes to the podcast, one of the features that you have on there is the one thing. <laughs> For folks who aren't familiar with the Chromecast, what is the one thing? One thing. In an effort to keep us from going on and on and on about non- Conan, non-Robert E. Howard things, and in an effort to sort of focus us, rather than jumping into, hey, what have you guys been doing this week? What's What's been going on? What's new? We sort of instituted the one thing. And that's, you know, you get to make a recommendation, whether it's a video game or a book or a movie or something that you really think that is special that you want to share with, with uh, anyone who might be listening in. And so the the one thing sometimes delves sometimes becomes two things, <laughs> but it, it's it was just our way of uh, our silly way I guess of of trying to keep the show on track and not uh, going off topic too much. When it comes to Howard himself, so far, and I know you're not done exploring his bibliography, but what's the one thing that you want people to? go and check out immediately what's that one story that is going to blow their socks off and make them a robert e howard fan 
I think that it depends on what you're into. If you are already into, you know, fantasy, um, sword and sorcery stories, then you have to read the tower of the elephant. It's, it's a really, one of the shorter Conan stories and it's excellent. If you want something a little bit longer, you've got to read beyond the black river, which is another Conan tale, but it could also be a Western and it features Conan and our point of view character sort of behind uh, Pictish enemy lines. And this is a story we we discussed with uh, Mark Finn, who is the author of Blood and Thunder, which is, I, I think, the uh, Robert E. Howard biography. If If you read one Howard biography, make sure it's Blood and Thunder. And Mark sort of took us through the story and let us in on some really cool Texas history that influenced the development of that story. And so uh, there, there were some conflicts between Texans and Native Americans that really informed this, uh, this story beyond the Black River. And it's awesome. So if you want to see a, a good Conan story, if you want to read a good Conan story, definitely go to those two first. That's my recommendation. I think Luke might have some different ones. Maybe John would have some different ones. But for my money, those are, those are two of the best. Now, if you're a horror fan uh, and you've never read Pigeons from Hell, you have to read it. You have to stop what you're doing and read this story. It's Southern Gothic horror at its finest. And uh, this story was born from, I think, some some back and forth communication between Robert E. Howard and H.P. Lovecraft. And Lovecraft suggested that, you know, there's nothing as terrifying as the, the secrets of uh, old New England. And being the old gentleman from Providence, you know, he, he sort of was saying, New England's better than everywhere else. And Howard said, okay, I'm going to write a story that's going to scare your pants off. And he wrote Pigeons from Hell, which is is a really cool story about uh, uh, voodoo and and black magic and revenge and horrible family secrets and a zombie. And it's it's very, very cool. So I would recommend checking both of those stories out. And in the interest of not just going on and on and on, I think I'll make those my three recommendations. Those three things are your one thing. (laughs) Those three things are my one thing. How easy or difficult is it to find Robert E. Howard stories versus Robert E. Howard as translated by or as obfuscated by DeCamp? Yeah, Uh, L. Sprague DeCamp. Um, took a lot of Howard stories, I think during the, the 60s and 70s, and made his own edits, took fragments that were not yet completed that, you know, Howard didn't complete in his lifetime, uh, finished them himself, called them posthumous collaborations. I think it's hard to collaborate with someone posthumously. And so those are out there. And for a really long time, it was hard to find any pure Howard Today, that's not really the case. There are lots of excellent uh, collections from Del Rey, and these are the uh, collections that we use for the show. And there are three, I'm looking at my bookshelf right now, three Conan collections that uh, collect the, I believe, 20 Conan stories that Howard wrote during his life. There's also a volume of Cull, a volume of Solomon Kane, uh, and I'm looking at Brand McMorn. But there are also others. And they're all pure Howard. Uh, no edits, no additions, no takeaways. It's all pure Robert E. Howard. And so it's easier than it used to be. 
Now, there are also collections from the Robert E. Howard Foundation, and I believe that website is rehfoundation.org. And they are limited print series. They're a little pricey, uh, but they're bound very nicely, really nice paper. These are really nice collectible books, uh, limited series. And you can get stories in these collections that you can't find anywhere else. And again, they're all pure Howard. So I would say I'm not certain when this uh, resurgence in pure Howard began, but I think in the last 15 years, 10 to 15 years, it's become remarkably easier. And with the web, there are, there are lots of online uh, sources like Project Gutenberg where you can get some of Howard's stories, not all, but some collections, those that are in uh, the public domain. And you can access those for free. And I, I think that those are unedited, uh, pure Howard. What is going to be next for you guys? I mean, there's so much that he still has left for you guys to explore. Where are you going to go? What's season four going to be like? We've got a few ideas, one of which is to include other authors, other pulp authors from that era and discuss um, the the prevalence of lost continents in these stories, not just Howard, but others as well. And it might give us an opportunity to talk about maybe Tarzan. We can pull in some Lovecraft and talk about uh, the Call of Cthulhu and, and these uh, continents, these island continents that uh, sink and rise above the waves. And we can pull in some of Howard's uh, stories like Skullface, which deal with uh, antagonists that are from uh, ancient Atlantis. Uh, that's one idea. We've also talked about talking or <laughs> talked about talking about Howard's uh, fight stories, even though he's widely considered the the father of sword and sorcery. He wrote in a number of diverse genres. Uh, we talked about the horror stuff, but he also wrote a ton of historical fiction, funny short stories, uh, detective stories, and westerns. But one genre that I think gets left out a lot, and I wasn't even aware of until I started this project with my with my buddies, was Howard's fight stories. He wrote a ton of boxing stories, and just I've never, I still haven't read any of them, but. I can imagine that with you know from the way that he wrote Conan and those those fight scenes and those stories that these uh, fight tales are probably just hard to put down, frenetic, action packed, and and awesome. So you know we've got a couple of ideas. Uh, we haven't really decided what to do next because we're we're solidly sort of in the middle of the Solomon Kane stuff, and uh, I'm I'm still pretty excited about those stories, and I know the other guys are as well. Now, I know that you reach out into other media. You, know, you talked about the heavy metal episode, and I know that you've covered Conan the Barbarian, the film, and read Sony, the film, when you're doing these episodes. First off, let me apologize that you're going to have to watch Solomon Kane, the film, for an episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're, we're going to have to. We're going to do it. <laughs> do you go into other things like the comic books when it comes to the Conan stories? Yeah, we, we do have a, a comic book episode. Uh, our friend and uh, excellent comic book artist Justin Stewart joined us for that one. And we talked about not just the stories, but we were we were discussing the, the old savage sword of Conan art. And there's a, a ton of excellent black and white art in those pages you can get those pretty easily um i believe dark horse comics owns the rights to all the conan stuff now and there are these large 
Yellow Pages style collections that are, you know, two, three hundred pages long that collect like a dozen or, or 15 stories. And they're just chock full of, of art from, from people like Ancala and other Puerto Rican uh, uh, artists of that era. That stuff is really good, man. I don't know if you've read any of them. I recommend them, though. I've been reading the uh, the Savage Sword, um, the collections of those. But, yeah, that's it so far as far as that goes. I mean, there's just so much. I mean, I'm preaching to the choir here. There's so much stuff that I need to read or want to read when it comes to this. Not only the Conan stories themselves, the comic books, but then the scholarship that was written about Conan. And then of course the, uh, the, um, I just am wrapping up Mark Finn's biography and then there's the Paul Salmon book. So there's just so much that needs to be explored. Yeah. It's, it's amazing that all of this material is out there and available. You know, it, it wasn't always the case. And I, I think and, you know, I am not – and the other guys will back me up on this. We're, we're not Howard scholars, I think. I think we're fans. And, you know, clearly we haven't read everything yet. But from what we've read, we, we really love and, – and, of course, there have been some, some stories that we haven't enjoyed so much. And we've talked about that as well. But even the really bad stories are better than a lot of the, the stuff that you would find in this era of pulps. And you mentioned the scholarship stuff. Mark Finn's book is an awesome resource. But Don Heron, who is an excellent Robert E. Howard scholar, uh, wrote two or, or I, I shouldn't say he wrote. He edited two excellent volumes of Howard scholarship, and they're called The Dark Barbarian and The Barbaric Triumph. And just after Christmas, you know, a few weeks ago, uh, Amazon released – the Kindle edition of those two books collected together along with a ton of other essays. Um, it's not all Conan stuff. It's, it's Howard scholarship and you can get that in Kindle format for five ninety nine. And those books are, are really hard to come by these days. Yeah, it's pretty funny. I, I kind of have an ax to grind. Um, I guess I'm using that because of Conan um, <laughs> against Don Heron because he had written a book of, about one of my favorite authors, Charles Williford, and the book is called Charles Williford by Don Heron, but I had made a joke that it should be called Don Heron by Don Heron just because it is so about him. Yeah. And as I'm reading the introduction to that Kindle version of, of this uh, this book that you're recommending, there's a line in there about, you know, Don Heron is, is – uh, getting a lot of flack lately because he's so uh, such a great self-promoter. And I'm like, whew, at least it's not just me. <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I don't think it's just you at all. But, you know, the good news is there's a, a ton of other uh, content in there from from Howard Scholars. It, it runs the gamut. I think Mark Finn's got an essay in there. Jeffrey Shanks also, maybe. It's, it's, it's great. Uh, there's also, a, I think it's Fritz Leiber. There, there's a, a short essay about sword and sorcery, the genre as a whole, uh, written by Liber, which is pretty neat. Yeah, no, it is a tremendous book, and I'm very glad. Thank you for recommending that, and thank you so much for all the help you've given me as far as putting this podcast together kind of behind the scenes, you know, <laughs> recommending different stories, and then just having the Cromcast as a, a reference is just amazing to be able to hear about these stories and to get different perspectives about these stories. And, of course, you know, thanks to El Goro for turning me on to 
the the Chromecast. So it's all kind of feeding each other. Yeah, that's that's very kind, man. Thank you so much. We wanted this show to sort of be a, a testament to Howard himself, and you know his work stands alone. It stands on its own. And I think sometimes, and you know, the, I think the the Howard Scholarship community might might not be happy if I say this, but it's not easy to access. It's not easy to get. Uh, firstly, it's, it, until the Kindle edition of of those books was uploaded to Amazon, it was tough to get those those essays. But it's also tough to access. It's it's a very sort of insular community, and I think that. You know, we're approaching it in in a way that you know an, uh, a fan might approach it. Someone who's really interested, really passionate about uh, really good pulp style adventure stories, and we just want to bring folks to it who maybe you know you've seen the Conan movie, maybe you grew up and watched the Conan cartoon, uh, or you've got a few issues of of the comic, you know, from your your dad or your brother's collection but you've never really read any Howard. We, we wanted this to sort of be a portal to uh, access some other Howard stuff and, and sort of get your bearings because that dude wrote a ton of excellent stories. And sometimes it's really hard to get your bearings. So where can people find the Chromecast? Uh, well, you can find us on the web at uh, the Chromecast.blogspot.com. We're also on Twitter, uh, twitter.com slash the Chromecast. Uh, we have a Facebook page as well, uh, and you can listen to us on the Stitcher app. We're we're on um, uh, iTunes as well, so I think we're pretty easy to find as long as you you know search for Chromecast and not Chromecast. All right, thanks to Josh from the Chromecast for coming on and talking to me about uh, what that show is all about. I highly recommend that. Of course, we will have links over to where folks can go out and sign up for that show, download episodes, and just enjoy the madness that these guys are uh, engaged in going through every uh, week and looking at a different Robert E. Howard story. So uh, I want to thank this week's special guest, uh, Thank you, Josh, for coming on, kind of a, my pinch hitter here. Thank you, El Goro, for, for showing up for this one. El Goro, what have you been up to now that the uh, El Año del Santo is is done? What have you been up to over at Talk Without Rhythm? Uh, same thing I've always been doing since I launched the show. Just uh, try to find two films that are tangentially related and uh, d- discuss them with people that are willing to come on the show. Uh, at the time of this recording, we just recorded episode 256, which because of its connection to computing, we decided to uh, discuss the Matrix and the Zero Theorem and get rather drunk and uh, discuss some of the philosophical implications of those films. Zero Theorem, nice. Yeah, I still have so, to watch that. It is, if you are a fan of Gilliam, it is uh, very much worth it. 
Uh, Brazil is one of my favorite films of all time. Director's you, Cut only. Then you may very well uh, love this film because it is very much of a piece with what he did with Brazil. Awesome. Well, now you're going to have to go see Jupiter Ascending Suds. So he no, makes a little cameo appearance in there. I read about that. No. <laughs> I will never willingly pay for a Channing Tatum movie, ever. I saw it. I yeah, was well, there. You don't Opening hate Channing weekend. Tatum as much as I do. You hate a lot of things, Josh. That's what I do. And where do you share your hatred for folks who want to listen to more of it? 1201beyond.com is where all of my hatred is focused. And... Our illustrious host here is a frequent guest of my hatred. Yeah, we'll be talking um, at the time of this recording. We are, what, three days away from a best of the best retrospective. So very excited to talk about that. We'll find out what best of the best is best of the best. We're here because you're looking for the best of the best of the best, sir. All right. So one more thing before we go. We're going to play a preview for next week's show, and then we're going to come back, and I'm going to say goodnight. Love can sure spin your head around. God, where do you begin? Well, hello. We must have been meant to be together. It's too bad you have to work tonight. Only till midnight. Fate is a funny thing. Take a nap, because you're going to need all your energy tonight. It was one of those strange nights... Finally meet the right girl and you blow it. That could ruin your whole day. In a big way. Dad, it's happening. This is it. This is really it. This is the big one. This is a joke, right? It's really happening. 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 This can't be true. We'll all be dead if we don't get out of here. Nobody believes this, do they? Not me. Not Spongy. Make a list for me. People who we want to bring along. We gotta get Julie. Who's Julie? Harry Belafonte. Who are you? Who are you? Stop and let me off. I don't stop for nothing. Jump! Don't hurt me, man. I got Nakamichi Pioneer. I got everything. If it doesn't happen, I'll pay you. What doesn't happen, man? I'm dreaming. That's, that's it, I'm dreaming. Y'all ready to go? You the pilot? Hey! Hey, do you know anybody could fly helicopter? Helicopter pilots. All the helicopter pilot bars are closed. What's the problem? It's true. Love can be exciting. Trust me with this. Even terrifying. Julie! I love you! But nothing could prepare you for an experience like this. What is the truth, Harry? Miracle Mile. Listen, I'm just a guy who, who picked up the phone. That's right. Next week, we are going to be looking at Miracle Mile. Hopefully, we will have director Steve DeJarnette, and we will definitely have actress Olan Jones on the show. And we'll be talking about this great, uh, can't call it a post-apocalyptic film, uh, apocalypse film, I suppose, is the best yeah, way to put a, it. It's a really good movie. Yeah, it's a fantastic film. Uh, hopefully, folks will come back for that. Find links to the show over at our website, projection-booth.com. I'll have tons and tons of links this week. Uh, all So many people were involved with this episode. Thanks to everybody for listening, and good night.
another day Walking in circles Haunted by memories I push on this wheel I pray to Kram Grant me revenge And help me to answer The riddle of steel A shy little boy I couldn't protect them Helpless and timid As weak as a girl They butchered my people The dogs ate my father My mother beheaded They took my whole world Kram, where is the wizard Who killed my mother? Still, I can recall His terrible gaze Kram, where are the two snakes Facing each other? Kram, if you're my god Then show me the way I'm on the path Chopping up bodies, hacking and slicing, and look at me now. With loyal friends joining my party, each step I take, I'm fulfilling my vow. Crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and hear the lamentation of the women. Hear the lamentation of the women. Crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and hear the lamentation of the women. Kram, show me the wizard who killed my mother True, I've never prayed to you before Still, what would I give if you could help me see this through? And if you do not listen, then the hell with you The two snakes facing each other Kram, if you're my god Then show me the way I swear this wizard will fall Cause this has begun They murdered them all I'm the last one I issued the call Revenge for my mom I pray Your enemies see them driven before you and hear the lamentation of the women. God knows what the guy is doing to a llama. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.